This is Jocko Podcast number 405 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. The enemy rounds continued hitting the wall and edges of the rooftop. Michael had taken the bulk of the blast and shrapnel. His wounds were many and grievous. With enemy gunfire increasing, Benny knew that if he didn't get back on a gun, none of them were going to make it off of the roof. He did not want to leave Michael's side, but this was the only thing left that he could do. Benny grabbed Michael's Mark 48 and went to work. He sent long, continuous outbursts back at the enemy. The pain from his wounds faded into rage. By this point, the Iraqi scouts had made their way back onto the rooftop and began to help Benny with the fight guided by Doug and Mike S. The rooftop was taking heavy fire from multiple enemy automatic weapons. Seth, you guys need to get here fast. Doug and I are hurt bad, and Mikey is down hard, Mike S. called into the radio. He did not know that Seth and his team were already on the way to reach their position. Got you. We're coming. Hang in there, guys. The Bradleys are on their way. Seth called back in response. Seth's element had heard and seen the two blasts from their overwatch position and were already moving when the call for help came in. The men urgently picked up the pace when they heard the amount of enemy automatic weapon fire that their friends were receiving. They broke out from the main entrance and headed west. Initially, all was quiet at their position, but within 15 seconds of hitting the street, all hell broke loose. Enemy rounds snapped and skipped around them. They moved from cover to cover, returning fire as they closed the distance to the other overwatch position. Suddenly, a seal from the other element burst onto the roof and headed over to Doug, Mike S., and Michael. He was followed by Seth and the other SEALs. One of the strongest SEALs grabbed Michael and hoisted him onto his back. Seth grabbed Doug and the, other, the others took Mike S. They could hear the 25mm auto cannons of the Bradley fighting vehicles begin to fire, effectively suppressing the enemy and providing cover for the SEALs to load their wounded. When the wounded SEALs arrived, Back at Camp Corregidor, they saw the men from the 1st of the 506 lined up waiting to support wherever they could. Another testament to the bond that the two units shared. Doug, Mike S., and Michael were loaded onto stretchers and brought into the aid station on the camp. Doug and Mike S. were given shots of morphine, and for the first time since the grenade explosion, they finally had reprieve from the piercing physical pain. The reprieve, however, was short-lived. The atmosphere in the room shifted, the mood had darkened, and the two men could feel it. Then they overheard the nurse say it. Michael was gone. In that sobering moment, they became aware of what Michael had given them. He had freely exchanged his life for theirs. It was September 29th, the feast of St. Michael, the the Archangel, the protector and guide of warfighters since time immemorial and whom Michael had been named after 
25 years earlier. And that right there is an excerpt from the book, Defend Us in Battle, the true story of Medal of Honor recipient Michael A. Monsoor, which was written by George Monsoor, Michael's father. And it was an honor to have George on the podcast, number 359, to share the story of his son, Mikey, who was part of SEAL Team 3, tasking a bruiser when he jumped on a grenade to absorb the blast and save three of her other teammates, three of her other friends, three of her other brothers. And the strong SEAL who grabbed Michael and hoisted him onto his back to carry him out to the Bradleys was another teammate and another friend of mine, another brother named Jimmy May. And Jimmy served for over 22 years in the Navy, most of that time, 20 plus years as a SEAL. He led troops in combat in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He led training. He's a jiu-jitsu practitioner. He attended Harvard Business School. And he's been a friend of mine since the day we met in Ramadi, which happened to be on August 2nd, 2006, the day that Mark Lee was killed. And it's an honor to have Jimmy with us here tonight to share some of his experiences and lessons learned. Jimmy, thanks for coming by, man. Thanks for having me, and you jump right into the heavy stuff. We're not going to mess around. All right. Yeah, well, um, I mean, that's obviously a day we'll never forget and something that the more people know and understand and recognize and remember, the better off we'll all be. So I'm sure we'll get there. We'll, we'll talk about that day. Um, but let's 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 talk about how we got there and how we got here today. Let's talk about you, where you came from. Let's start at the beginning. So what, Texas kid? Yeah, Texas, but El Paso. So it's kind of like right on the border. It's very much, uh, I mean, the Mexican influence is all over the place. I spoke a lot of Spanish growing up. Uh, I had nicknames like Güero or Leche or anything else that means white. And, uh, you know. I still, to this day, feel very comfortable in that Latin culture. You know, I spend a lot of time in Mexico working, playing, surfing. Do you still speak? Do you speak Spanish? I speak it okay. I speak Spanglish. Mm. Uh, I would never do it here on because I probably say a lot of bad words and I'm not supposed to say because I didn't learn it in the classroom. You know what I mean? You know how that goes. <laughs> yeah. So what were your what were your mom and dad doing growing up? Uh, I didn't see my dad much because my dad had three jobs. He worked at Gibson's, which is like a Vons or something like that, and he worked at Seven Eleven, and then he my uncle lived with us too. He worked at you know, Pizza Hut, we were, I mean, probably below poverty family for most of the time. Um, you know, my mom, she worked too. And as I got older, they ended up, my mom went to college because they're like, we got to do better than this, you know. And so my mom went to college and when I went to high school, they both finished. But I was mostly lower middle class for my life. And then uh, I didn't know what to do when I got out of high school. During high school, I was a wrestler, football player. And then I just never thought, I thought college was for rich kids. I never thought I could go. How so, good of a wrestler were you? I was decent. I, I took fifth in the state of Texas my senior year. Um, but, you know, the guys are going to really win. They all come from Iowa, those Midwestern, mm-hmm. like, good grindy states. You know what I mean? Those guys are, uh, they start early, and they're a cut above, at least at that time. And what about life. football? Football was decent. Uh, I played a lot, but I wasn't going to go to college on it. I'm a little fella. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not as big as you guys walking around. But uh, I played, you know, 
cornerback and then wing back. So I, I was in and out as a receiver, and then I returned punts and kicks. I was relatively fast um, for back then. What about school? Did you pay attention in school? Did you try in school? No, I didn't try at all. I, <laughs> I just I was like, I'll just enlist in the military like the rest of my family did. Almost, I think, at that point, every adult male had been in the military. Most of them thrown out for something. A lot of them got in trouble. Um, but I was just going to enlist. Had your dad been in the military? My dad was a Hawk missile tech in the Army. And uh, he got out. He didn't say much about it. But I do remember, like, you know, my dad died. All the things he did. I didn't know much about his armor service. On his tombstone, it said U.S. Army. And it had the dates he served. I'm like, that's interesting. Of all the things, it mm-hmm. has his Army service on his tombstone. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It just kind of was interesting to me. So, so you're growing up. Your parents are working all the time. Yep. Did you have brothers, sisters? Yeah, I got a, a younger sister. And uh, they got a younger brother. So my sister's two years younger than my brother's. Uh, he's five years younger than I am. And were you kind of like the man of the house then a bunch if they if they were w- working all the time? I was kind of a – I kind of picked on them a lot, I got to say. Like <laughs> I was kind of like the quintessential big brother, like tying them up and doing stuff and messing with them, you know, like <laughs> letting the spit drop right back there and suck it back <laughs> up, you know. I, I kind of picked on them a lot. Uh, we're pretty close now, though, I'm happy to say. You know, my brother's started no college, started his super successful cell phone tower business. He puts light bulbs on cell towers. He's crushing it. And then my sister, she's a teacher. She's just, and she works for me now, actually, with Mayday Executive. I, I, I pay her to do all the things I don't know how to do, and she's awesome. Trust lowers the cost of transactions. She's got my social, my credit cards, and everything. You know what? Take it. And uh, I just trust her. She pays her own. I don't even pay attention to it. She takes some money. She set up a website for me. I really haven't seen it. I don't deal mm-hmm. with it. So so you're, you're growing up in El Paso, and basically it's a bunch of, I've been to El Paso. It's yeah. like, like you said, it's a huge Mexican community. Yep. Are you getting into trouble? Are you staying out of trouble? What was keeping you from like getting in a lot of trouble? Yeah. So I got in, I should have been in more trouble. I used to go, I, I rode the rodeo for a little bit. I rode bulls walking around there. And then I also used to go, I'd go to Juarez, which is like the sister city of El Paso in yeah. Mexico. Cause you could drink down there. And then I'd actually box in smokers down there sometimes. And, uh, just did all sorts of stuff that my, family was pretty appalled at and uh that <laughs> was really hard to control because me and my dad kind of had it out at when i was about 16 17 and we really didn't talk much until i left again for the navy it was a it was a what? really tension relationship was he trying to like control you and you didn't like that he was super controlling but i'm also kind of and hard to control you work with me you know um, it's I, I had my own attitude and my dad he Trying to, he tried to control it by intimidation, but mm. I was a wrestler, football player. After about 16, you can't do that anymore. You know, you probably should have done it a different way. And we got frustrated with me, and you know, we didn't talk much. But you know, he, he's he's dead now. He died of cancer when I was when I was finishing buds. Mm. But he really turned it around. I have to say, mm-hmm. you know, his last two years, he saw the writing on the wall, and he, you know, swallowed some jagged pills, and you know really manned up and became a pretty awesome person. So I'm, I'm happy to say he, he figured it out. Yeah, you know, your kids are, if you try and, your kids are gonna rebel at right. some level. And the more you try and control them, the harder they're gonna rebel, yep. the worse it's gonna be. And by the way, like you just mentioned like, oh, you know, I'm hard to control, I, I work for you, but like, I never felt like that with you. I never felt like any. I didn't feel like you were controlling me. Exactly. You kind of like <laughs> gave me a direction and you'd look at me and like, hey, that's a bad call. And you explained to me why. And then I, I yeah. you didn't control me. I don't, yeah. I never felt like oh, Jocko's bullying me right now, you know? Yeah, Except so. Except on the mat. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good perspective to have, you know, especially from that kid, pers- when you're raising kids. Like if you're gonna try and get them to do exactly what it is you want them to do, yeah. there's a decent chance they're gonna 
kind of say, no, I'm not doing that. And they're probably going to go harder. And it's the same thing, not just with kids. It's the same thing like, you know, with, with your people that work. If you're in a leadership position, people that work for you, you can do the same thing. You can piss them off as well. And you'd be super controlling. And But you might think, well, but my way really is better. And great, your way really is better. Now you got a bunch of people that don't want to work for you. They're not going to give it the full effort. You're not going to see everything because you're down there trying to control everything that's going on. So just... Just don't be a micromanager as a parent or as a leader. That's my recommendation. Yeah, and then you also, I remember one time, I just so vivid. I, I came back from an op, and we were doing something, and you were like, where were you? And I couldn't find the spot we were on the map. Dude, I never felt so embarrassed <laughs> in my entire life. You're like, no, no, show me. I'm like, well, and we're over in Eastern. You're like, well, show me on the map because I want to hear it. And, and you knew, you knew that I didn't know where we were. And I was so embarrassed. And to this day, man, like we, we used to hike across the Grand Canyon. I had a map out every stop because it was so ingrained in me. I was like, I cannot believe how embarrassed I was. That, you know. Yeah, that knowing where you are. And that's something that when I was a young SEAL, uh, we were, when I was going through SEAL tactical training, which was what became SQT, yeah. and it just was with uh, like 20 guys, 20 new guys at SEAL Team 1, and we would go out on patrol and do every different position. And, you know, like one time I was rear security and then I was rear security for four hours. You have no idea where you are. And it's, it was so frustrating to me because when, when I was a communications guy, I would be close enough to like the officer and the point man to be like looking at their map, look in on them, you know, like see where we're at. But no one else in the platoon would know where we were. And that was before GPS. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? And you got to stop and mean, meaningfully take out your map and spread it out and put your red lens low to the ground and all those things. It's a pain. Yeah. So when I became an officer, I would always tr- do my absolute best to make sure everyone knew that where we were. Mm-hmm. And then also when I was an E5 and I was now teaching at SEAL Team 1, and I would have these officers that didn't know where they were. Oh, yeah. And I would be like, oh, you know, I'd, I'd break out my map and be like, hey, you know, where are you? If they didn't know, I would just like try and explain to them. If you don't know where you are, you can't call for fire support. You can't call for an extract. You can't do anything. You can't. You can't even really navigate to anywhere because you don't even know where you are. So yes, if I probably detected that you might not have known oh, yeah. exactly where you. Oh, were. I knew it too, and I was trying to get out of there. I was trying to get out of that office, and you weren't having it until I clearly explained that I couldn't tell you exactly where I was. Oh, uh, right on. Um, all right, so it seems like uh, life in El Paso was a good, looking like a little bit of a dead end, but you're like, cool, I'm going to join the military, no factor. Well, I didn't know what I was going to do, so I went. I took a test, and I, I did super well on the ASVAB. I'm not a super academic guy. I end up getting like a 99, what I think is the top, so you can do whatever you want. And so we used to do nuclear power. You get automatic E3, and you'll be E4 after nine months. I'm like, that sounds like you mm-hmm. know, I want to make some money. And, so I went into nuclear power. I did didn't you have real, any idea what was going on? No, I had no clue. I, I didn't that, even know why I joined the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> FYI, the nuclear power program in the, for an enlisted guy in the, military, in the Navy is a really hard program and it's a really hard job. It's a, a very technical, hard, like down in the freaking engine rooms on a nuclear aircraft carrier or a submarine nuclear sub like it is a freaking hard job and the there's no margin for error like it's a really tough training program and it's a tough job so they just signed you up like hey you'll make e3 and you're like yo sounds good i think they get bonus for like signing (laughs) nukes i think it's like hey we can get a nuke in here and so I got to boot camp. I did real well at boot camp. 
I got, you know, I was like the Navy League guy and I was the honor recruit in boot camp. And I'm like, oh, maybe this, but I just, I just didn't like it. I'm like, okay, so I get to, to nuclear power school. That was pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to study a lot. You know me. You guys would call me coconut. You know? <laughs> Not smart, hard. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, anyway. And so I get there, and I studied hard. I mean, it was hard, but I had like a 3-1 GPA. I worked real hard. And uh, I didn't like it, though. I could tell this isn't for me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and one day I was coming back. I finished nuclear power school, and then you go to this thing called prototype where you, like, practice running a nuclear reactor. And this lady's car broke down on the side of the road. Uh, I was coming back from Daytona Beach, and I pulled over. It's not that hard to fix. It was like the radiator gasket between the upper radiator hose and the intake manifold. Not a big deal. Scraped it. Bought a little cut of gasket at AutoZone, put it on there for her. She's like, hey, man, uh, can I give you some money for this? And she gave me 30 bucks for pizza, which I thought was fair, you know. <laughs> so I took it. It was the CEO's wife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that Thursday, we're, I'm, I'm like, I snuck my book in to the, to the assembly because no one was talking to me. I'm a stupid student. I'm just trying to study because I studied a lot. Uh, Wait, which assembly is this? It was like this. So they had an assembly on Thursdays when the CO would address everybody oh, okay, like, hey, it. students. It. Yep. It's like. Like an all-hands call. Yeah, an all-hands call, correct. Sure. And, uh, and they're like, we're going to call Jimmy May up here, or James May. Or Seaman, what was that? Seaman, Seaman May. Yeah. I'm like, and someone's like, hey, they're calling you. I'm like, there's no way they're calling me. They're like, no, they're calling you. I get up there, and the lady walks out, and uh, the captain, and I'm like, hey, I recognize you. And the captain's like, yeah, this is my wife. He's like, hey, thank you. And then he gave me a little letter of like nice city or something. I don't know what they call it. The opposite of a reprimand. It was like a good thing. But, but it's not quite big enough to like wear a ribbon with yeah. it. So whatever that middle ground is. And then he's like, if I can ever help you, let me know. I was like, well, I got a, I got an officer package in, but it's not going well because my SATs aren't that good. I'm like an 1100 guy. And they're like, he's like, give it to me. Boom. Turn around. Next thing you know, I'm going to Texas A&M. Dang, dude. Yeah. All right. So now it's going to Texas A&M, but you're going as a E3 or something? Well, I went in there and they wanted me to go into the Corps of Cadets. And, you know, I really had a problem with it because you show up and these guys are yelling at me about military stuff and none of them have been in the military. Mm-hmm. You know, they're a year ahead of you and they're supposed to be yelling. And I was over it. I'm like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. I was such a problem child to my upperclassmen because I just... I mean, I, I had a job because mm-hmm. I had a daughter in college and I had to make money. And I remember I came back from work one night and they had tore up my room. Oh, I was so mad. I'm like, who did this? And I'm not going to say their names because I still remember their names. And I, like, I went in the room and I, to- I pulled their racks over and tore up their room. I was so pissed. And then, uh, and then it was interesting. They weren't sure what to do with me. And I ended up eventually getting thrown out of the Corps of Cadets for something. And the Corps of Cadets at... at- there is like ROTC, basically. Is that well, what it is? It's a, if it, when I was there, there was like 2,000 people there, but only 10% are going to military. So a lot of them, it's almost like a military-esque kind of a uh, club okay. thing. But, uh, you know, they do a lot of leadership training and stuff, and it's got a really good history. I'm not going to, like, talk about it about the Corps of Cadets. It just, I just had a real hard time getting yelled at about military stuff, mm-hmm. the people that have been in the military. And I'm like, you know, actually, uh, Mike S. from the book was there at the same time I was. Oh, right on. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't even play the game at all. He, <laughs> like, he's, he's like, I've been a Marine. I'm, going, I'm moving <laughs> off campus. But he was smarter than I was. It took me a couple of years before they had enough of me and said, you're just going to go off campus and stop this. <laughs> okay. Right on. And then how are you doing in school? Uh, so I, I kind of th- – 
I didn't study, but I found ways around things. You know, like they, they just have a grade distribution they'd publish, which, okay, which teachers have the easiest classes? So I would like do that, find the easiest classes, I'd go to those. And then I would, you know, I was always, you know, dating like a, a girl that was in the some athletics. They had the old tests, which isn't legal because they have a test bank. And so basically if they have like 600 questions, they choose 50 of them for the test. If you study all the old questions, you're going to do fine on the test. So I always found ways around things. I never really tried to learn. I had to work a lot. I worked like 40 hours a week. And uh, What were you doing for a job? Uh, I was a bartender at a steakhouse. I would say it's like a, a, like an Outback Caliber, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it was called Oxford Street. So it was like an like English-themed. Mm-hmm. And it was good because I didn't have a lot of money for food. And so I used to have this rule when I was bussing tables, like, okay, if I'd kiss her, I'll eat after her. And so like, <laughs> that's how I got to. <laughs> Otherwise, I couldn't afford food. So we just. And you had, so you had a, what, when was your daughter? What year of college did you, did you my, have your daughter? My, it was, see, she was born in 99. I got there in 96. But I had to start working right away as, mm-hmm. as well. So she was born in 90, yeah, 99. So okay. it was like, this was my sophomore junior year and at what point did you hear about the seal teams did you already know about them did you learn about them in regular navy boot camp like what how'd that come <laughs> oh, about man, this is such a like un like an amazing story i was just kind of beside myself with everything i was just gr- i was kind of grumpy i'm like i went to the navy i didn't like it it seemed ridiculous to me I'm, college is ridiculous i don't go to class i have a 3.6 gpa this is ridiculous like what is there anything hard and my uncle he was uh, he'd been in the Navy. He was one of the guys that did a good job. He ended up being a warrant officer when he got out, I believe. And he's like, you know, the SEALs are hard, but you shouldn't do it. I'm like, why? He goes, you won't make it. I'm like, how come? He goes, nobody makes it. I'm like, hmm. That's it. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't even really think about what a SEAL did or anything. I just wanted to try to get through BUDS because I was looking for something hard. And it was hard. <laughs> so did <laughs> you start it. training hard? I did, yeah. There was a little group at Texas A&M. So I really, like I say, I, I struggled with the Corps Cadets thing. I didn't like wearing uniform in the morning. And there was a group there of guys who wanted to be SEALs, and they just got up earlier than everybody else, like 30 minutes earlier. You ran out. You had a crazy hard workout. And then you showed up to chow late, but you could actually eat. Because, like, if you're a regular cadet, every time your upperclassman would talk to you, you had to spit your food out, and you had to sit at attention, and you had, you know all those games mm-hmm. you talk about at OCS? Yep. It was kind of like that for mm-hmm. a meal. But you, could, you had to have the same – everyone had the same food, unified chow. And it was ridiculous. And when I went with these guys, I could sit down, and I could eat good, nutritious – I just destroyed my body. Now I can get good, nutritious food. And now I can't go drinking every night because I got a pretty hard workout to do the next day. So it really like put some discipline and structure. And a lot of those guys became SEALs. So mm-hmm. all those guys that you know were my upperclassmen, they were they didn't treat me. I was a freshman. They didn't treat me like a turd. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. show up, you do your stuff. And I really found my, my niche in that group. So it was good so, for me. So it's hard, very hard to get a billet for to go to buds as an officer. How the hell did you pull that off? So I, I didn't have the greatest grades. I, I mean, decent, but, you know, nowadays, especially all of our O's are like 4-0 Ivy League guys, you know. And uh, I went to this thing called Mini Buds back then. Mm-hmm. And Mini Buds was like a little taste of hell. You know, you do like two weeks of Buds, then you do two weeks with, with the team going around. Like some GO gets stuck with having to show some, you know, midshipmen around. And, uh, but the two weeks in Mini Buds, I did really well. And uh, they give the top three guys a contract. No and kidding. so out of Mini Buds, I ended up getting a contract along with, uh, I know the other two officers actually that did it and uh, they did pretty well on the teams too. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, that's how I got it. Yeah, that's hard. That's a hard thing to do. Hard thing to pull off. So you get done, you graduate from college and then it's going to Buds. How, how, how'd Buds work out for you? 
What so, year is it now? It's like 2001? 2001, yeah. I, I got the, I graduated August 19th in the summer. I took a bit of a victory lap. I was like on the five and a half year plan for college. And then uh, I get there in September and they're like, hey, we got a slot to get this next class. I'm like, yes, let's go. Let's jump into it. And so I jumped right into class 238. The only thing I failed the whole time was drownproofing. I'm pretty negatively buoyant. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it seems like uh, a lot of like the black guys had a hard time because they're pretty negative too. Mm-hmm. Well, I was in that ilk of those guys that had a hard time uh, being negative. You don't so, have enough combat swimmer muscle. That's what I need. Yeah, You're too lean. I get cold. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like like so, I did everything fine, but I couldn't float, and you had to mm-hmm. do a two minute float, and so I failed. And the instructor. I was sitting with the other nine guys that failed. And they're like, hey, if anyone could pass right now, this is your last chance to get back into buds. And the instructor, and I, so I'm like, I can do it. The only guy, no one else tried. So I jumped back in. The guy's like, hey, look, you're not going to float. And it was a black dude. And he's like, you need to swim in circles. Mm-hmm. That's all he told me. And then I got back and, and I did it. And I, you know, and drown proof is pretty tiring. You know, I did it back to back the second time. It takes about 25 minutes. It's know? even more tiring if you don't float. It is super tiring <laughs> if you don't float. Because, like, for me, I was floating. You know, yeah. like at that time yeah. when you were swimming in circles, I was just chilling. Yeah. I was just yeah. over here cruising, <laughs> swimming in circles, struggling. Yeah. So. Dude, there was a guy, there was a black guy in my class. He was from Africa, super good dude. You know, but he had like a cool African, like British type accent. Uh-huh. And, dude, he, when they would, pushed him into the water, like tied up for drown proofing. I'm not kidding, he just sank to the bottom like a like, <laughs> like a brick. Like a like a brick. Like yeah. just right to the bottom and just yeah. didn't move. Yeah. He just was down there. Yeah. And I was like, bro, it was a bar. He didn't he ended up not making it. Yeah. But he needed some uh like real help. Yeah. And some pizzas. You know, like because <laughs> he was shredded, bro. Like you know? Like he was just shredded. Yeah. Shredded. Yeah. Um so well, you, you, what was your first like impression of buds though? Like when you showed up there, man, I was just waiting for the thing I couldn't do. I'm like, there's going to be something here. that's going to be so crazy. I can't do it. And it just wasn't, it was, I mean, it's a lot, you know, you mm-hmm. run six miles a day just to eat back mm-hmm. and forth from like, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. That's not even on the schedule. That just happens. And then, you know, I, I was just pretty stoked to be in what I thought, you know, is probably arguably some of the world's mil- hardest military training. So I just was excited about that. Still hadn't thought about what happens after. And of course, I'm, I'm in first phase when 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the instructors tried to put some levity on that for us. And I was like, okay, things are about to change. Mm-hmm. What phase were you in? First phase when? First September? phase, we were about to do a four mile time run and we were eating breakfast because we had like the morning PT. And I was just, you know, as you should, officers eat last. So I get in and the class is still giant. You know, the class starts off with like, ours was 155. <laughs> we had 22 originals finish, which actually is not too bad. And, uh, you know, there's just all these people and I'm just trying to wolf down whatever food I can get because I'm starving, you know, and buds, you just, you, you, if you're not running, you're shivering or you're carrying something heavy. That's pretty much what buds is for six months. And so, you know, I got the metabolism of hummingbird anyway. So I'm like, you're just trying to keep stuff. What did me. you weigh when you checked into buds? 165. Okay. Yeah. What do you know? What are you walking around to right now? 175. Check. Yeah, the, so I've lost a little bit. We'll talk about it later, I'm sure, but I got my hips replaced. And yeah. I'm still on the, the recovery. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you remember about, like, guys that made it versus guys that didn't? I was shocked at who didn't. There were some badass dudes that I was like, oh, dude. Yeah. And then when they quit, a bunch of people will quit with them because yeah. they're like, I don't know if they felt vindicated, like, okay, I made it as long as that guy did, so maybe it's okay. <laughs> Or I don't, I don't know, but like you would see like a, a, a big tough dude quit and like three dudes would quit with him. Yeah. And I, I remember during hell week, everyone was quitting and 
it just sounded like they were ringing the bell. I thought the instructors were messing with me because the ring, the bell's just ringing continuously, you know. And then I remember I'm like, "What happened to all the boat crews?" And Bro, it's like, mayhem. There's like three or four of them left, you know. So I used to be the XO at Buds. It's actually super scripted. So I mean, down to every minute, it feels like mayhem yeah, when yeah. you're in it. But you know, when you watch it, you're like, "Dang, this is a, it's super tight." Yeah. So you're going through, and it seems like mayhem because you're a student when you're going through it. I know. For I never was an instructor at Buds. I don't regret it or anything, but I wish I would have worked a couple hell weeks or something just to like see behind the, the like behind the scenes of what was going down. Yeah, it's it's a lot, and we we did we made some major changes to the way we you know when I was XO there we ended up having someone kill themselves, and we we stood up this whole new thing called the A truck, which is really interesting. I don't mm-hmm. know if I want to jump ahead into that. Yeah, we'll, do, we'll we'll get there on that. <laughs> Let's uh, stick with where you're going. So. No issues other than drown proofing. First phase, Hell Week, no factor. No, I, I did pretty well in that. What, um, what time of year did you go through Hell Week? Uh, it was uh, October, November. How was your How was your chilly, chilly, dude? It was so cold. We had to, We had to carry around the stupid pumpkin all the time, and the instructors would try to break it, and they're like, "You better let the instructor break your pumpkin." And so, like on top of that, with this stupid pumpkin, I remember I, Charlie was his name. I still remember that stupid pumpkin's name, and uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't. Hell Week sucked, but it was long. But mm. I don't remember, like ever. Everyone's like, everyone thinks about quitting. Like I didn't really. Yeah. I was like, hmm, this is this is hard. There's gonna be something I can't do, and there just wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know. So you were in pretty good shape when you showed up there. I was. I was ready for buds. Yeah, I think sure. I could say that for sure. And Did you get rolled for anything? No. The only thing I felt was that one that one drown proofing thing. And Did back you, then they didn't roll. You Did didn't you uh, get? How about pool comp? Did you pass pool comp first time? Yeah, I think I was first time every time on every one except I didn't get – you get a first time every time if you yeah. pass. They're called OCs, open circuits, and basically one through eight. And I think one of them I failed, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a big deal, but, like, there's mm-hmm. a, different, a different knot they tie every time, and you got to figure out how to get it. And I, I remember one of the most elate – like, elations I felt my entire life was when they tie the one where you have – they tie a knot in, like, your, ex, your ex, uh, exhalation hose – and so you can still get air, but it feels like you can't because it's full of water and you have to drink the water out. Yeah. And you're like, I'm drinking. I'm like, please let there be air in here. Come on, come on. Like, I'm, I'm drinking. I'm, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh. Like I'm so fired up. I was like, man, I, I can't smile right now because I was, but I was so happy that there was some air behind there. Yeah. That's a uh, pool comp is a gnarly evolution. But yeah. you passed it first time. That's pretty impressive. Um, I, I don't know. I wasn't super impressive. I was okay. I, I failed that one thing, but everything else, you know. Yeah. So, so you end up getting, so that's it. You graduate and then it yeah. rolls into SQT. Yeah. I went to, so we were the first SQT class. And back then they were like, you, you, this is the first time you're going to get your trident after, right when you go to a team. And oh. so now you were already, you're the old guard of the team yeah. and you're like, who are these, you know, they, they had the bird cage where you yeah. had to put your trident in it and they spray painted them blue to make them a nerd. And, you know, team two is a little old school about things. So we'll leave it at that. And uh, they weren't super happy of us guys showing up there with a the bird on our chest. Oh, you yeah, know? that must not. What year was that? That was 02. Yeah. yeah I 02. left Team 2 in 2000. Okay. So, yeah, I imagine probably my boys. Lucky that I missed you. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine my boys definitely <laughs> probably kept it on lock over there at ST2. Yeah. Yeah. And so you show up there. And so that means you've already been through SQT. Did you, what was your major like lessons learned during SQT? Uh, SQT actually was pretty professional. I, even back then, like they didn't mess with us too much. They were, I thought we're still, I'm still in buds mode. Mm -hmm. And just the fact that they're talking to me like a human, they're trying to teach you actually things. And I remember at the backside, 
you really thought you knew what you had. Like, oh, I've been to a lot of schools. I'm a, I'm a dive supervisor, and you know, I've been you know, assaults and stuff. And then you get to the team, and you realize like you just barely know anything. Like, yeah. I get in the house, they're all running, and I'm you know walking the slow mo walk that we were doing before this. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's, yeah. So you get to, do you get put right into a platoon? Yeah, right into a platoon. Um, and it was so it was really it was actually cool for us. We deployed three months early, and that first deployment was. Paycom, CENTCOM, and UCOM. So I did three months in Paycom because they ripped a Team 1 team out to go over to Afghanistan. And then I went to UCOM for three months. And then we went over and we did what turned out to not be a super fun mission, uh, PSD, Personal uh-huh. Security Detachment, yeah. where we were protecting Barham Saleh, who was the Deputy Prime Minister of Iraq. He was a good dude, man. He was a Kurd. You know, I don't know how you feel about things, but the Kurds are pretty, yeah, the, a pretty the good. Kurds, the Kurds are, are definitely the fighters. Yeah. For sure. Oh yeah, I've done a lot of work with the Pesh over there, and they're they're, they're good dudes. I, I I feel bad for how it went down. I was over there in 2017 when they tried to declare independence, and you know, I guess I can talk about how I feel about it now. But I was I was upset uh, that we didn't back them more than we could have. Wait, this is your first platoon. Is there one assistant platoon commander, or were there two of you guys? No, I was commander? I was the third O, the which third was o, the okay, best yeah. deal of all time. They got rid of it, which basically I was a sixty gunner. I carried mm-hmm. a sixty as an officer. You know, people are like well, officers should. So I carried I carried the sixty, and then I did all the travel claims and the paperwork. That was kind of <laughs> what I did. So like you know, I got to get on the pig as, and uh, that's a cool thing when you're a young dude. You know what I mean? You don't mind carrying you know fifty five pounds in just weapon and ammo. Yeah. You know what I mean, that's the shit. Yeah, yeah. let's go yeah. and. That's a pretty awesome deployment, though. So you went Paycom, yep, and then to where? Ucom, and so, then to Ucom, yep, over in Europe. Yep. So you did some exercises in Paycom. Um, you done Paycom? Yeah, we did some with India. We did some stuff with them. We did some stuff with the Thai SEALs and uh, the Indians. I learned a lot over there. You know, the Indians don't put the same premium on life as we do. Mm-hmm. And I remember that they wanted to do. They wanted to like go right to VBSS, visit board search and seizure, which basically like climbing up the side of a boat from like another boat and like assaulting it. And they didn't. They weren't worried about the helicopter piece because we normally do it with two, with helicopters, the half helo assault force and the BAF, the boat assault force. But they just want to do the boat side. But you know, you got a you got this tiny little ladder that's wrapped around a Gatorade bottle, and you like hook this thing up, and you got to climb up while the boat's moving. And you need to be able to do a couple pull-ups, you know, <laughs> because you got you're wearing you're wearing probably about eighty pounds worth of kit. I think that's a because you're kind of light when you're yeah, going VBSS, yeah, so eighty yeah. pounds is about what you're wearing. And you peel off that ladder. Not only are you going to go in the drink, but you could hit someone on the way down, like our good friend Seth Stone. That's someone yeah. on his head, remember? Yeah. And broke his neck. So it's a pretty dangerous thing. And I ended up telling him, I'm like, hey man, we can't do this with your group right now. Like we are just going to do this. And the guy, um, he's like, why not? I'm like, well, because. Uh, it's too dangerous and it's not worth you losing the guy. And he, he, the guy tells me, this training is worth more than one or two of my guys. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, listen, man, that's not the way we roll. So we can't do it. And they were pretty upset. I didn't get a good mark from them, but I didn't want to do it. So. Yeah. And then UCOM? UCOM, uh, we just did a bunch of like, uh, basically PSD training, learning how to like oh, protect right, the you going Because we actually didn't do any PSD during the workup. And now we're going to be protecting, you know, head of state. We, did some we protected some other people who were over there it's not a fun mission but you get cool pictures like it is a fun mission because mm. lots of time you're sitting in the green room waiting for them and all of a sudden like oh they're they're done or they're meeting around long and everyone gets up and leaves their whatever they're doing and jumps into the cars and gets ready mm. so it wasn't fun but uh, it looks like it was fun makes for some cool pictures 
Yeah, my mom actually saw me. She saw a picture of me on like Fox News or something. She said, Dad, are you in Iraq? Because I told her I was in Europe. And she's like, are you in Iraq? I think I saw you. I'm like, yeah. Mom. Mom's got some Don't good dime eyes me out, tracking Mom. you. And then, so you get done with that deployment. And what was your big lessons learned from that deployment? Um, on that deployment, man, I was a new guy. I wish I could say that I had some kind of big profound thing. But I really was just, it was so many different things. And mm-hmm. I, would, I was often the advon. And so, you know. I didn't have any super illustrious things to say about that deployment. I mean, I learned a lot on your first deployment, but I can't even put mm-hmm. it into a encapsulated thing. Yeah, right now. it's I, I look at it sort of similar to having kids. Your first kid, you just know nothing, and you're just like hanging on and like trying to. Yeah, and you also are focused on some dumb stuff, and like you're. I remember, you know, my wife was cleaning, like boiling every. Uh, bottle oh, yeah. cap or whatever yeah. like oh we gotta yeah. this needs to be boiled and and then by the time we had our fourth kid yeah. like kids are just eating mud just doesn't care but, yeah. but you learn so much yeah. and that's it actually almost equates almost perfectly to like what you feel like in your first platoon where you're like oh I like and then your second second platoon you're like okay I, I kind of understand it but third thing third platoon you're like okay I got this fourth platoon you're like oh I six oh. fifth platoon sixth platoon you're just yeah. like you know what to do man yeah so um so what what happens when you get done with that? And you all you had another kid in I did while yeah. you were at Team Two, right? Yeah, I did. I so had, did you get married? And now yeah, you, well, yeah, we got married right after, right during college before I left, and then uh, he was born. He was born in May, so I I came I came back early from deployment, two weeks early, so I could go and, and see him be born. Right on. Yeah. And then what's your next? So next up on the so on the on the gauntlet of NSW. Every junior officer is trying to like get another platoon. That's that's the what that's the golden thing you want to do. And so we were all trying to figure out how we could do it because they want to like send you off to do this associated tour. And they had me take this test, and turns out I can learn languages. So they're like, hey, you're going to go learn Arabic. So I thought I could just slow roll this thing until eventually you know someone gets fired or something, and then now I'm at the team because. That seemed like a good call, like someone's going to get hurt or fired or something. So, but it never happened. So I went off to learn Arabic, and it was I couldn't believe I was going to miss the whole war. I'm like, I'm going to miss all I did in this whole war was protect the dude, and now I'm going to be in Arabic school. It's to be done by the time I get back. So I mean, I was just super mad, studied super hard, and I ended up completing a 16 month course in 13 months. Fought a lot. I had a really good uh, two different jujitsu schools. I trained mm-hmm. at up there. Great partner named uh, Keith Paragon. I train with him all the time. He lives up in Del Mar now. He's broken too now, so we can't train. But we talk about how awesome we used to be to each other. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I would be. I have to say it because he's going to love this. But you know, we actually had a tournament and we were in the finals together. And um, when I tell the story, I talk about how bad I beat him. But I, it was a zero to zero, and they gave me the nod. Uh, and okay, to this yeah, day, yeah. I have it over him. So it's <laughs> <laughs> a good thing to say. And, uh, and and so I left there, and they're like, "Hey, you're going to go over, uh, over and join Team Three on deployment." I'm like, "Cool." I landed there, and they're like, "Well, let's push him out to Al Station." August second, I ended up with you. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I don't know if you remember the Arabic test you gave me. I do remember the other <laughs> test I gave you. Yeah, because what was it? Seth had called over and said he needed um, an, he needed another, another terp. Well, we had 18 terp- interpreters. Two would go outside the wire. One got shot. So you had two platoons. You need an yep. interpreter. So he's like, I need a terp. And I'm, and I, you didn't even ask me. I was like, hey, man, I can I can hobble. You want me to do it? And, and uh, do you want me to tell you? Let's have you tell the story. No, go hear, ahead. I want to hear what you have hear, to say. Let's hear your, your memory of it first. <laughs> okay. Oh, you get the last word? I see how it did. So I'm like, hey, just let's just uh, let's practice. And there was that. We had Moose there. Was mm-hmm. that He was a good terp. He was a good yep, dude. Great. And uh, he, uh, 
I was like, okay, you said, we'll say some words to him. So I started talking and then we're talking back and forth. I'm like, hey, you don't know what we're saying. Why don't you say the words and I'll translate them and you can see how we do. And you're like, okay. So you're like, hey, tell those guys to get down at the end of the street. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking. And then in the middle of it, you're like, wait, they're shooting. Get them off the roof. Tell them who's going now. And I'm like, <laughs> like I'm choking, you know, because you're like in my face. You totally and locked and, up. And, and, and you did. I locked up. And, and, I'll, and then uh, and you look at me and you were like, fail. <laughs> so I turned to walk away. And as I walk away, you're like, your flight leaves at one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's similar to how I remember it. Yeah, so we had you, me, and Moose, and we needed a terp, and somehow you got to me and said, like, hey, you know, uh, I, I speak Arabic. Like, that's where I just came from DLI. And I was like, okay, well, how well do you speak it? And you're like, well, I just graduated with a whatever. What would you, two plus, two plus, two or whatever plus, thing you plus. had. Yeah, yeah. And you were super impressed, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I said, you know, tell him, and I was all mellow, like, tell him, hey, we need people to move down to the west side of that building. And you're like, Durka, 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 Durka. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I look at Moose and I go, did he say it? And he's like, yeah, he said it. And I said, okay, now tell him this. And he tell him to push up one more building. And you're like, Durka, 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 Durka. And he's like, yep, that's what he said. And I said, tell him she's fired. Tell him to get off that building now. And you completely, <laughs> you completely <laughs> locked up, bro. You just were, you were just like, yo, I, am, it was yeah, I, was, I didn't even know you. I'm yeah. like, who is this guy <laughs> screaming at me? I, I met you for like five minutes. And, and you know, that was the day Mark Lee was killed. Yeah. So it was a weird kind yeah, of somber it was freaking thing. Somber, and, man. man. When you jumped on me like that, I was like, ah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like you could speak it well enough. And guess what? You were better than what we had, which was nothing. Yeah, so, low, low bar. Yeah, so like, go grab your shit. I remember saying, "Go grab your shit." Flight leaves in an hour, or whatever it was. So yeah. that was uh, that was how it all kicked off. Um, so then what? So you went, you went over with Stoner. You went over to to Corregidor, Corregidor yep. to the east side of Ramadi. Yep. You you ran out on some ops over there for a bit. Yep. And then you pulled me back for something. I can't yep. remember what. I think we had like a reservist, good dude, and you wanted me to bump him out, let him go get on some ops. Yeah. And so. But I bounced back and forth between Corregidor and actually you guys dealt me out to a bunch of different teams. Like I, on that one uh, deployment, I did ops with team two, four, five, and eight. Because sometimes they'd be like, hey, we don't have a Terp. And you'd be like, hey, I got one for you. He's, I'll, I'll deal him to you. So like I got a lot of ops in. Uh, and when you guys were home, I stayed after that too. So I got, yeah. I got, I got to work with a lot of different teams. Yeah, that was a wild time. <laughs> that was a wild time for you to show up for sure. Yeah, not only showing up like like look, you showed up the day Mark Lee died. Yep. General Brown visited that day. So like the I don't know if you you might have even come on the same bird. I don't no, know. No, no. I, I had to I drove you over there in a Humvee and I didn't know how to drive a Humvee because you're like, "Hey." And I was like, "Oh my god." cuz back then they didn't teach us in the workup. And so like they're like, hey, you gotta take Jock. So I had went around trying to find Humvee keys because I'm like, I gotta make sure, because I, I gotta be ready, make sure I had gas in it. But I couldn't find the keys. I'm like freaking out. So finally, I I asked somebody like, hey, bro, where are the keys? And they're like, you idiot. <laughs> so, so you did you didn't know about that part, but like you know, but I made sure we had all the gas. He's like, you're just going across stream. Like I don't care. Make sure the gas is full. Make sure everything. You know, I clean the Humvee. Make sure it's good. And, and, so we uh, picked. So you and I picked up General Brown. I, I drove you over there, and then I think you rode with somebody else. I don't mm -hmm. think that I. Uh, I don't think that I stayed when did we? Because we trained jujitsu too. You threatened me. I didn't threaten you. I knew you were going to. You know what? I knew this was going to come up. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what did, that happened almost immediately too, right? No. Well, you, you were like called me in your office. You're like, hey, so what's your deal? I'm like, I don't know what's your deal. What do you mean? And you're like, yeah, no, 
sports, this, and we get into it. And eventually you're like, you know, oh, you do jujitsu. I'm like, yeah, I've been training for a couple of years. I'm a blue belt. And you're like, oh, so what's like your move? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, no, you got something you're good at. I'm like, well, well, I guess when we train, you'll find out. That's what I said. <laughs> and now he's like, oh, oh, <laughs> let's go. You know what's funny? You told me that exact that, story. No, that's exactly Is what that it right? was. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, yeah. That, yeah. I, I heard another version of it that was like a little bit like not quite. Because let's face it. Look, I don't know how you actually said it. We could probably discuss how you act. <laughs> but when someone says the words, yeah. Well, when we roll, you'll find out. Yeah. Let's face it. That's the kind of thing, you know, like, oh, okay, we'll see what's up. We'll see. And yeah. so, uh, yeah. But the, in my mind, this is, the, this is the, the, the way I was thinking in my mind was, look, I've been training with, like, all the guys that are there. None of them are good at jujitsu. So yeah. you show up, and I'm kind of stoked. I'm kind of thinking, like. I didn't feel that. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like, dude, like maybe you got some good moves. Like, hey, I'm good at crucifix. I'm good at Camaro. What are you good at? Like, it'll be good to like learn whatever you know. And obviously, I didn't give you that vibe because you're just like, well, you'll find out. Mm. And then I think I was like, okay, cool. Go grab your gear. We'll go train. <laughs> <That's right>. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, we're going to train right dude, now. You submitted me with this thing where you put your head under my. I called it the fish. I felt like I was a fish. Like you put your head under my chin and like crushing my back and. Because I did great against the other guys, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was I was doing pretty good against them, and then yeah. and then when you showed up, eh, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway. you're 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 a like a solid jujitsu player, you know what I mean? And you wrestled, but I mean, that, even at that time, I was like, I was good, you know. I was, yeah, you I, was, were I mean, I was, a, I was a black yeah. belt in jujitsu. Yeah, so yeah, was, yeah. And you trained with Dean. Yeah, yeah. It was a level that I was not did not know existed. I trained on the East Coast. Yeah, there's a difference between East and West Coast jujitsu. The jujitsu here is insane. When I traveled. <laughs> When I traveled, you know, I, I, I would travel and I would do, I'm, I was only a brown belt, you know, but like I trained at different schools and I, I would, I call it catch and release. I wouldn't, would never submit the instructor, never, but like I'd catch it, I'd let go. And they, they knew, they'd be like, mm -hmm. and they'd be like, okay. Bro, I just remember this. So we had this like tent, you know, like a GP medium tent and I went, well, I, you know, yeah. brought mats on deployment. That's and, where. But they weren't mats. They were like those like folding oh, yeah. cheap things with like the vinyl top. Yeah. They were, yeah. yeah. But I remember you were like after we rolled, you were not. You were like distraught. You I was were super like, distraught. You were distraught. Like, damn, <laughs> what just happened? Yeah, I wasn't sure because I've had not been manhandled like that. And like, I've, I rolled with you know, what I thought was some high level guys, and I was like, this is stupid. Yeah, yeah it was stupid. You, you were like, you like, dude, you're like, that's 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 never really happened to me. Before. You know, and I was just like, that's funny. what year was this? Two thousand two. No, this is 06. Oh, sorry, this 06. 06. Yeah, yeah, yeah. deployment in 06. Yeah, 06. Yeah. 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 So you're nodding your head echo because you know, like I, that in comparison of the rest of the world at that time, I was really good. If you compare me to the rest of the world right now, like the rest of the world is better now because like the whole world is better at jujitsu now. Everyone is yeah, better yeah. at jujitsu now yeah. because everyone's better because there's that much more knowledge and learning going on. Yeah. But at that time. In the whole world, I was better than I am in the whole world right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? So for you to. That have, was a level I had was not right, ready you, for. You hadn't been there yet. Yeah. And like I was there all the time because I'm training with Dean and yeah. like I'm training with world champs out here yeah. all, all the time. Yeah. So yeah, that was. You want to hear the ending part of the story, how he told it to me? Yeah. Because he told me that story and then he had his like additional input okay. like as to tell me. So he said that exact same story. So funny how you use the exact words. Like, oh, so what are, what are your moves? You know, whatever. Yeah. So same story. <laughs> 
And then um, when he got to the part when he said, um, when you said, oh, you, you know, we'll find out on the mats or whatever. And he added... It didn't matter because I was just going to smash from the top. <laughs> that's what he said. Wait, how did I say it? I'm just going to smash from the top. Like that's what I said to you or what I to said me. to him? To me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like kind of like the story was done and then you were telling me, but it didn't matter because I was just oh, going to yeah. smash from the top. I remember that yeah. story. Yeah, but, but once you started to smash from the top, it wasn't a waste of your time. So you went to the bottom because <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, he's going to give me some top. Well, I'll show him. It, it interestingly, th- that's where I got the term smash from the top. Top okay. from you telling that story damn, about dude. Jimmy. Yeah, damn, smash. Dude, I was so stoked to have somebody that knew like jujitsu to train with. I know that might it might not have come off that way. You didn't feel that way, yeah, yeah. You <laughs> also introduced me to the twenty squat workout. If you remember that, oh, well. yeah. <laughs> bro, we had that. Hell yeah, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'm just up here to work out. You're like, hey, come here. <laughs> <laughs> What's a weight you can do ten reps with? I was like, uh, two twenty five. I think. Like, okay, do it. So I go, except this, except do 20. Like, <laughs> okay. So I did it and I put it up and you're like, that was too easy. You're holding back. He's like, take a break, put some more weight, do it again. So then I did with 245 and, and you were like, can you do it? I'm like, I can't do it again. I'm fired up. Like imagine, you know, when you're in the teams and you get like a team guy that's like a young guy. I mean, you're a young guy to me then, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm like 35 years old. You know, I've been in the teams for a long time and I'm always stoked to have somebody that's fired up to like train and lift and like, it's awesome to me. Like That's not how I felt, I have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like you were messing yeah. with me. I'm all, you'd ask me a question, I'd be like, oh, God, please, I hope I know this answer. <laughs> I just, I just saw another young officer that had joined us on deployment who's now a captain. Yeah, and I know what you're talking about. Remember, yeah. I put him in an armbar, and it like, and he he's like, "No, I'm good." And I cracked it, and you were like, "Bro," I was like, "Oh shit, sorry." But I know you're talking he about. He had he's said a to me dude. something like, "You know, hey sir, do you do you have any recommendations? My my shoulders kind of injured. Do you have any recommendations?" And I was like, "Yeah, muscle ups," because I had yeah. rings mounted. I, I was remember like, I was that. Like, yeah, yeah, do muscle ups. Do lots of muscle ups. Like just the worst, the worst advice. Yes. <laughs> oh, there you go. Good times. But what I was saying is, it's crazy. So you arrived there. Mark had just been killed. Like it's like you said, somber. And yet at the same time, we have the the SOCOM commander coming in, General Brown. Uh, and, and you know, this was, we, we were in so much sustained combat that yeah, it wasn't like, night. it wasn't like, oh my gosh, someone got shot. It was like, yeah, okay. But well, we, like, we had 32 dudes, 16 Purple Hearts, three killed, is that right? I think that's roughly what it was. It's something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a lot. And yeah, for you to show up there, that, that definitely must have been. Did you hear about what was going on prior to arriving? No, I was a DLI. Oh, no one knows anything. anything. Yeah. The, the, the regular Navy, for all intents and purposes, didn't know much about the war going on mm-hmm. as far as I know. I know. They had mm-hmm. individual augmentees that did stuff over there, but I think most of them ended up at a big base somewhere, which is like a big piece of America kind of, right? Like, oh, you're in Iraq, or you're at Bagram Airfield, and they're salsa night, and, yep. you know, yeah, one thing, one thing that I didn't really connect with until we got home was the guys, they were reading our opsums, right? Like, at oh. trade at. They were I was reading, in Arabic school. They were reading the opsums in the morning, like meeting. Like oh. this is what the guys at, at Tasky and Bruiser did Makes last sense. night. Like, and so everybody, well, at least like the West Coast guys that were mm. in Trade Ed and talking to the, because we were in Trade Ed, then you're telling 
the platoon that you're training, you know, so that the, everyone kind of knew what was going on. So you were just coming in out from nowhere. I had no clue. That's freaking yeah, crazy. I had no clue. Yeah, it was, it was time to learn fast. And, and I remember the guys were moving so much faster than I was. I really thought that way because mm-hmm. well, we came up and like I've, you know, I had my H gear wasn't set up like you guys was because I had it on my hips and it needs to be on your chest because mm-hmm. we're riding in vehicles all the time. And I, I just wasn't ready. And somewhere a couple weeks into it, I stopped noticing that everyone's moving faster than me. Yeah, you got kind of caught up. Until I stayed at the next group and the Team 5 guys came in and they were moving slow. Yeah. And I was like, ooh. It was, it was a weird thing to, yep. to realize like, hey, the speed of combat takes a little bit of ramp up. Yep. And you know, you know when, when the guys get hurt, the beginning of the deployment and the end of deployment. Yeah. That's it. I mean, that's the preponderance of it because guys come in and they're, they're ramping up. And then the end of deployment, they get a little complacent mm-hmm. maybe or they're thinking about home. They're not fully dialed in. It's always those times, and I think it, a lot of that happened. And we got we had a lot of gunfights, so it happened sprinkled throughout. But mm-hmm. in my experience, it's been the beginning and the end. What did what did you say? So you went over to Corregidor, and you meet with Stoner. What's what? What, what are you Stoner. thinking when you're meeting okay, Stoner? Stoner? People don't know Stoner. <laughs> I walk up, and Stoner doesn't say hi or anything, you know, because I got my bags and my kit, and I'm like, hey, uh, I'm Jimmy May, and we're living in this bombed-out thing we called Full Metal Jacket. Basically, like, blow a building up, that's where we're living in. Like, some of the walls were down. I remember the Army guys had a cat, and, like, the cat liked me, so they thought I stole their cat, but it was nice because the cat ate the mice, and it would sleep with me, and, and they'd be, Psh, that guy, those seals stole our cat. And I'm like, I didn't steal them, the cat. Anyway, but so we're living in this. It was, you had to wear body armor because we got mortared daily they're just dropping mortars in there and especially during sandstorm because like our counterattack to mortars was to get some helicopters up or like or get some isr which is intelligence surveillance reconnaissance so like some kind of asset overhead that can like drop on the guys dropping on us but during sandstorms didn't work so every sandstorm you know you're getting mortared and we got mortared all the time so you had to wear body armor everywhere so i come walking up and stoner is like i'm like hey uh i'm jimmy and he's like Hey, here we were Army ACUs. You got to go in there. There's be a set, and we shave our head. Gave me a clippers. I was like, <laughs> okay. I'll. I shaved my head and put on my Army ACUs, and then I and then I walked into the thing, and uh, Mike S was working in there, and they got me to work. That was that yeah. was my end doc. Sorry, didn't have a lot to say other than that. But yeah. I remember he kind of gave you know that that head that head shake like. After I shaved my head, and he's just like, mm. yeah, like it was good. Yeah. Uh, so you end up, like you said, you're doing ops all over the place. Um, and how much Arabic are you speaking? A lot. So I spoke because we have a partner force, and if you have a bunch of guys with automatic weapons who are kind of on your team, you should be able to know what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And so I was pretty valuable for that. And it's also nice when you have a team guy because if you know, you're gonna set the guys up downstairs and you have a terp, you gotta spend another team guy mm-hmm. down there to walk around with the terp. And do you trust that interpreter? I don't know. Mm-hmm. What about those conversations going on around you? Do you know what's happening? So I had like widely, a wider net of situational awareness than what you would have if you didn't have a team guy down there. Cause mm-hmm. I can hear him talking about us and you know, the same thing with the prisoners talking, you know, I did a lot of interrogations and I would use an interpreter for the interrogation, uh, the battlefield interrogation. Uh, but they don't know that I understand what's, what's going on. And it was a super powerful thing, you know, yeah. them, to figure out what exactly they were saying. Yeah. I remember you told me too, I had a, I had written an email to the Commodore. I still have it. <laughs> I got to get a copy I gave you of a copy of it. I gave you a copy. It was hanging in my cage. I gave you a, I told you about it and I made you a copy and I gave it to you. And it was, it was about, it was about, uh, <laughs> hey, 
Because at the time, they were trying to get SEALs through training. Is it that one? Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. trying to get more SEALs through, and they're like, you got to get more numbers, but you can't. Like, if, if Echo, if I had you sit in that chair for five and a half days, it would suck, dude. Like, your feet would be swollen. Now, add on 200 miles of running and carrying a boat and a, and a log and being cold and wet. Mm-hmm. Add all that on there. You know, and so we just, no matter how you water it down, we can't get more guys through. And then you came up over the top with like, don't make it easier, make it harder. He's like, he's like we need more. He goes, we need a bigger tail, not more teeth. Yeah. He was like, so, so give, don't have seals do non-seal jobs. And man, I've been spouting that yeah. for the rest of my career. Like, you know what, why do I got you counting comms? Why do I got you fixing guns? Let's have you assault and do what you need to do. Because at a Fortune 500 company, that top engineer you're paying, he ain't sweeping the ground. Right. He's not doing stuff he's not paid to do. I'm like, have these seals, focus on that, and then I'll add the tail on the back. So I thought that was pretty wise, and I hung it up, but I don't know. Yeah, the, so the Commodore was like a friend of mine and a great guy, and uh, he had sent out a, like kind of an all-hands like or whatever leadership email, like, hey, we're looking at you know ways that we can grow the force and blah, 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 and I just responded all-hands because I also – you know, it was kind of halfway through deployment and just that's the that was the truth. Like you could see that the SEALs needed to be freaking awesome guys. Like they yeah. needed to be tough. Like everything you just said, like, oh, show up here, put your gear on and go out and get in gunfights. That's what's going to happen for the next, you know, however yeah. long you're here for. And you're not going to have good chow. Yep. It's going to fall from the sky. Yep. You know, it, it, it's like that was that was the time I said to myself, oh, this is what all that training that we go through. This is why, mm-hmm. because someone's got like you just said, like who's going to be able to pick someone up and carry them out uh, when they get shot? Who's going to run out into gunfire and carry someone out when they get shot? Who's going to stay up for forty-eight hours to make sure that we're ready to go? Do like it is. It is what it is for a reason. And all the time, like like when I got sleep, it's on the way to the op. Yep. Like if, if I had a calm guy and like, you know, we set up our pro words so, so you know where we're at. And I'm like, hey, bro, I just need to sleep for like 40 minutes. So on the on the bird, if my calm guy is good and lots of times I'm working till the last minute, the guys would throw my stuff in the truck, you know, and, and I'm so I'm trying to line up the assets like you got to go hurry. So I run in, I jump in there and they're briefing me on a lot of things that you might think I'm running. But, you know. These guys set me up. I trust them. I know I got a good point, man. I know I got a good chief. And they're squaring me away on the way because I got to set up all of our, like, permissions, you know, through the through the different layers of command and the battle space owners and everything. So, yeah. Yeah, the the, the training is how it is. So, yeah, when the, when the Commodore reached out to all hands, like, hey, you know, what can we do to, to get more people through? It's like, no, give us more. We don't care. We don't need more SEALs. We need more support people yeah, that man. can make this stuff happen. 100%. And make sure that we're getting the best freaking hardest Guys, for lack of a better word, look smart and cable and all this other stuff. You need f- dudes that are just fucking hard, yeah. like mentally hard dudes. Yeah. And Buds produces that for the most part. No, it does. It does. Yeah. Uh, so you're doing ops all over the place. Um, we're getting towards the end of our deployment, and and, and that's when. Uh, you know, September 29th, you were you were actually with Stoner's Element, which was like a couple blocks away. Yeah, we were probably about 350 yards away. So, like, the, the, the plan is to have two mutually supporting sniper overwatch positions. And mutually supporting means that we can look around there to make sure no one sneaks around there, around their base of their house. And we they can do the same for us. But it was really hard because we had to be on the edge of what was called L-Block at the time. And they had some Army guys. Dude, some 18-year-old Army dudes 
running concertina wire across Route Farouk in the middle of the day, <laughs> I'm like, I mean, that's crazy. Because mm-hmm. we insert at night, no one attacks us at night, but it was crazy that those guys were doing that. I'm like, I don't know what you're paying these guys, but dang, that's, that's like some World War II jump out of the trench. I mean, I don't know. That's a hard, that's a hard bar to get mm-hmm. to, but I did not think they were going to make it. And so we were up on top of these roofs. We're supposed to shoot the guys from this one angle, and there was a bad mosque. And uh, I say a bad mosque because I can understand what they're saying over the speakers. Mm-hmm. And so when they say things like, hey, come give blood in Arabic, that means come in here. They arm up, they get a plan, and then, and then or they, they get their weapons stowed, and they leave with the plan, they grab their weapons, and then they go. So I know this is happening. I can hear it over the loudspeakers. And so I'm like, hey, guys, get ready. You know, it's getting ready to go. And sure enough, we'd been in a pretty good fight all day long. Uh, down on their end, they'd killed two. We'd killed one. I think our guy was a foreign fighter because when we hit him, someone ran out and stole his boots, and that was it. Because, like, you know, usually if they're going to drag him out, then maybe, okay, I should probably shoot that person too. You know, there's some rules of engagement and escalation of force that has to happen that we abide by straight up. But that being said, the fact they just stole his boots means I think it was probably a foreign guy, and the body was there for a pretty long time. So then as this fight's going and escalating, um, I was on glass. We had these periscopes. You couldn't stick your head over the wall but you, or through a window, but you put this periscope up. And I remember this, the house we were in, this guy named was Otto, and he was a good dude. And uh, I felt bad for him because we, were, we went to use his house a lot because it was a nice sniper range, a nice good line to shoot right in that really bad area. But when we left, the bad guys would come in and beat him up and beat his family up. And he would always be like, please don't leave. And I'm like, dang, bro, I'm sorry, man. Like, I can't stay. He's like, you know they're going to come. And he even set up an American toilet for us where he had like a chair he cut a hole in that would sit it because, you know, they have a hole in the floor. So I felt for that dude, and I know Stoner did too. Stoner always gave him a bunch of money, of his own money, been like, hey, I know they're going to steal and break stuff, take some money. He always gave him some money. But I was on glass when that thing <clears throat> blew, and, you know, that guy, Mike S., that came over, the loudspeaker, it was he's one of the hardest dudes I know. I don't think you'd argue with that. His voice was pretty broken. I could tell, oh, no, this isn't good, you know. And, and Stoner's like, hey, get the Iraqis, let's go. And so the first three guys ran out in the street. I was trying to get the Iraqis. I couldn't. They wouldn't come. I had the guy by the front of his, front of his plates, and it was like trying to put a cat in a bathtub, man. He had his hands out on the side of the door, and I'm yanking. And finally, I, I turned. We left our, like, our breaching tools and stuff there because we had a lot to do. So we left like our hoolies and our sledges and, and our backpack we just had door night vision on second line and just went out there. And uh, I ran out there and Stoner's like, he's like, hey, <clears throat> where are the Iraqis? I'm like, they ain't coming. He's like, tell them to come. I'm like, I can't. And so now we're already in a pretty good scrap. Things are going bad. <clears throat> Two of them did come with us. Uh, Jamil and Mohanad, <clears throat> they did come with us, uh, which we knew them. They were good people. Mm-hmm. Anyway. We started scrapping our way up, and then you know you talked about Benny grabbing that gun. That was Mikey's gun he grabbed, mm-hmm. and uh, the I was laying next to Tommy D, and uh, there was like maybe a we're on one side of the street, the other elements on the other side, and probably like a 12 inch high pile of rubble, and I'm we are pinned down. There's like a light post next to us, and we are just ping, bullets are just flying, and we're, you're just laying as flat as you possibly can. I'm trying to reload my magazine, and I remember thinking like. Uh, I don't know, but we're going to go from here. And then I heard that big gun light up, and I was like, uh-oh. But I'm like, oh, all of a sudden, there wasn't pinging around us anymore. You know, like all the spalding of the concrete wasn't hitting. And so when I heard that, I looked up, and I saw him. I saw him holding that gun, like just no strap, no nothing, just at, at, the, at the shoulder, shouldering that big weapon and just laying it down. 
which probably the most important covering fire of my entire life. And uh, we got up and we just we made it to the house underneath that that uh, that covering fire. And uh, as I came up, the way that the roof was, there was a center-fed uh, a stairwell, so you came up to the middle of the roof, and you could see right what happened. You know, uh, my guess was blown up in his feet because he was laying down when he caught the blast. And then uh, Mikey, uh, Mikey Mansour was just bleeding up. And man, Benny, not only he did, before he did that, what took him too long, he was patching everybody up. Like, you know how it is when guys are bleeding, you never have enough gauze, doesn't matter what, he f- made it work. That dude, he's a man. Mm-hmm. Like, he patched everybody up, <clears throat> so I, but Mikey was bleeding terrible. And so like, I rolled him over and I, I like swiped down his chest to see what to see what I had because it was just like a blood and gore and I just saw holes and they filled back up with blood and I was like and he was kind of making this gurgly noise so I'm like okay I think he's gonna live <clears throat> I'm not a medic you know mm-hmm. and uh, Stoner Stoner was a good combat leader he he looked at me he just said get Mikey that's all he said and then he grabbed I think he grabbed Mike S and kind of had him on his hip because Mike could kind of hobble and then the other guys and you know. I, you and I had this big conversation when we met later on where I just couldn't stop talking. Remember, I was just running my mouth. And I remember you just sat and listened. And, you know, it was about this because I felt really ashamed. That I couldn't, and you know, you see me around Mikey's family. Like, I, I just feel so, you know, like, like I let him down, you know. Um, I had him as, I carried him as far as I could. He was not a huge dude, but he's like 200 pounds, you know. And then you've got probably another 60, 80 pounds of kid on, both of us. And, uh, at some point, I couldn't carry him anymore because we couldn't get out the front, and the Brads wouldn't come that way. Of course, they'll get blown up. I'm not saying anything bad about those guys because they were our brothers. They weren't supposed to get us anyway. And uh, we pushed down a, a wall, like a little uh, a, a wooden fence, like a dog ear fence. We pushed it down. It went out, came out right on Route Farouk, <clears throat> and uh, those guys were way ahead of me. I couldn't carry him anymore because I, I just ran out of juice, and I was dragging him. So I'm dragging him through the street. His his uh, clothes are shredding, and we're getting to the brat and there's bullets hitting and the guys are like yelling at me like hurry hurry we're trying to close the door and like i got in there and then uh you know my guest came and talked to me once uh when i was xo buds and i kind of was i uh, kind of apologized because i i checked out for a minute like as a ramp went up i was like i was so so tired you know how we say that mm-hmm. oh he's i was so tired and and uh mike is he's bleeding he's sitting kind of funny because he's got a bunch of frag in his body and he's like dude do CPR. I was like, and then I kind of snapped back out. I was like, I'm doing CPR. And, you know, as you, you do the chest compressions, stuff's popping and cracking. CPR is not a gentle sport, you know. And then back then it was 15 and 2, and now it's 30 and 0. But I did my 15. I tried to blow in, and I could see. You're supposed to look for the rise and fall of the chest. I could see bubbles come out of the holes, and I'm like, does that count as one? I don't know. And he, like, at one point threw up in my mouth, and I was just like, I don't, I don't know if I'm doing it right. And then – you know, we did that all the way till we got to cop aid, uh, which was like the little medic outpost they had set up. And then um, I'd fired, a, like I'd fired some rockets and stuff. So my ears were kind of like, I couldn't really hear. It was this big roaring thing. And uh, the medics were talking to me, trying to bark at me because uh, Mikey and Doug had got their name tapes kind of blowed up a little bit and they couldn't have uh, what their blood type was. And they're sitting there trying to ask me and I remember I couldn't understand what they're saying. And then I'm like, who are you talking about? And then, and they were like washing, cause I had all this blood on me. They're washing it off with their water hose. They're spraying me and I'm looking at them. And, uh, and, and when that backtrack, when that Bradley door opened, the first two dudes that stuck their head in there <clears throat> was at the time, um, 
Colonel Clark. Remember that dude? Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. <clears throat> I think he's a general now. He absolutely is a general. First now. dude, him and Major Womack yeah. stuck their, I mean, that little crack, their heads in there. And he, yeah. you know, he called us Frogman. Yeah. He's like, Frogman. And he's like, get out of there. We got a medic here. I'm like, all right, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, good dudes, full of respect for no, those the guys. the best, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and, and it turned out they needed to know what kind of blood type these guys were in their names. And so, like, I don't know why. They, maybe they morphined them and they couldn't get it. I don't know why, but I kind of came to enough to give them that. And then, then you showed up, I don't know when, right before. It was maybe a little bit later, but I remember I just couldn't stop talking. And you just mm-hmm. uh, sat there and listened to me. And, yeah, I really struggled with um, did I do things right for Mikey, you know? And, like, did if a better guy was there. And I actually went and talked to the doctor that worked on him. I'm like, hey, man, like, I know I just want, want to hear, like, I I messed this up, you know, and he showed me an x-ray. It looked like a bunch of fuzz. And he's like, see this, this is his heart. And these are pieces of the, you know, and I was like, he goes, there's nothing you could have done. And so he told me what I needed to know, but I know that I didn't, I wasn't up on my medical care. Like I I could have done like, so anyway, the point was he told me what I needed to hear. It felt good. I don't know. You know, maybe if there was a better guy up there, it would have worked out better, but that's, that's how it worked out. No, I mean, uh, all the all the doctors said the same thing, you know, like he was mortally wounded from the moment of, you know, and um and it was actually it was actually uh Colonel Clark that <coughs> called me, told me what was going on. And he, he told me like they're they're doing CPR right now and I just knew like Yeah. CPR is not a good sign yeah. to be doing. Um <sighs> And you know, I I was trying to explain to people like that it wasn't over either. Like you still had to go back out in the field to get oh, the Iraqis, yeah. get the gear that you guys left behind. Yep. Um, you know, I remember talking to Stoner. He's like, "I'm going back out right now." You know, like that kind of thing. <clears throat> yeah, and so I didn't go with him. He went without me because I was with those guys. Like I jumped yeah. in the Brad with those guys to show them back. So he went back and got the gear and stuff. And the Iraqis. Yeah, because we don't leave gear. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and that was September 29th. We ended. I mean, you guys still did more ops than that. Even. Oh yeah, yeah. And and you know, I I teach this now, and I I teach more detailed for what I do with the with the, the SEAL teams. But you know, I always taught like about minimum force and what you should have because we didn't have a medic. You know, our medic took around earlier, so we didn't actually have a medic mm-hmm. on that op. And we talk about minimum force requirements and stuff like that. And uh, I used to teach, like, after that, you know, I knew about min force and I never did it again. And when there was a guy that was on an op with me, he's like, no, me, you, and Stoner did an op like three weeks later, just the three of us. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I learned it now. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, we were still working. I mean, yeah. it, it's like being on the mat, right? If I stop, you're still going. Yeah. The same thing happened. We had The fight wasn't going, so we, we kept going. Yeah, that, that was a, a different, definitely a dynamic for that deployment that I think was – for us anyways, for me, you know, especially growing up in the 90s in the teams, it was like in the 90s in the teams, your your mindset was you're going to go do one op somewhere. Mm. Like that's what you're going to do. Like one big mission. You're going to go rescue, save the princess or slay the dragon or whatever. Yeah. And when it's over, it's over. And, you know, like Ramadi was not, it was like, it's not, it's not like you just said, you, the enemy's still going. Like they don't mm-hmm. care. They, they live there. They they live there. They mm-hmm. don't. They don't care what's happening. They're yeah. they're going to keep going, and you know even even at like the SEAL team level, the thought of like oh replacements, 
Right. You know, like we didn't, there was, no one ever talked about, hey, like once I took over trade at, you know, I would talk to the CEOs. I'd be like, hey, what is your replacement plan for if you lose three guys from a platoon of 16 guys? That's a huge hit. And who did you lose? Did you lose a JTAC? Did you lose a Corman? Did you, did you, did you lose one of your senior enlisted guys? Like we didn't really talk about that. We just didn't. And, and that's another reason why you need to have, you know, at least troop wide TTPs, the techniques, tactics, and procedures, but team wide TTPs sure. and probably community wide. Cause like, yep. you know, we, we're like, we don't have doctrine. We kind of do our own thing, but you know, in the platoon leaders course, I teach away, you know, when I took over the course you used to teach mm-hmm. and I'm like, Hey, you got to be able to plug and play with another platoon. And like on my Afghanistan deployment, I took in half another platoon and you know, they, if they did, couldn't operate with us, that they use different things, it wouldn't work. So yep. you, you got to have that interoperability. And that, I think that probably spawned some of that. And I, I definitely learned it at that point. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we, we really tried to push that. And, you know, we had like a, you know, we had like a battle book about casualties, right? Like if you have a casualty, here's what you're going to do. You're going to, you know, shut down the radios. You're going to do this. You're going to contact these people. Yeah. Like there was a, there was an administrative protocol to follow. I know. Yeah. Time out. You need to, you're still in a fight. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. there wasn't. There was two things that there wasn't. There wasn't like a combat, like, okay, wh- where's the replacements? What are we doing? What are we doing here? Yeah. And also, like, what does it do to s- the team? Like, wh- what do you do with a guy that's now horrified? What do you do with a guy yeah, that is man. now feels like, oh, this was my fault or I should have done this? Like, just yeah. the same. Like, everyone's going to have those thoughts. I should have yeah. done this different. I could have done this different. Yeah. And, how, you know, how do you walk through that? What are you supposed to do? What's the grieving period? How yeah. long do you take off? Do you take off? Short time long. So for me, it was a lot of like trying to figure this out. And honestly, I got a lot of it from about face from Colonel David Hackworth, you know, about yeah. what I would kind of reflect on what he would do. And that's kind of what I did. Um, but it's, you know, you know, Mark was the first SEAL killed in Iraq. You know, we, there was no yeah. uh, lessons learned that I had recovered from somebody else. So. And it's the same thing for the rest of rest of the guys in the task unit. And I have a perspective on that. I definitely have an opinion on that, uh, especially after you know I got hit November tenth. I ended up getting hit after you guys got home. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, <clears throat> this is true. I don't know if you know about this. This is exactly what happened. I I end up. Uh, you guys went home. Yeah. Team five came in. <clears throat> I'm like, hey, uh, I speak Arabic. You guys should probably keep me. And they're like, yeah, we don't have anybody, so we'll stay. So I'm staying at Team Five's deployment. <clears throat> great dudes they showed up and uh you know we got in a pretty we're supposed to do this clear this market area the malab you know what the malab is that was so laba means play the m sound at the beginning makes a verbal noun which means place you play so it's the arena and we're supposed to be sniper overwatch as the iraqi army clears this whole market for like three to five hours that's the plan we insert at night no one messes with the night we get in there we can't find two good spots so we end up on the same house and the Iraqi army shows up for like three to five minutes. Seriously, they showed up and they made a U-turn. And I'm like, hey, man, I've got, I've got their comms on a little thing so I can kind of listen. I'm like, what's happening? Like, I think, do I not understand the scheme of maneuver? And I'm like, no, they left. And so now we're getting, we're stuck. And the plan was for them to go out and grab a big bite. So they grab a big bite around circular area. Then we fall into their perimeter. And then we, we leave with this like 400 band of Iraqis and their Humvees and everything. And that's how our exfil plan. Mm-hmm. Well, now, you know, I mean, we've got a lot of as much as we can carry. But if you're in a gunfight with the whole city, you know, you, you can't 
sustain that. So it's about 11 o'clock, and we're like, I don't know how much more we can do this. So the call is made. It's like, hey, let's call those Let's call these guys to come get us. And they already told they can't get us. They said they're not. They say, hey, we cannot exfil you there because of the IED threat. But they're like, we're coming anyway. <clears throat> so the plan was for me to bounce around corner. I had a law rocket left, so I was going to hit this house with law rocket. And then inside of me, the 60, which is like a Mark 48, which is like a belt-fed machine gun, 762, 100-round belt, he's going to open up. And I'm gonna run it. I'm gonna run around the corner from there, and then the Brads are gonna come, and we're supposed to run next to the Brads and run all the way back to Cop Eagle's Nest. You remember where that where that water tower was? Yeah. We're supposed to run back to there. So it's not a super long way, but what's it like? I don't know, 350 mm-hmm. yards, 500 yard dash. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we're going to do that. I go outside. I go open up that rocket. Because it's like it's the kind that opens up like a you know like you see in the movies that open up that's what it is. <laughs> it's actually not a very big rocket, um, but I, I go to shoot it. The thing blows up in my face. Like I don't know if I hit a wire, if I did it wrong. I am an officer. It could have been possible, but it blew up right in my face. So I'm waiting for the gun to pick me up. I hear another crazy explosion. Not sure what's going on. I pick up my my M4. I start peppering the house, waiting for the 60 to pick me up. They don't pick me up. I come back around the corner. Guys are running out. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, hey, the Brad's got hit. That was the explosion I heard. So we got to go. And so we are just trying to get out. We're throwing smokes. And I'm running down, um, running down around the, as I round the corner around the stadium, there's a house set back about 200 yards, opens up with a, uh, with their version of a belt-fed machine gun, the 60. It's called a, what do they call that? PKM. PKM, yeah, PKM. It just doesn't have disintegrating link, but it's the exact same thing. So it's a 7.62 by like 56, right? Pretty good size round. I have three rounds hit me as I come around the corner. I I, I was carrying my rocket tube because we don't leave gear behind, right? I mean, don't. I heard what you in D.C. talked about Afghanistan, and I was yelling at the radio when you guys did that on Mm -hmm. your podcast because I have a spent rocket I'm not going to lose. You know what I mean? And yet we leave billions of dollars in Afghanistan. Yeah, man. I was yelling at the rate. I was like so mad. Anyway, I come around the corner and my hand was back. So I had one round hit my camelback hose, one round go through my chest and the other one go through my backpack. It kind of spun me around. I fell under a burnout car and then he was thought I was dead. And I lost consciousness for a minute. When you think you did, you probably did for a minute because I kind of hit the thing. And then uh, he had a thing like a laser on like a little a jersey barrier. You know what a Jersey barrier mm-hmm. is, Echo? No. It's like a, those little uh, concrete barriers between like traffic going opposite directions. Like on a, like on a highway or like yeah, yeah, construction yeah. site. They got like a little three foot tall, four foot tall little. Like the cement? Yeah. Yeah, the cement yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, it's like a Jersey barrier. So they all jump behind that thing. He's drilling that thing. And then like I figure out what's going on. I can feel that I'm bleeding. I end up, I'm like, I still got a couple more rounds in my magazine. So I emptied everything I had through that window. Pretty sure I got him. Um, not positive, didn't do a BDA, a battle damage assessment, didn't do that. But when I was done, everyone was had run back, so I'm like, well, I guess I'll run back. And I ran back, and uh, the medic, who is now an elected official, awesome dude, I got back to Eagle's Nest. I'm like, hey, guys, I think I got shot. They're like, yeah, I'm, like, I'm pretty sure. So I opened up my plates, and he puked right on me, like threw up right on me. It's <laughs> like, bro. <laughs> it's like, I don't think that's useful. <laughs> he kind of wiped his big beard. He wiped his face. and. Then they put a piece of hydrogel on it. Hydrogel is the stuff we use to stick explosives to a door. Mm. It's not like an absorbent thing. It's <laughs> like a, how do you describe hydrogel, Jocko? Glue. Uh, on a piece of plastic. On a piece of plastic, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He just stuck it on my chest. So I'm still bleeding. Wait, like, why'd he throw up? 
because it was gross. He's a medic. I don't know, but he's we're good friends. Like we're yeah. really good friends, and maybe he just didn't like seeing his buddy in shot. But oh damn, I don't know why I threw up. Yeah, but <laughs> he sent he sent me a picture of it on like Christmas 2014. I'm at dinner. I'm like, bro. <laughs> Give a brother a heads just, up before you send me a picture just of this. To, yeah, just to give everyone, like, you got, <clears throat> if that's not the luckiest, one of the luckiest shots to get shot, the way you got shot was, like, one of the luckiest possible ways to get shot. Like, yeah, I was running at a full sprint through a through a solid beam of ammo. And the, and the bullet hit, like, basically went through, like, your chest muscle. Just my pec, yeah. Like, just, like, your pec yeah. flesh. Yeah. Like, which is cr- crazy to be able to survive, you know, that's like that's like the guy moves his sight a, a millimeter and oh, yeah. you're dead. Yeah. Uh, or if I'm a little bit slower on my 40 yard yeah, dash, yeah, you know what I mean? Dead. Like, yeah. So yeah. you got this I mean, what amounts to essentially a bad flesh wound, but not yeah. a horrible flesh wound. I mean, you were running around after you got shot. Yeah. So whew, yeah. yeah. Just so everyone knows what the shot was. It, it was it was from the side and went right through like your pec. Yeah, I had soft body armor, and so he said if it had been hit with a smaller round, it might have broke the trajectory and would have went into my ribs or something. Mm-hmm. But since it was such a big, heavy round, it cooked right through my soft body armor, right behind my plates, didn't hit them, and went right through, and it left a burn mark across the other side. So it went so through my right pec and my left pec. So I got like like two little holes here, and, and then a little out. burn mark. So it came out and uh, what do you call grazed your uh-huh. other pec. Yeah, 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 I had this little yeah, burn mark, and they gave me, when I got there, they gave me like a pipe cleaner, and I had to like put it through one side and kind of <laughs> floss it. for five, five. Dude, I wanted to throw up. I'm like, like yeah. so gross. And then I had like, you know those squeezy bottles like football players have so oh, they yeah. can squeeze yeah. through there? I had one of those, and I had to irrigate it, they called it, where I had to squirt mm-hmm. it and then like, they like push that little like that's the pop noise I'm not supposed to make but let me just pop <laughs> pop the little blood clot out of there and I had to do that for a couple of days and then uh, but I was so this is <clears throat> it gets weirder so I go there I get to the hospital they take they have to take chest x-rays that's what they have to do and they're like hey you uh good news you didn't hit anything important you're good to go and that's why they put that that uh, hydrogel because it's an occlusive bandage because what could happen is if you poke a hole in your lung even a small lung a small hole as I breathe out that air instead of coming out of my mouth it comes out of my lung and it it fills up my body cavity and it collapses your lung called a tension pneumothorax and then that you end up like dying from that unless they poke a hole in you and actually the medic wanted to poke a hole in me oh just in case I'm like I don't think so bro (laughs) he's like no no I'm the medic I'm like no you're not going to poke a hole in my chest like I think I'm good like we got in a little argument about it Um, so then I go there we're good to go now I'm pretty angry like I'm angry and I'm also embarrassed and ashamed because I'm not supposed to be getting shot man you know what I mean like I don't I don't know that's just how I felt and so I was really pretty distraught. So I walked out. I wrote CG for Craig on my hand because that's how the helicopters worked back then, remember? And I had a beard and a cool gun, so nobody asked me a question. And I got on and I flew to Cop Aid as close as I could get. And I got out of Cop Aid. And uh, I was running down Route Michigan going towards well, – Route Michigan is like the most IED route since the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I think that's how mm-hmm. they said it. I was running down that at night trying to get back. So I was probably like, I don't know, was it three quarters of a mile from Cregador from Cop Aid, roughly? Mm-hmm. And I see the boys pull out onto the street. And so I break out my infrared chem light so you can only see it with night vision. I pop it and I make the little bud saw. You mm-hmm. And they pull over and it was the same medic because they were going to get some Iraqis to go on op. And he's like, he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm coming back. He's like, it's Jimmy. I was like, oh yeah, hell yeah. He's from Texas, you know, he's like, hell yeah. <laughs> and uh, I can probably say his name. 
Yeah, he's an elected official. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was uh, Morgan Luttrell. So he's like, hell, hell yeah, come on. And so they called in and they're like, hey, we got we got Jimmy here. They're like negative. He's at the hospital and uh, we're going to pick him up. And they're like, nope, he's right here. <laughs> we're going on a, and we're going on a op. And they're they're like, okay, we'll handle it later. And that's and so I went on. I went out and uh, worked with them for another couple of weeks until December tenth, when. Uh, you know, Elliot got blown yeah. up, and no, Joe. November nineteenth. I'm sorry, December tenth. Yeah, yeah it was was that's yeah. a different date. Sorry. Yeah. So November November tenth when I got shot, and then I I, I went home with uh, Elliot Miller and uh, and Joe. Yeah. 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 Those guys got um, r- really messed up and, yeah. and leaving a <clears throat> leaving an Overwatch position, yeah. and we're supposed to have Elliot on at some point. Um, so Elliot, let's go. We're gonna make it happen. Yeah. Um, and then, so you flew those guys, those guys home wounded. Yeah. I flew back with them right around Thanksgiving. I think I did Thanksgiving with Joe in the hospital. Elliot wasn't really very, uh, he couldn't really talk too well. He was yeah. really, really messed up. And he ended up, uh, we had a, as we were dropped for the, as a plane gained elevation, I'm not a, me- a doctor, but he was up coding. And like, I remember this nurse was like messing with, and the, the flight crew was like, you need to sit down while we're trying. And she's like, no. And I was like, I love you. <laughs> like, hell yeah. Like, she's like, nope, I'm staying at work. And she did. She stayed and worked on him. And, uh, you know, he had like the, an SUV worth of medical equipment on his bed. And she was just working all of it. And they were trying to get her to like, when they land and take off. And she just wouldn't do it. She stayed there and worked. So mad respect for that lady. God bless her. And then, uh, you know, we had, we ended up having to fly lower than we wanted to. And we ended up dropping, we dropped off Joe at Bethesda. And then we sent, I think we sent LA down to San Antonio for the mm, burn center because he, he was went, pretty yeah. blowed up. And then, uh, you know, I land in San Diego. So I'm like, you know, 36 hours, I have a pretty major gunfight. And, uh, you know, my wife had left me and went back with the kids and I, the ambulance drove away. I didn't have any place to go. I went to the team, I think I went to Danny's. And then I think I slept in my cage sometimes. And I was just getting ready until, cause I, we were already in mid workup cause I missed the part of the workup. I missed the professional development part. So we were already starting uh, unit level training. And so I didn't need a place to live because you're gone most of the time anyway. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of where I, I was at that time, <laughs> just living in my cage kind of. Yeah. And, and so now you're a platoon commander at Team 3. Yeah. And you're in Stoner's task unit, right? I am, yeah. Yeah, uh, same, same guys that mm-hmm. I'd been with before. I remember seeing you at the team and you're like, Hey, did you get shot? I'm like, yeah. You're like, the trap or something. You're good, huh? I'm like, yeah, I think I'm good. He's like, okay, cool. You training? I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll be training. <laughs> That's all it was. <laughs> uh, how's that workup? Um, that was the one I did bad. Um, as the OIC, that was probably my worst performance in any platoon I've done. And uh, you Whoa. brought it to us. It, it, it it betrayed it, and I remember you. You know that one where we come down the canyon. Mm-hmm. We, you guys killed all of us. Mm-hmm. Like we were all dead, and you left me alive to try and solve problems. Mm-hmm. And I just, I wasn't doing it. And uh, you know, I, I still remember I was carrying like a person and a sixty because everyone had. We couldn't even fight. We were combat ineffective, just running down this thing. Like, I don't know. Stoner was pretty upset with me, rightly so. Yeah, you know, uh, when I think about this whole story because I've never really like thought about your whole career like this before but this is why that training was so important because essentially you had guys that had just not been in leadership positions before 
And you're an example. Like I really hadn't. You been. really hadn't been in an actual no. leadership position. I was like, a hey. combat interpreter, right? And mm-hmm. so you learned some really good lessons learned about combat. You learned about like how to handle yourself. But as far as like maneuvering elements around, and this was very common in the SEAL teams. And you would come sit next to me, and I'm shooting, and you're like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "I'm shooting," and you're like. You should make a call, but I'm like, but I'm shooting because that's what I do. Yeah. You know, I had never been leading, and I remember you pulled me aside and you're like, "You need to sit behind a bush with your gun pointing up in the air, looking around." And I'm like, "That's it's just I'm like that's ridiculous." Yeah. Like, you know, but it's right. But yeah. at the time, I was yeah. just like, "Bro." Well, and it's the same thing. I realized this because Leif and Seth were the same way. Leif and Seth were like when they got into my task unit, they. They had both done something similar to you. Like they were in a platoon where they got told, hey, keep your mouth shut. You're a new guy on deployment. They sat in the jock doing a PSD or whatever. So they didn't really actually, and this was so common in the teams that you could be like a young officer. You'd never been in charge of anything before. Yeah. And you definitely didn't get taught how to do this stuff. And so that's why like that, that training was so important. And you know what I do remember is one time you guys were at uh, Urban Warfare and you guys were all jacked up and I got done like debriefing your platoon and Stoner's all freaking mad and he goes, Jimmy Scott, come with me. And he, well, this was still out at Fort Knox. Oh yeah, he wrote us up. So he walks outside and I follow. He like calls you two outside and he starts yelling at you guys. Like, and you know, you guys are like Roger, Roger, and he said, like, get the hell out of here, and he walks away, and I look at him, and I go, hey, bro, how many times did I yell at you when you worked for me? Hmm. And he, like, you saw the look on his face. He was like, oh, shit, because I never yelled at him. I never yelled at Leif, I didn't, you know. I think he had a neck brace on at that time, too, remember? No, he didn't. Was, that was the neck brace? Mm, oh, he might have. Because I think, have. I remember he yelled at with his neck brace yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, that like, might have been it. That <laughs> might have been it. <laughs> but... It was one of those things where he was like, oh yeah. And it was like, hey man, if your guys, if you think you need to yell at your guys, that means you haven't trained them right. That means they're making mistakes. They need to learn, not get yelled at. Like I can guarantee you, you know, that's like when I was saying earlier, when you showed up, and this is like, I I would meet a young, again, I'm not trying to sound like I'm an old man, but I had been in the SEAL teams for a longer time than you. And I could see that you wanted to do a good freaking job at what you were doing. Like to me, that's just like the most, that's all you could want, man. All, all I ever wanted from a guy was like, they wanna do a good job. They wanna do a good job and they're tough. And I remember actually there was a little uh, 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 pol- pol- political movements. This is during our workup, during my workup with Task Unit Bruiser. And they were like thinking of moving some of the officers around and like, Maybe they're gonna move Stoner or something like this, and they're gonna give me a different officer. And, and, and the ops officer pulled me, and he's like, "Hey, you know, we could make this adjustment." And I was like, "I was like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want, I want these guys. I want Leif and I want Seth." And they're like, "Well, you know, these other guys might have some more experience." And I was like, "What I want is guys that are tough and guys that want to do a good job." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Seth and Leif are tough and they want to do a good job." So when I met you, I was like, "Oh, this guy's tough and he wants to do a good job." And so when you were in your workup with Seth, dude. You wanted to do a good freaking job, you know? Like, of course, and you're tough. Give me that all day long. I don't need to yell at you. And that was my point to Seth, was like, bro, that guy, both you and Scott, you guys wanted to do a good freaking job. If you screwed something up, it's just because you didn't know what to do at that particular moment. All you want to do is learn. So let's teach him, Not let, let's not yell at him. And he's like, Roger, so. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know about that conversation, but I, I definitely, 
you know, the learning curve was steep. And years later, when I came back as a troop commander, I was much, much more ready to go oh, there. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time with my officers, my junior officers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of work with them. And then I took another platoon on. So the way that the SEAL workup is, it started off with professional development, six months, then unit level training, six months, which is what Jocko ran. And then you've got, at the end, you've got TJIT, task group integration. So the last six months, we get all your assets. Well, they gave me another platoon that didn't go through my workup with me. And uh, actually, uh, it was Bobby Ramirez mm. who uh, uh, killed himself the weekend after my retirement, actually. Great guy. Um, tragedy, truly. Um, but he, he came over to me as, as, my, as one of my OICs, and he's like, he's like, hey, man, all this stuff that you're teaching my JOs, because I brought his JOs. I'm like, hey, I do JO development once a week. He's like, will you teach me? I'm like, his true commander didn't teach him that. Yep. He didn't know how to do ground force commander stuff. Yep. Now, his chief was a badass. It was uh, Bo. Yep. You know that guy. Hell yeah. Uh, and that made it for But good on Bobby for having that kind of like humility to be yep. like, hey, you're te- can I sit in with the JO? So here he is, an OIC, and a prior enlisted guy at that. So he's probably got, you know, six platoons worth of experience. And he's like, hey, I, you know, I need to learn how to do this. And that's to your point. Like, we never really taught him how to do that. And yep. I didn't know it either. And I, I failed that workup pretty bad. I felt like, like, I mean, I know that Stoner was pissed. Yeah. Well, also, everybody kind of failed that workup. But by the time you go, everyone would learn. Like there would be a steep learning curve. But the shit's not rocket science either. Like I would tell you, like one time, like, hey, dude, you don't want to do that. You'd be like Roger, and you wouldn't do it anymore. Like, or hey, you might want to think about this, and you do it. Like, so yeah, everyone gets their ass kicked, and. As, and 90% of guys go, dude, I just got my ass kicked. What, what do I need to do better? 10% of guys go, I got my ass kicked. It's because yeah. the training sucks or because my yeah, chief yeah. sucks or because my new guys are suck. Whatever. They just blame other people and they're never going to get better and they get fired. But, yeah, you were normal kind of learning curve, especially, again, I never really connected your whole leading up to this. Mm-hmm. Like, you didn't have, like, a true assistant platoon commander. Nope. You know what I mean? Where you were like, okay, you're going to run this squad and you're going to run through these IADs and you're going to run through the house or whatever. You're going to be doing this. You were kind of like carrying a, carrying a pig and, do, <laughs> and doing travel claims, which is <laughs> yeah, not great officer development, <laughs> right. man. So I hope that we started doing a better job, you know, and that was my main effort. That's why I went to trade it. The reason I went to trade at when I got I'm done. I'm glad you went there. That was good. That was good Good for that thing. That's the reason. Because I knew that we had learned. I knew that I, I knew that the, what Leif and Seth knew on deployment, I was teaching them while we were in workup. I knew that. And I was like, who's going to teach these guys? But you were on your sixth deployment by that time, right? That was my seventh. Okay, yeah. seven. So like, 100%. like at yeah. about at about third three three deployments, you're kind of a Jedi. Like that that's when the Jedi thing kicks in, yep. I think. But oh. and, and then after that, it's completely different. Because the first one, you don't know what's going on. Two, yep. you think you know what's going on, yep. but you don't. Three, man, the, the blinders come off. You have some excess capacity. I can yep. tell what you're about to do. Yep. You know what I mean? If you screw up, no big deal. I'll just play off that and fix it. It's about that seven year mark that it really hits. I think that's I, my opinion. And what what really helped me out a lot was. I, when I was an E5, I was in training cell at SEAL Team 1, and I was a single young guy. And guess what that meant? Nothing taught, better to do. I taught CQC, land warfare, combat. So I did everything. No. I did everything. And so now I'm watching these things, and I could see, like, oh, that guy doesn't. That guy shouldn't be over there. Oh, that guy's on his weapon too much, or that, that mm-hmm. platoon commander's not making a call. And so I, through teaching it, got to look at things from a detached perspective. And that's really, by the time I got to team two, now when Ensign at team two, I just got done teaching this stuff. And I wasn't like, oh, I know everything, but I was like, oh, I can, I, 
I know I need to take a step back. I know I need to look around. I know I don't need to be shooting my weapon. I know I need to keep things simple. Mm. I know we need to cover and move for each other. Like I know we need to focus on certain priorities. I know we need decent, like I knew those things. Yeah. And so it was very lucky for me. And so then when I got done with that deployment to Ramadi, I was like, there was, you know, the Admiral said, where do you want to go? Yeah. And I was like, I, I, I want to go to trade at, cause yeah. I, I didn't say why. I think he knew, but I wanted to make sure these lessons got passed on because because also the Battle of Ramadi wasn't over when we left. You know, I mean, you got wounded. Mm. Joe and Elliot got wounded. I mean, that, that was still hard mm. fighting. And I was like, I don't know when this is going to be over. So all these guys, all my friends that are about to get another platoon and roll back over there, they need this training. Like, I need to make sure they have this. And that was what became my focus. Um, but, you know, like I said, you, you had a little bit of a lack of knowledge, but as soon as you would get... Tightened up, you'd fix it and freaking kick ass. I mean, that's that was pretty normal from from my perspective. Like I said, if someone's arrogant, they would suck. I think and the bar came in high for me though. Like, oh, Jimmy's come come off the Ramadi deployment; he's ready to go. But uh, so they came in expecting me mm-hmm. to know these things, and I really didn't because I was essentially a combat interpreter for yeah. most of the time. I really didn't do a whole lot of leading on the battlefield. To be completely honest, as an officer, you're supposed to be from the front, but I was actually doing what my my niche my part in that cog was that yeah and uh you know i wasn't gonna step on stoner's toes or you know anybody yeah. else's and how was so you had some challenges during workup but like i said it was normal i mean stoner was stoked on having you like 100 percent um and i'm talking like as you guys went through and he'd be like oh yeah we screwed this up and like yeah but we got it you know what i mean uh how was that deployment so you guys go on deployment yeah it was <clears throat> It was a frustrating one because, you know, I just came off that super kinetic deployment and I got all the same kinetic guys that want to go scrap it out. And you know what? It just wasn't that. It's like, hey, man, you can't shoot. The rules of engagement have changed. You can't shoot people for what you should shoot people for. And now, you know, we had to dial them down a lot. And then, uh, you know, I had Chris Kyle on that deployment Mm -hmm. and uh, he ended up, you know, he took a round in uh, uh, in Solder City, Mm kind of yanked his helmet off. And uh, I wasn't there with him. He came back with me and. He was a, he was a different person after that, um, you know. I remember mm-hmm. thinking, the the I wanted to help him as best I could. I d- I did all the things I thought I could too, but he he really struggled. Um, you know, at first it was kind of funny, like oh the legend, it's about time. Who gets a nickname like the legend in the team? Yeah, I'm coconut. That's not <laughs> Jimmy Whiskers. Is it. That's not a. That's as good as I can get. Jimmy you know? Whiskers. I haven't heard that one. Yeah, Why that's that? a newer one because uh, I got nine lives. I always land on my feet. Uh, <laughs> you know I mean, and eventually it went to Gato, and then it's been Whiskers. Yeah, Jimmy Whiskers. Anyway, yeah. The, so. Yeah, that, that was pretty much a non-kinetic deployment. It wasn't totally non-kinetic. We rounded up 12 uh, HVIs, high-value high individuals. Mm-hmm. So we had some ops, but it wasn't like, I mean, yeah. in Ramadi, I reloaded my mags seriously probably multiple times a week like because mm-hmm. I'm shooting live rounds at people every night. And then on that one, it just wasn't quite that, you know. Yeah. And the appetite was more like let's try and build this place. And you have to. You know, it's a shifting. It's not – you just can't beat everybody up all the time. At some point, you got to build some people up and let them do their own beating up, and that was kind of the phase was in. So it was frustrating for those guys coming off that deployment to realize, like, hey, it's not that kind of fight again. And you know, I'm in the middle of that. I'm a pretty aggressive guy, I think, and so you know, I had to do some growing up there too. Check. So what? What's your next job after that one? So after that, I went to Bahrain because as an Arabic speaker, I actually kind of had it out with the XO. We didn't. <laughs> I don't care much for this dude, but we, he was the one to send me to the Pacific next. He's like, Hey, you've got two back-to-back tours in Iraq. You need Wait, probably. this was the XO at team three. Yeah. At the time. Okay. Yeah. 
And uh, he was like, you need to go to the Pacific. I'm like, listen, bro, nobody speaks Arabic but me. It's <laughs> stupid to send me back there. Have me do my troop commander here, or my or task unit commander back then is what it was called. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no. He's like, you need to get well-rounded. You're, not a, you're, just, you're so one-sided. It's going to be bad for your promotion, which I didn't care about. Mm-hmm. I came in to go to war. And I know people are like, no, you came in to be an officer. I'm like, no, I came in to go to war. That's mm-hmm. what I came in for. So anyway, we had it out. And I was like, that's so stupid. So he sent me to a one-year tour in Bahrain to do J-sets, mm-hmm. which once again, I'm like, I'm going to miss the whole war. I was all frustrated. Uh, we didn't know it was going to last 20 years back then. I know, I know. You know how everyone was. Like, yeah. I can't miss the war. And uh, I went over there and ran J sets, and actually for the same commanding officer at Team Three that we had there, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, he went over to uh, to Bahrain, and uh, actually we got along really well over there. Cool, because at Team Three, I think he was really nervous around me, and mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know, he's a good man. I, mm-hmm. I think well of him now. He came out to my retirement, actually, if you remember seeing right him. Right on, there. yeah, yeah. Uh, but we worked together really well down there, and I, I definitely count him as a, a friend and an ally now. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're just basically working a bunch of setting up these exercises over there oh, and running things. It was, yeah, so I think there was like 22 joint combined exercise for training. That's what a J-set mm-hmm. is. And then, you know, you, you fly in there, you grab a platoon that's on deployment that's not doing anything. You pair them up with the skill set they wanted to learn. And a lot of it is like showing up for the final ceremony. I got along super well with all the Arab people because I speak Arabic and they love it. You know, I got to go falcon hunting with the Bahraini royal family. And, uh, you know, just... It was an interesting deployment. My Arabic got pretty tight. Mm. Um, I found a place to train jiu-jitsu down there. Oh, and, cool. uh, yeah, they had flown in a Brazilian who was good. and But then the, the guys that ran the thing was not very good. He was a black belt. He, he You know how sometimes people just pay for their black belt? Mm-hmm. That's so must happen because I was tearing him up as a blue belt. And then uh, – but his Brazilian guy that was – it was under an alliance school, I believe. Mm-hmm. That Brazilian guy would put me in my place pretty quick. Right and I got to fight in Abu Dhabi. I went to – I went and did a J set over there. What the there. ADCC trials, or just trained in? No, the Abu tra- Dhabi tournament. I got oh, okay, to fight cool. in that tournament. Right so, like, I went there for two weeks, and uh, there was a J set going on. So, I stayed there and trained there. And they had like thirty Brazilian black belts. Brazil, like, you know, putting you in the quad and grabbing your batch, and you know, they were good. And uh, I, it was super fun to train with them because the uh, the locals didn't want to train jujitsu, and it was at the equestrian center mm-hmm. in uh, in Abu Dhabi. And I trained there, and then I stayed, and I, I got to fight in the Abu Dhabi. Oh, that's cool. I, I did six, I did six rounds. I didn't make the medal round as a, I think I was fighting as a blue, maybe purple, at that time. I definitely was blue, and, right I, on. and I was fighting with them, and I, I'm getting knocked out by a, I didn't get knocked. We, we lost by points to a Brazilian, but it was really cool, man. Like just getting a fight in that tournament. You fight all night. You start mm-hmm. at 10 p.m. and you fight all night because it's like 130 degrees at night there. Oh, you know? good check. Yeah. yeah, your Arabic must have gotten freaking good. Yeah, it was tight. Yeah. Because my last memory of your Arabic. <laughs> I know. This is a good one. <laughs> was it Was it Mikey Monsoor's memorial? Yeah. So yeah. Mikey Monsoor's memorial, and we're at Camp Corregidor, the guys from the 1st to the 506th. Yep. Like, it's it's freaking heavy obviously and the iraqi scouts yeah it was Mohammed. wanted to like have their guys talk and put some word mm-hmm. out and so you were the interpreter <laughs> yeah <laughs> and what was so it was respect yeah because so, arabic is a much more flowery language uh-huh. and they have different levels of respect which are different words <laughs> and so he would be like He'd be like, you know, to use your Durka Durka, and, mm-hmm. and, and I'd be like, and respect. And he'd be like, Durka Durka. And I'd be like, heavier 
deeper respect. And you'd be like, dicker, dicker, dicker. I'm like, super heavy. So I'm listening to this. That's really what it translates. I'm listening to this and, you know, and I mean, obviously it's like super emotional, but then I'm actually trying to listen to like how Jimmy's doing up there a little bit, right? And I don't notice it at first, but the guy's like going on, you know you see like after a post-fight interview, like the guy's Russian or the guy's Brazilian and so they're, oh, yeah. they're going on and on and on and on. And then the interpreter will be like, he says he's looking forward to the next fight. And you're like, no yeah. way he just say that. That didn't just happen. So the same things happen here. Like this, this guy Mohanad is up there and he's talking, you know, he's talking for like, you know, let's call it like 45 seconds. And then Jimmy's like, they truly respected Mike. And I'm like, okay, cool. And then it happens again. And he's like, it was a deep respect. And I was like, well, then it happens again. This is like a seven minute speech, which Jimmy did in 17 seconds, right? So we get done, bro. And I walk up to him and it's like, bro, what was that guy saying? Like, you only interpreted one word. And I go, he goes, well, it's, it's really complicated. There's a bunch of different words. I go, all right, bro, well, I, I just know you're not ready for like UN. That's what you said, said to me. You're I like, said, you're not ready for the UN. I was like, all right. Because, you know, I was, I was what, 36 hours out of that gunfight, too. For I sure, wasn't dude. super stoked, you know, and Jocko's just like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not ready for the UN. <laughs> not, not ready for that UN slot, bro. Oh, check. Um, so you get done with this Bahrain gig for a year, and then next up, you go out to the East Coast. You go out to a team on the East Coast. Yep. Yeah, I go out there, and it's, it's like having a big selection process, and uh, – I go all the way through it, and at the end, they ended up decided to put me. And it was my own fault. I screwed up on one of the major operations they were grading, and they decided to send me to a different squadron that I didn't want to go to. And uh, not only did they send me to it, they're like, "Hey, you're uh, going to deploy on February 24th." I'm like, "Do you mean tomorrow? <laughs> it's, it's, am I deploying tomorrow?" They're like, "Yeah." So boom, I'm out. So I'm on deployment. <clears throat> I uh, it's a really interesting deployment. Um, I don't know how much I can go into this one just other than uh, I was running a, an interagency task force at that time and it was, we were wildly successful. And, uh, you know, you met uh, the Admiral that spoke at my retirement and he became a really close mentor to me because basically I did a lot. Of, I went so far above because, you know, when you're, I thought that since my CONAP is signed by like the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that means no one below that can say no to me. That's kind of how I felt about it. And uh, it turns out that's actually not true. So I was skipping like layers in the chain of command. I mean, I, I moved a I moved a U.S. ship, truly. Mm -hmm. I also launched some assets out of different countries, trying to clear the airspace, and I just really went way out over my skis. And I remember I went and woke him up, and I'm like, "Hey, uh, this is what I did. This and this." And he looks at me, and he's like, "Huh?" He goes, "Jimmy, I'm not sure what you did, and but." Uh, we're going to go upstairs and we're going to make sure this goes well. And then after that, we're going to have a conversation about who's a decision maker <laughs> and who's a decision facilitator. <laughs> and like, I learned a lot from him because he didn't try to crush my spirit, right? right. It's like you said, I want to do good. Yeah. I just, I got deployed on one day notice. I don't, and my turnover was a high five turnover, which mm -hmm. means I get off the plane and he flies back on the plane that I got on. So mm -hmm. I didn't know. So anyway, he, uh, he didn't break my spirit and uh, we had some really cool things you know, down there, he, I had my own jujitsu fight club, you know, like Beautiful. we do. Yep. And, uh, he would come to it and we had all the different people from different agencies coming to it. You know, guys have a black eye and there's kind of like a, a little like, mm, mm -hmm. uh, you're training with Jimmy and the boys. And mm -hmm. it was pretty cool. Um, they ended up having like a little civil war in this country for a while. And I had to go out and grab some teams. 
Um, speaking Arabic was huge. I actually drove right up to a tank in a Toyota Avalon, and I was like, hey, man, do you mind moving this tank so I can uh, – <laughs> and the guy's looking at me, trying to explain to me that there's a fight going on. and I'm like, I totally get you. I feel you. But I just need you to move the tank for long enough for me to – and the guy finally looked at me and shook his head like, okay. And I went out and, you know, got those things back. And it was a really interesting deployment. Uh, we were worried about the embassy getting overrun. Eerily close to what was going on in Benghazi. Mm-hmm. How that went down, to be honest, because you know the ambassador was like, "Hey, you guys are coming over the wall if things go wrong." I'm like, "Oh yeah." Um, he didn't know there's three of us. It's <laughs> just three of us to come over the wall. Mm-hmm. We had 19 fast company Marines, which they would have done a good job, I'm sure. Like, not being facetious at all. You yeah, know how Marines are; they get after it. So, but that was kind of how it went down over there. Um, where were you at when extortion went down? I had just got back from deployment, and uh, you know, extortion. I lost my best friend. You know John Tumelson. Yeah, yeah. He worked for you. Yep. You remember when he got in that big fight? I do. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I was worried because you were his boss. So John Tumelson was my roommate. And uh, he he goes out. Okay. He's not an angel. He was probably like picking up their girlfriend or something. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a big good looking dude. And he was walking out of the bar and these three guys tackle him from behind. And he like slides on his, gets up. And, well, and one of them was a bouncer too. Oh, the bouncer plus two other dudes. Yep. Okay. Three guys Tackling from behind, he's down. He gets up. They kicked him out of the bar. And okay. so he's leaving the bar. Yeah. And this, this so then they, they, they came after him. Right. So I'm just saying all the ways that he was right. Right. He didn't know. Yeah. Like he was walking. They tackled him from behind. So now you've got three dudes tackling you from behind. JT gets up and puts them. He puts them in the hospital. Like jaws wired shut. And it turns out that uh, these dudes were in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And so now the Navy wants to press charges against him. And I was concerned, and I'm like, I'm, and you know, JT, he had a blood infection because, like, you get those streaks that go down your veins when you get infected. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you gotta go to the hospital, bro. And I was like, you go to the hospital, I'll go talk to Jocko. Cause I, I was like, I walked into your office, I'm like, hey, man, um, I just wanna let you know what happened with JT. And you're like, what? He got in a fight with three guys and one. I need tough guys. I was like, yeah, that's kind of how it went down. But I, the, I know they wanna mask him and stuff. And Jocko was like, yeah, I got it. That was kind of it, and I don't know. Nothing really happened of it, but uh, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Yeah, <clears throat> um, he went to Ca- he went to Commodore's mast. Yeah, and the Commodore. So the Commodore and other Navy dudes were in there. The Navy guys he got in a fight with. Yeah, and their their oh, master and chiefs yeah, and yeah. stuff. And so we're standing there, and he busts him. He busts him. He's like, "Yep, you." Oh, hey. I do remember this. Yes, he's like, "Your yeah. reduction in rank," yeah. which meant he wasn't going to be able to screen. Yeah, and he he had just made chief. Yeah, so now he was going to become an E five. Yeah, I remember this. So, the Commodore's like, "Boom, boom!" Like you're you're busted. Like done. And he's like, "All right, everyone leave." And he's like, "Jocko, stay here." And so everyone leaves, and he. He, I said, hey, hey, sir, this guy is, um, actually, I told him this before. I said, hey, you remember the guy that you, because the Commodore had just been up in an exercise, yeah. and JT was the, the uh, JTAC, yeah. calling up at Fallon, like yeah. calling all kinds of stuff, and yeah. Commodore, and I go, you remember that guy that was up there? And he's like, yeah, and I go, this is the guy you're about to send to Commodore's mask right now. And he's like, okay. So anyways, busts him down, tells everyone to leave, tells me to stay back, and he gives me the paper. And he goes, here you go. And I was like, Roger, sir. And uh, somehow. It, did, it didn't get filed? <laughs> somehow that paper did not make no it into, uh, yeah. into his record. Yeah. And 
Yeah, and you know what? That Commodore, who's no longer with us, yeah. he became an admiral. Um, who He was a guy that was trying to look out for like a tough, good, freaking team guy. Yeah. Like, what do you want him me. to do? We got to jump yeah. by three guys. Exactly. What do you want him to do? Exactly. You know? yeah. uh, and, you know, that's one of those things I always think like, well, if JT would have gotten busted, he wouldn't have gone to Damn Neck. You know? He, yeah, yeah. He wouldn't have been. So. It's yeah. one of those things, but he was doing what he wanted to do. So back to extortion one seven, and you know, so my roommate, I, I get back from deployment. I've got my kids visiting me out in Virginia Beach, and I get a call in the middle of the night. Hey, get to the command. I, I, I get. I'm like, what's this about? I don't know. I drive up there, six a.m. I'm on a flight going back to tell his family because you know, like, if, if you don't know uh, Echo and people outside of the teams, when you go on deployment, there's this like people would consider it morbid that you fill out about well, before you go. It's like, who are your pallbearers? What songs do they pay, play at your funeral? Who do you not want at your funeral? Where's your will? It's 24 pages long and you go through this and it's actually super important because it solves a lot of problems. And I, I'm the guy making notification. I knew it. I know his family. I get there and I drive, I fly to Minneapolis. I drive down there. Bo met us there. Uh, he just showed up because he's a good dude. And uh, we go in there and I walked up to his dad and I, you know, I've got two more people from the command with me who are going to, they're just squared away. Like the, they're just squared away people to come with me as part of the Keiko team. What does Keiko stand for? Casualty Casual assistance team. something. I don't know. But it's the person that tells the family that they lost somebody. So I'm in my blues. I show up and his dad sees me. His dad's like, I've been expecting you. And George was a man of few words. I'm like, yes, sir. And we sat down and we didn't say much. And then his mom came home. She was at her 45th. She was retiring at 45 years as a nurse. And, you know. I'm like, you're going to tell her me? He's like, I'll do it. So he went out there and told Kathy. And, you know, <clears throat> it's a hard time. There's no way around it. And then after that, we started working on funeral preparations and stuff. I had to go back because I was a little bit messed up for my last deployment. So I had to get a surgery. Bounce back uh, three days later. And they had set up everything. They had set, It's a town of 700 people. We got a 1,500-person funeral going down. So every logistical issue you can think of, you think COVID was a pain? Imagine, like, not having enough hotels and, you know, we're, we're bringing in a C-130 with a bunch of guys from, you know, a bunch of team guys. And uh, where do you house this? The answer was the school. We had like a one, one, a gymnasium and then overflow into like the theater and stuff. Anyway, I learned a really important lesson that day. And, um, you know, it's one of the most important lessons of my life. And I always consider it like uh, JT's parting gift to me. And so, you know, I get back from that thing. And back then we had spreadsheets. That's what we did. A piece of paper with like names and jobs. And those two, I'll call them text, tech supports what we call them normally. There's probably a more PC name for it, but it's not derogatory. They're just, they're non-SEALs who are at the SEAL command. They did a great job, really good job. And, uh, you know, they're friends of mine to this day. And they, on it, I'm like, okay, I'm probably a pallbearer. I'm probably speaking, you know. I'm probably giving his mom a flag. I'm flipping through. I'm like, nope, not Paul Bear. Okay, that's weird. Hmm, not speaking. What am I doing? I am handling the VIPs. So I'm getting pissed. I'm like, <laughs> I'm getting mad, and I'm getting ready to go say something, and all of a sudden I stop, and it's, and then I feel like this intense shame over me, and I'm like, oh, I just want to be recognized for who I am in JT's life. It's about me. It's not about me. And so JT's final lesson to me was to get over myself. And, uh, you know, I don't live up to the uh, humility I would like to all the time, but I hope, you know, that uh, I, I could manifest that in my life after that. And you know what I, happened? I shut my mouth. And you know what I did? 
I handled the VIPs. And it makes sense. I'm the senior ranking of my friend group. It makes sense. And you know what? The guys that carried the coffin didn't drop him. The, the people, the guy that spoke did a better job than I would have, for sure. He did a great job. You know, and guess what? The mom found the right seat and she got the flag. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm not remembered as the dickhead who had to like make myself the center of attention, you know, but I was super close to doing it. And so, you know, that's, there's, there's always a silver lining and, uh, you know, there's nothing good about losing my best friend. I'm not going to say that, but I will say that, you know, in his memory, there is something I learned. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And, and what a freaking stud. Um, freaking Iowa wrestler trained jiu-jitsu trained here actually oh, yeah. I've always wanted to do something I gotta put something up like a, a freaking kick-ass memorial thing um, dude and he was a, a a ranked top 20 triathlete in the Clydesdale division in his spare time like when you're in the SEAL teams you don't have a lot of spare time that dude he was just a phenomenal phenom- and we called him the human Labrador like what better compliment can you get than that? You know what I mean? Like he was just, just everybody's friend. Yeah. yeah, he'd do something. We'd we'd scrap it out. You know, guys are we? We'd be mad, and I'd be like, I'm still mad. And he'd look at me like, like ten minutes later, he's like, What? You still mad about that? I'm like, <laughs> It was like ten minutes. He's like, So how long you be mad? I'm like, Okay, I'm not mad. <laughs> like it was just he was just that way, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, and I mean that that I mean that obviously that time for NSW was just a freaking disaster with extortion one seven, which is horrible. And I mean that's one, you know, that's one just one guy, you know. And that oh. as much as that impact was, it was that impact over and over and over again throughout the community and throughout all those families, man. It was just a freaking nightmare. Um what, what what did you end up doing after that? What was your next command? Where'd you go? So I went over. I went back to Team Five, and uh, you know my old platoon chief. I can say his name. You know Jason Tory. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're smiling. Yeah. Go ahead. Say yeah, it. Well, just what, the, what? Other oh, dude, the other I, JT. Oh, the other JT. The other JT. But yeah, no, Jason's like. Well, he was my LPO. Yeah, he was my LPO yeah. when I was at SEAL Team Seven. Yeah, and just freaking hyper we, squared away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, just, he he came over to me when I was OIC. They, I, my chief was a great guy, but he wasn't doing a good job, and I was defending him till the end of the earth. And then, and JT actually got on JT, my chief JT gets on him in the in front of everybody, and I pull him aside. I'm like, hey, bro, like that's my chief. Don't do that to him in front of the guys. And he's like, well, I'm the assaults. The assaults lead, and if I'm going to do this, I got to square him away. And like we kind of got into it, mm-hmm. and then so then. They end up firing my chief, and then guess who I get? JT is my chief. And I'm like, oh, that guy, here we go. But, I mean, all of a sudden in the house, I had nothing to do. I'm like, oh. yeah. Like, the assault got ran. Everything just was running. And I was like, dude, hyper squared away dude. He's working now. Um, I think he's chief staff officer at Scilabs up in in Washington, doing great things. And uh, so he's uh, he he calls me. He's like, hey, if you want to leave there, why don't you come here? I need need an officer. I'm like, oh. You think you can make it happen? He's like, hell yeah, <laughs> dude. I fly in there and it was just, it was awesome. Really good deployment, really good workup. We went over to Afghanistan. So he was your SEA? He was my SEA hell as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't have to, I didn't have to talk much. You know, JT yeah. talks a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he made I, up for you. He made up, he'd say his thing and I, I would just sit back and he always deferred to me like, you got anything, sir? I'd be like, 
Most of the time, no. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of cool because it gave him an extra gravitas when I did have something to say. You know, they'd be like, oh, he's going to talk this time because mm-hmm. JT is just, he's that good. You know, yeah. you know him. He's yeah, yeah, away. yeah. Dude, yeah. We, and, and he's freaking just like a character. He's like, hilarious. Dude, as a, as an operational SEAL, hell yeah. Yeah. But also like just to have fun and hang out. Yeah. Get crazy yeah. with like <laughs> just just always having a good time. Yeah. And when I say always having a good time, I mean like no matter where you are, like we're in Iraq yeah. and like we're having a good time. Like things yeah. are funny, things are fun, things yeah. are good, which is the coolest thing about the teams. Like yeah. no matter where you are, you can have guys, we're gonna have fun no matter what. Like the shittiest situation, the worst, the hottest, the coldest, yeah. whatever the case is, like you look over at JT, and you're gonna get, oh, he's got a sound yeah, effect for you and, and, and a crazy story yeah. and you're like oh okay yeah yeah so I got him again and you know I picked up four platoons rolled over to Afghanistan had a really phenomenal deployment I mean those guys were so good I was pretty hard on them during the workup um, but they did they did a good job I had really good OICs and then uh, you know of course Bobby came over as one and uh, yeah they did great and on that deployment I think we had 168 dudes and uh, I'm not going to go into kill counts and stuff, but we had a, we did a lot. You know, they found like over 24,000 pounds of HME, homemade explosives. Um, they recovered a drone. They did all sorts of cool stuff and just really cool. I would just show up as a guest assaulter. That's mm-hmm. what I would do. You know what I mean? Like, you know how to run your thing. You know the battle space owner. They're like, you want to run an element? Maybe. But if you if you need element mm-hmm. lead, like, well, no, we got a guy. So I'll just guest assault and fall in there and had some really cool ops with those guys, man. We had a really cool op on Christmas where we just in Afghanistan, walking through Afghanistan. And this, one of the guys was like, we set up a ALGL, which is like a grenade launcher. And it's, a, it's belt fed. It's got like a, from this hill, it has like a two kilometer reach. And he was up there dressed as Santa Claus. As our <laughs> <laughs> it was really cool, man. Yeah, it was really cool. So yeah, great deployment. And uh, we did lose a guy. We lost Chris Pike. Um, he was not a SEAL, but he was an operator, straight up. Like the guy was awesome. He was built like a gorilla. So is he one of the tech, one of the technical guys? Yeah, a technical guy. So they carried, he carried around this technical equipment that would help us. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to go too yeah, deep in that. Just a technical. He carried around technical expert. equipment, but he was strong. You know, he didn't try to pretend he was a team guy, but he could operate. It was competent, and uh, you know, uh, he was a. I went to his funeral and his mom and his family. I'm like, oh, I see where they come from. You know, his mom spoke at, at, at his memorial. I don't know a lot of moms that can do that. And, you know, she had a little, maybe a little tear in her eye, but she's, she's looking right out at us and as intense as you can, as intense as you can get. And she's like, don't let anybody cry for us. We're warriors. We're pikes. And I was like, dang, I hope you have a lot more kids. Jeez. That's what we need. So, yeah. Any other uh, major lessons learned from, from being a troop commander? Yeah, man, being a troop commander, you know, I, I think I really, I kind of, that was one of my better, my better performances in the teams, not to sound overly arrogant, but I, I, I was ready for it, you know. I fell into it, I was tactically good enough, I didn't have to worry about, you know, how my weapons work or anything, I could shoot with the guys as, as well as anybody, and I could really sit back, I had a great chief, uh, a great SCA, and really solid chiefs. All those guys are in master chief now. Mm-hmm. It was just a really phenomenal deployment. Guys did their did their piece. I did get in trouble once, right when I got there, which I, I was like, great. So I, I threw a keg party at Danny's and, you know, I, I just decided to buy a keg for everybody, get to know everybody. And uh, I left, not super late, but I mean, not toward, but I left before the keg was done. And so one of my guys stayed and decided to like 
you know, kill the keg. And uh, he went out to have a cigarette, I guess. I'm sure he was helping old lady across the street or something. <laughs> and uh, he gets rolled up by the cops for being super drunk, you know. And he, 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 so he gets, put, he gets put in the drunk tank. Oh, and, then, and then after he gets put in the drunk tank, um, they release him the next morning and they tell him there's no paperwork or anything. So he goes and he tells his chief. And his chief is like, wait, there's no paperwork? Oh, well, I'll just keep that. So for all you listeners out there that are not policemen, you, I don't think you can put someone in jail overnight without, uh, without paperwork. I think you have to put something right. down on paper. I right. don't. So anyway, so they don't tell me. I don't find out about it. It goes up to the top through Warcom, right? The oh. highest guys, the admiral. So my boss's boss's boss mm-hmm. tells my boss's boss who tells my boss who tells, who comes out to Nyland, I think, to check out how awesome we are. Because I'm like, yeah, I mean, we're awesome. He wants to see some awesomeness. This is where you come. And so, yeah, we were out at, you know, Siphon. We're driving to Siphon 16 next, you know, the the one with all the pointy hard rocks. Yeah, Yeah, we're going to Siphon 16. I'm like, oh, you wait till we get down there. You're going to see some real awesomeness. Anyway, the the commanding officer and the master chief are like, hey, why 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 don't you come uh, ride with me, Jimmy and JT? I'm like, oh, okay. So we sit in the back, and right when I get in there, he's like, so, when you guys get to DUI, when are you going to tell me about that? I'm like, I don't know anything. I'm like, I don't know. Um, I don't think you're, you're right. Who was it? He gave me the name. I'm like, no way. There's no way. I know that guy. There's no way. He goes, well, you got a police report that says that. I'm like, Will you give me a couple minutes to figure it out? So I walk out. He tells me the story. It wasn't DUI. I, he's. I told Chief. I told Gisho, what you? Well, you know, I mm-hmm. didn't. I didn't think there was any paperwork. I am like, you feel the fire. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? You know. So I get back to the, the boss, and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, this is what actually happened. And you know, he goes, what do you want me to do about it? And I was like, hold me publicly accountable in front of my guys, please. And my boss goes, uh. That's not what I expected you to say. I don't know if that's the right thing. I'm like, nope. You do that, and I got the rest. It's like, just, you need to hammer me in front of the guys. He said, okay. So, you know, we had the SEAL team got together, and we got in this room, and he wrote me a letter of badness, whatever you, maybe mm-hmm. it's a nip lock or something. I don't know how bad it mm-hmm. was. It was a letter of badness. And anyway, read it in front of everybody. And then walked out. Yeah, how are you? And, uh, you know, I looked at my guys, and I was like, all right, guys. I didn't even didn't say a thing. No, you don't need to. I had nothing to say. I was like, listen, this was our one, our one silver bullet. Like, everyone at this team is going to go to Afghanistan. Every one of them want to go. This, it's ours to lose. So all these things that are going to, your focus is that, and if it's, not, if it's not that, it needs to blur out. All right? That's it. And, you know, that dude was a good dude. Mm-hmm. He was dying to get punished. He was like, please yeah. hold me. He, was, he wanted that gift of accountability, and I didn't give it to him. And I know that was a cruel thing to do, mm-hmm. really. Because had I hammered him, he would have felt better. But I didn't. I didn't say a thing. And that dude ended up being Sailor of the Year mm-hmm. at Team 5, and he's a Master Chief now. Hell yeah. And you know him. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I learned, you know, I'm, it's toward the end of my tactical career there. I kind of knew how to navigate their circles, and I was like, these guys don't want to see me get strung up, you know. So they really cleaned up their act, and they had a great deployment, and I, I, it was a phenomenal nine months in Afghanistan other than losing Chris Pike. Yeah. yeah. You also told me about, um, 
learning some resilience from one of your guys. I think he's still active, but yeah, he is still active. And uh, I'm not going to say his name. I'm just going to call him Don. Mm-hmm. So um, this dude that. That same group that uh, was out in Afghanistan, I had a group out in the West in Hellman working for the Marines. And because the battle space owner, the Marines own that battle space, if you don't know. And within that are different groups. So we all answer to the battle space owner because he has to coordinate everything that happens in there. So um, he, you know, point man, solid dude. He can brief. He's a level three, which is like human intelligence stuff. He's just a sharp dude. Who do you put on point? You put the dudes who are sharp. And this guy is a Mexican dude. And he's up front. And he sees an Afghani about to step on an IED. He runs up to grab him too late. Boom, blows that Afghani in half, kind of smashes Donnie up a little bit. And he, it, he lost his eyes. Eyes are gone. He's got a trach in, uh, pretty blown up. Lost some of his hand because, like, the, the frag came up, blew his hand up. Gets blown up. And I remember thinking, all right, like, I don't know how bad it is, but I wasn't on the ops. So they flew him into Bagram. I go see him at Bagram. And I'm, we're putting him on the plane, and the lady's like, hey, she, he's uh, he's not responsive. I was like, okay. So I kind of take him by his hand, and he's got a trach in. He can't talk. He can't see. And I kind of like, hey, buddy, it's Jimmy. How you doing, man? And he struggles to sit up, and I'm like, what's happening? He wants to communicate. So we try and get him a whiteboard, but he can't see. He's got to write with his off hand because his good hand's blown up. And he's, we figure out he's trying to tell me he wants to come back. And I'm like, oh, man, this guy. So I... I tell him, I was like, listen, buddy, like, you know, it's important for the guys to see you do recover. They're worried about you. So what I would like you to do, would you please send videos of your recovery to the guys? Stay in touch with us. And if you get better, I'll bring you back. And that guy did it. Don got blown up on December the 10th. And so I go out there, I spent the holidays with him and we're getting ready to go on an op, and you see you see him. He sends a video of him running on the treadmill. He's sweating, and the guys are cheering, and, you know, the, the physical therapy staff are, are distraught at what's happening, you know, with this guy putting out. And uh, it was cool, man. The guy, it was, they kept him in touch, and, you know, he didn't make it back on deployment. His injuries were too great. Um, but that he still had community. He still had a purpose, and he still had a goal. And, you know, we sent a guy home from our deployment after he got shot in the plate. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do anything for him. We sent him home and gave him time. And I don't think he had the, the same kind of recovery, mm-hmm. you know? Whereas what Don ended up doing was, you know, he came back and he wanted to get back in the teams. Somehow and I grew back. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I don't know. He's a badass, you know? He just I grew back an eye. He's like, I want to come back in the teams. And so a lot of the higher-ups were like, no, you can't bring him back to the teams. He has to have peripheral vision, CQC, skydiving. And I'm pissed. I'm like, just give him to me. I'll take him. You know, mm-hmm. I'm the opso now at at, uh, at five, and they're against it. And they're like, well, what if he does SQT? I'm like, okay, well, just maybe just a couple blocks. That's a slap in the face, man. Like, mm-hmm. you know that's what I mean? Bullshit. This is a seasoned operator. Like, anyway, so I'm like, that's fine. Um, which blocks do we have to do? And it was like uh, close quarters combat and skydiving, and. Because they, they were like, make him do all of them. Like, he doesn't have to breathe underwater again. Like, that's, that's ridiculous. Anyway, he, I went and told him. I'm like, hey, bro, listen, this is, they said they can bring you back, but this is what you got to do. He's like, oh, cool. I'll do the whole thing. I'm like, no, 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 no. He's like, no, no. I'll do the whole thing. He did. He's the only uh, enlisted guy to ever speak 
at an SQT graduation, and he was the honor man for Miss SQT. Hell yeah. Awesome. And he's still, he's still out there right now. He's going to do uh, Beyond the Brotherhood with me after this. And i uh, super proud of that dude. And, uh, you know, I learned that from – I learned about those important things about resilience along the way. And I think maintaining that community, he's still part of the team, you know. Maintaining the, uh, the purpose and the goals was super important. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do with uh, Beyond the Brotherhood, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit. Yeah. But. Freaking outstanding. Uh, what did you do after that? After that, you went to Buds, right? As uh, yeah, XO I went or something? to XO, kicking and screaming because I'm like, they're like, hey man, I, I screened XO third look, which is your last possible look because I never took a real staff tour. I just <laughs> didn't do that. I just kept going. They're like, you've only gone to the Middle East. You only, you know, just done SEAL teams. You need to do some other things. They want you to do boats or SDV. Yeah. Anyway, so I somehow made XO. So now you have to go do an XO tour. So that's my first ever staff tour. I didn't know about all the Navy programs. There's like 24 Navy programs, like motorcycle safety and like all. I didn't. I hadn't taken a PRT in like seven years. I didn't know. And they're like, "Well, your fit reps say you take it." I'm like, "I don't know. Like, I didn't know. I didn't know we still took the PRT. Like, I just didn't even know." So now I'm the XO in charge of all this admin stuff I don't even know about. And uh, had a great staff there. I still stay in touch with uh, with some of those ladies. They were uh, one of them. She just put on warrant officer. I'm super proud of her. And uh, no, it's it was it was a really good tour for me. I didn't realize how far gone I'd been because mm-hmm. like when you're if you walk into a coal mine, you're gonna get a little dirt on you. You know, it makes me think of that one. You you did a podcast where the, there was a guy living in like the CIA world or one of those mm-hmm. worlds with the intel. It's a dirty world. Yep. Well, the, going to combat over and over for 14 years is going to leave a stain. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize where I was. And then, you know, being at shore and being home and, oh, it's a little, you know, I'm a normal person. And it it took a while for that stuff to kind of bleed off, but it was really good for me. And uh, being at Bud's, you know, we learned a lot. When I I learned a ton while I was there. And back to the resilience thing, we had had a suicide there. So this was a guy that quit, right? Yeah, it was a guy that quit. Um, I think the proper word used to be a trite. I don't know what it is now. They always have a Phoenix division or something. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be good by NSW, but we called them a trite back then. So usually when guys quit, they you take them, you give them the man talk with the master chief, which is like usually some big stud. You know the dude who it was at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he was like, get, and then you go and put them in bed because they've been awake for two or three or four days. Well, this guy didn't do that, jumps in a car, drives downtown, Jumps off the 24th floor of the Marriott. And, you know, we're like, and then we start looking at the stuff and we're like, wait, there were some kind of suspect car accidents where some guys lost. Could there be, I don't know. So we don't know, but we had, we know that we've got at least one suicide and we have to do something about it. And so I had a couple of these lieutenants. And by this time, you know, nowadays, these SEAL officers are so freaking smart. They're all Ivy League guys. They're all 1600 SAT guys. And these two guys went to MIT and I was like, hey, I need you guys to design something. Let's figure out what, what we can do with these better to treat these guys. And they came up with the HROC, the Hell Week Recovery Observation Center. And they were like, look, after you quit, you got to spend 24 hours in the HROC. And during that time, well, first, before you start Hell Week, you have to put down the name of one person that you're going to call when you finish Hell Week. That, that, that name. That's first. Then you have to talk to the psych. You have to spend 24 hours in there. And you have to... I have to get a med check and then you can go, you can leave. So I, I looked at this. I'm like, that's the worst idea ever. This is going to be like Jonestown the day after it's going to be one mass suicide. They're always going to like be in this huge pity party and they're going to all, you know, 
But that's not what happened. They it made this sense of community. They're in there watching, eating pizza, watching movies, and then you realize, hey, I'm not the minority. No one talks about quitting buds. No one does. Mm-hmm. And now you've got all these guys who are in the same boat. You know, every one of them is the biggest badass their their towns their family has ever known. Mm-hmm. You know, and oh, and then they have to call that name, and. That's an interesting wrinkle, too, because now it's like, okay, my family, they love me because I'm the best. I'm the golden child. You know, those calls, how do you think those go? You think it's like, you're dead to me? No. When they call, it's like, hey, I'm proud of you. You know, do great things in the Navy. And so it breaks that glass, and it gives them a community. And then we start working on their next jobs, and they get goals and purpose. And it really was a really cool thing that we uh that we did, and it worked out great. To my knowledge, there's been zero suicides from guys from attrites after buds. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think I, I, it was something that I learned a lot about resilience uh, that I didn't know from these uh, young lieutenants who were smarter than I was. When you got a guy like you and me, kind of, you, you said when you were going through buds, you didn't think about quitting. I didn't def- definitely didn't think about quitting when I was going through buds at all. Well, what did you learn from these guys, like hearing them talk? the out brief when somebody just so did you do that out brief as well are you sitting there for some of those well no it's it's not really an out brief you're talking about the man talk the out brief yeah we talk to him on the backside, and usually we is usually not me um you know we have the the psych and stuff mm-hmm. we'll talk to him um what kind of stuff do they say well a lot of times they i, I after so before and after atroc because um, when a, after atroc it was a lot different um, but before, a lot of these guys were just like, "I, I got to get back." I lost, I lost, the focus I lost focus, or no, I don't remember quitting. I was hallucinating, or there. Always, a lot of times, they had some kind of excuse. After the eight rock, I didn't see that as much, mm-hmm. you know. And what an interesting thing was uh, one time the Mick Pond, that's a Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. That's the like, I'm saying it for your people, mm-hmm. not yeah. for you. Is the highest ranking list of guy there is in the whole world. Like he's the top dude. He's the only guy with a third star on his little anchor, and. Uh, he came up to me and he's like, hey, man, you know I was a buds of trite? I'm like, no. I'm like, bro, you got to tell people that. Mm-hmm. That'd be a great thing for these guys to know that they could, they could, you know, yeah. quit, not make it, and now they could become the Pond. And uh, he's like, no, I don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I was like, dang, that would have been a great thing for him to do, you know. Mm-hmm. But, so, so when you're seeing these guys, like, if, if someone's listening to this right now and they're, like, thinking about going to buds. Yeah. And one thing I've always said is like, if the three of us were going to buds and you were wanting to make it because your ex girlfriend said you could never make it, and you're going to prove it wrong. No, I think you can make it. And and Echo wants to make it because you know he wants to prove to his dad, and I want to make it because I'm patriotic. All three of those guys could make it. We could also all three not make it. Like whatever that why is, mm. I don't think it really matters. Like I know guys that were like, oh, just no one thought I could do it, so I was doing it. That was me. Yeah, well, there you go. That's <laughs> yeah. like a classic situation. I didn't have anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's guys that are like, I, you know, I, I'm doing this because I believe in service, and they, they quit like freaking day two. So yeah. they have these big like uh, super philosophical reasons, and they don't make it. They quit. Now look again. Some people that have big super philosophical reasons, they don't quit. Some people that. They're doing it for their because they're they want to prove their ex girlfriend wrong. Sometimes they quit, sometimes they don't. Is it, what I'm saying is like, you just gotta you just gotta want to freaking do it. As far yeah. as I'm concerned, yeah, I I don't know. We tried we did a lot of things trying to find the magic sauce, and really one of the best things we figured out was that we they made this thing where they put all they rack and stack these scores, and some of the major components are self assessment, cadre assessment, peer assessment, 
and they look at those things, and if those things align pretty close, the guys do better. That, and oddly enough, being close with your mother hmm. was another common thread. I don't know what that says, but those were some of the few things we could do. When you say the self, peer, and cadre yep. assessment, so if we all think, if like, okay, the cadre thinks I'm like, not the best athlete, but I'm a tough guy. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm not the best athlete, and I'm a tough guy. And my peers think I'm the best. I'm not the best athlete, but I'm a tough guy. Those lenses align, and you're probably you have a better chance because you're you know what's going on. Got it. But if you're like I'm the best athlete ever, Got and they're it. like, man, he's a little slow, and you know, just ha being that maybe it's a maturity thing yeah. with your frontal lobe. I don't know, but. If, if those things align pretty closely, it's been, and that, and of course, there's a baseline physical fitness. People are mm -hmm. like, it's all mental. Well, it's yeah. more mental if you're not in good shape, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've always told people, hey man, you know that rope climb? It doesn't matter how mad you want to climb up that rope climb, you can really, 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 really want, want it. it. Yeah. But when you can't do it, you can't do it. Yeah, and man. all the want and all the mental strength in the world, you, you gotta freaking train for that. You gotta be physically ready for it. And for all those buds, uh, gonna be's out there, you know, just the baseline, you know, mile and a half running boots and pants, nine minutes. Uh, your 500 meter swim, nine minutes. 20 pull-ups, if you can't do that, don't show up. Um, and then, uh, what's the other one? Oh, 100 the and 100. 100 and 100. 100 right. push-ups, 100 sit-ups. That's right. You do those things, and you've got the physical tools to make it. Mm -hmm. If you don't... It's going to be harder. It, it's going to be harder. Minimum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, did you say, now you're good at pull-ups. You're not a hard pull-up guy. What, what, running was your thing, wasn't it? I, I was not great at anything and not horrible at anything. That's so, a good place to be. Yeah, I, I, I never want to run. I failed one. Mm -hmm. I never want to swim. I failed one, mm -hmm. which there's a lot of swims you can fail. There's a lot of runs you can fail. I never won the O course. I never failed one. Like So I was just like uh, in the middle of the pack. Yeah, not and, a bad place to be. Yeah, you know, I, I think I got gooned like one time. Um, in the goon squad. That's a slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it can be. But like, yeah. y y that's why. You know, if you only get gooned one time, yeah. you learn your lesson. Yeah. I was like, yo, whatever it takes to stay up with the pack <laughs> is worth it. <laughs> yeah. So, so Echo, if you get gooned once, like let's just say we're running and they decide that this is the cutoff for people who are running fast enough. So everyone behind them mm. has to get in this. So if you made it past that, you're running in a circle nice and slow and catching your breath. Mm. If you didn't, you're hitting the surf and doing push-ups and just getting beat down. And now we take off again. Mm -hmm. And guess what? You know, you're probably not going to do real well. Mm -hmm. So that slippery slope just gets worse and worse. So yeah. it's like you best decide to just put out because once you get gooned once, it's, yeah. yeah. Did you it's work hell weeks while you were there? I, d uh, I did not. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of things I had to do. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I've never sent a single person to surf. I've never, I don't yell at people. It's just not my yeah, thing. It's yeah. not my style. So I went out, I brought them pizza on some nights. I always like to go to the uh, camp surf where they like oh, okay. dig that big microphone <laughs> and they tell jokes, you know, and uh, it's it's a really cool like indoctrination of teams. It's like day four, mm -hmm. you're probably going to make it. And I remember they're like, okay, someone tell a joke. And they like had couches out there and I had, I'd bring burritos and pizza for the cadre and we're watching them and, you know. Uh, the my buddy Bo was the uh, he's in charge of first phase. He always ran that, and he's like, "Okay, tell a joke." And someone would get up, and they'd start to tell a joke that like maybe it was racist or something. He'd be like, "Hit the surf, everybody, before you even finish it." So <laughs> hit the surf, you know. And they come back, and maybe they would tell a joke that was like sexist or something. Ah, hit the surf, everybody, in the middle of it. And like after a while, you see someone get up and start to tell a joke, and the class would be like, "Shut up!" Like, <laughs> but it was a good like tone setter for like, "Hey, we don't do that here." You know what I mean? It was really cool. Uh, you know, because they're, they're boys and they're all like, they want to say things, but, you know, 
he really he set that to use that as like a hey that's not how we do yep. these things here so yep. pretty cool and meanwhile you would also you have another kid at this point right you i have, do i got the little your, savage yeah yeah you know him the I, little beast I, yeah. I ain't gonna bust his name out but if, if you know if he sees if he sees jocko he's gonna grab him by the neck and try and put him out <laughs> <laughs> i know he always approaches me as if what is it like it's like he shakes my hand and he looks me in the eyes. And he, well, how old is he right now? Nine. So he's been doing that since he was like six. Yeah. Like coming up to me, shaking my hand and looking me in the eyes like, good to see you. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> he's got like the soul of a freaking 32-year-old veteran. Dude, that cost me five gummy bears to teach him. Because <laughs> I, I used to bring in the mornings, I'd train with, uh, you know, the, the wolf pack, yeah. you know, Morgan and Bram and Junior, you know, yeah. those guys. I'd train with them every morning and I'd bring him in there like, and he would, he would train with me for five minutes just because I want him to be, the gym is a fun place, mm-hmm. right? And then I'd put him in thing with a little TV and his breakfast and then I'd go fight with the boys. Mm-hmm. And uh, my friends would come in and he wouldn't, he wouldn't walk up and, and shake their hands. He'd hide behind my leg. I'm like, what are you doing, bro? Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, <laughs> so I read this book about how like, Loss aversion is more powerful than like, if I tell you I'm going to give you $500, that's not as powerful as I give you $500 and I take it back, right? Mm. So I'm like, okay, let me try this new psychology power I have with my five-year-old. And I, I, I give him, I'm like, hey, hey, buddy, here's five gummy bears. Put them in your pocket. They're yours, but you can't eat them until after class. So every time someone comes up and you don't shake their hand, I'm going to throw one gummy bear away. Okay. Can you do that? He's like, Yes, sir. I'm like, okay. We say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. My house. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. So we go up there and sure enough, Morgan comes up the stairs and he's hiding behind my leg. And I'm like, oh, oh, hey, uh, then give me those gummy bears, please. And he like takes it out and gives it to me. And you know that metal trash can yeah. we have right next to that, <laughs> right next to the water fountain? Clang. It's a clang. It's like 20 feet from here. I laugh when I see it. And, and his face looked horrified. Like just, I can't believe he just threw away the sugary goodness. And then he... You know, he's like, okay. I'm like, are you going to do it now or do I need to take another one? He's, he walks up, he shakes his hand. And, mm-hmm. si- and then people react. They're freaked out. They're like, what is this kid all intense? And so <laughs> Good now, go. now it it's his game. Yeah, man. So if you parents out there, five gummy bears is all mm-hmm. it takes. Yeah. Yeah. I never recognized that loss aversion thing. I know well, the, the, the punishment that I had with my son was I took one of his toys and brought it to the concrete patio and smashed it with a hammer. Because uh, he had done something <laughs> a little more intense. <laughs> he had done so- he had done something that was unacceptable in my family, and so yeah, and so people are like oh, I can't believe you did that. You know how many times I did it? Once, once. <laughs> and I put and then I had a staging area, and I took his next favorite toy and I put it in the staging area, uh, and I was like, this one's next. If anything like this, if you if you're out of line. Wow, and he couldn't really speak very well because he was only four. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> no he, but, but he was like he was like six though. You will change your own diaper. Yeah. And he was like he was like check. Yeah. So I only had to only do it one time, yeah. and it left a mark. Right? Yeah. Don't want to don't want to lose the the favorite toys. Yeah. So there you go. So you got him now, and then after that, you go back to uh, you didn't you go to the deploy again? Yeah, so now I deployed, it's like 2017, 2018 yeah, I went and did the, the second half of the Mosul fight with, uh, we did Western Mosul, which was like that big fight with ISIS. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an interesting thing. Now it has this new thing called A2E, A3E, like advise, accompany, and assist. Mm-hmm. And everyone wanted to go with, the accompany is a third A, and that's what everyone wants. Because the guys, now you got these new guys who want to come in, and they're like, they're trying to prove themselves because they got all these combat vets. But the war ain't the same anymore, right? And so these 
it's time for the Iraqis to defend their own country. And, you know, these guys want to go in and get in the mix. But really, you know, we can, like, mark the Iraqis where they are, let the Iraqis fight. When they get stuck, they are not uh, technically savvy enough to, like, do the combined arms things with the aircraft and calling the JTAC. Because, you know, calling in bombs is, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not super hard, but there's pretty big consequences, right? On a risk assessment, it's like, yeah, it would be catastrophic. Bad. Yeah, catastrophic. Yeah. So we do that for them. You don't have to be there on the ground with them to do that. And the guys really like struggle with that because they're like, come on. So we, we made this rule. You had to be one kilometer off the flot, the forward line of trace. So the Iraqis are pushing. you got to be 1K back. And then you can call on the strikes. And that's on the, that's on the, with their company. Usually you can do it from the jock. You don't even need to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the guys really struggle with that. But, you know, I, I don't want to send a guy home in a box for, mm-hmm. for that country anymore, you know. And we, we – we went into that, and it was actually super, super good. But it was interesting seeing how much the guys were always trying to find a way to get up there. They're always trying to find a way to get in the fight. And I'm like, well, how close are you? And, well, it's going to be closer, but I can support with a 50 cal. And I'm like, bro, I know, man. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. But what's happening here is going to happen whether you're up there and getting shot at or not, you know. So, yeah, it was an interesting place for me to be on the other side, right? Yeah. I'm sure there's someone like, oh, Jimmy's weak. He's, you know, you were you were the guy pulling the reins. Oh, I was the I was the deputy commander of the Siege of Sodaf, and then I was the commander for a while. So that's like all special forces in Iraq and Syria, because the, the boss had to go home because he had a, a family issue, and uh, you know, NSW was like, we'll send a guy over, and he's like, no, no, I, I, let's have Jimmy do it, and mm-hmm. you know, now I'm running these commanders who are way senior than I am. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, it was, and and they know me. It's the teams, you know, yep. and. Uh, I, because in my mind, I'm like, there's no one here that can tell me I can't go on an op. I'm, I'm going, you know what I mean? And <laughs> you, then I, you immediately, yeah. you immediately went to the same place. Oh, yeah. I was like, I'm, so I, I think I'm going to go on an op. So I go on this op, and the guys are like, oh, here, sir, this is where you're sitting. I'm like, uh, okay, do you want me to gun, drive? Where am I? Like, you just sit right here. I'm like, oh, you're that I'm guy. The, I'm the combat vet, like, what a spectator now. Like, ah, oh, I'm like, no, guys, I, I can really help, but no. Yeah. You know what? It's not a place for me to be. The guys did a great job. I went on an op with them, and I'm like, okay, I am that guy who is, uh, you know, it's past my prime. You turned into that guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I didn't go on anymore. I just went on that one, and they were good. It was some Team 7 guys, but yeah, so we did the Mosul fight. It was, it went, I think that really the integration of technology, unprecedented level. Mm-hmm. Guys didn't get to get the scrap on they wanted to get, but also we didn't hurt a lot of guys. Yeah. You know, we, we lost uh, C4, yep. Charlie Keating, yep. you know, but. Yeah. yeah, the technology advancement was so incredible. Like our deployment, when you and I were together, 2006, like the 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 UAVs and stuff oh, yeah. were just like <laughs> pathetic. Yeah. and. I remember our uh, one of my officers. It was actually Leif's, one of Leif's assistant platoon commanders. Yeah, I know he what was about. he was like the UAV guy, uh-huh. and like every time he would launch for those things, it, <laughs> it was would a recovery crash. <laughs> it was just a disaster. <laughs> I remember we gave him such a hard time. Oh, bro, they, they were hitting walls, hitting buildings, <laughs> yeah. hitting trees, and and was I mean, it the first Aqua Puma? Is that what it was? I don't know what it was, yeah. but and not only that, but. The imagery sucked. Yeah. You know, it was like from a shaky little freaking yeah, camera yeah, that yeah. was on target like yeah. one quarter of the time. So they, and and it just turned into the technology's got so good so fast. Yeah. And by the time you guys were over there, it was like incredible. Yeah. Incredible. And also the enemy had it as well. And yeah. You see some of this stuff that's going on right now in Ukraine where there's like, Drones drop dropping hand grenades. Have you seen some of those videos? Yeah, it's yeah. freaking horrific. We were worried about that in in Mosul yeah. too. And actually, they had all sorts. We like 
tried to all sorts of different things. And somebody came up with this idea of having these like falcons swooping down and taking out the drones. I'm like, uh, that'd be cool. I mean, it'd be cool to see like, like what's more America than an eagle swapping out and grabbing a drone, a bad guy drone. But uh, we ended up finding lots of different things. But really the best thing to do was just, because the drone had, had a return address. It had to go back, right? And so once that thing goes back, you follow it in with a hellfire. And that was kind of a, the most successful thing, in my opinion. That's, yeah. that's a pretty good success. Yeah. yeah. How you like me now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You drop your little 40 mic mic shell and then you eat a, a hellfire. And when did you when did you end up you did like the executive uh, what do they call it when you went to Harvard because you didn't go there right no it's program for leadership development it's because I was looking around for an executive MBA mm-hmm. and uh, you know I, I went all the, I was like oh, I'll do SDSU or I'll do and someone's like but every place was accepting me USC mm-hmm. I'm like wow maybe I should start at the top and work my way down and see what happens so I threw out like Harvard Stanford and then got accepted and I was like, Oh, well, I guess I should go now. Sure. So I went to that, and uh, it was actually awesome. It's basically their MBA curriculum. <clears throat> you do all the case studies, and then you do six weeks on campus. It's nine month long, and then you do one more module, and it ends up you as, a, as alumni. And uh, it was great. Well, the best thing I got out of there is a the network. I mean, I tell people now, I think school is overrated. Like, if you're going to be an engineer or a doctor, you got to go to school, man. But if you're gonna run business, mm-hmm. my brother's awesome at business. He doesn't, didn't even go to, he finished high school, barely, you know? And uh, it's, there's just, I think that entrepreneur line mm-hmm. is we need to preserve that and celebrate that. And I don't necessarily think that college is the right fit for everybody, you mm-hmm. know? Oh yeah, I definitely agree with you. As a matter yeah. of fact, I was just getting an interview the other day and I was, they're like, oh, less men are going to college. And I was like, no, I kind of support that, you know? Good. I mean, yeah, if you like you said, if you're going to be an engineer, you're going to be a doctor, but if you're going to go and do like why not go learn how to weld or yeah. go learn how to be an electrician yeah. in a in an 18-month trade school where you come out with a legit skill that people actually need in the world. Yep. So, yep. yeah, because all these other things, you just plug into into the big machine making 80 to 100,000 dollars a year, and on top of that, college is in, in, it's an indoctrination. Mm-hmm. It's like nonstop indoctrination. And, you know, um, this is, I'm speaking from, you know, I've, I've got a daughter who's in medical school mm-hmm. and then my son is just starting at uh, Tarleton State. And, uh, you know, I just see it. It's so much of an indoctrination. They've put all these little things in. It's like, well, why don't we just teach them the skills that they need and leave them alone? And I think the trades are still that way. You yeah, know? yeah. And what was you, but you started a business kind of around this time frame, right? Yeah, I started Sushi Assassin. Sushi Assassin. Yeah. Echo Charles, now he's entered the what chat. Are you, are you a sushi guy? Yes, sir. Yes, all right, man. Fool. So can you say Sushi Assassin? Sushi Assassin. It's yeah. kind of hard yeah, to yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, so I came back from business school. I'm like, I got this new business muscle. I got to use it. And then in the teams, you know, that's what we do. Like, yeah. oh, I learned how to be a hearse master. You go yeah. tie the. So uh, <laughs> I, I went down and I, I speared. I'm a big, I like to spear fish. I had a, like 200 pounds of yellowtail. I'm like, what do I do with this? And my buddy's like, bro, we should start a sushi thing. I'm like, uh, do you know a sushi chef? He's like, I'm a sushi chef. I'm like, uh, okay, you sure? <laughs> Make me some sushi. So trying to like what you did with me. Mm-hmm. And he did a good job. And he's got a really, he's from Kauai, actually. He, mm. he said, I think he said he know you. His name is Aaron Bishop. Um, but he grew up, he grew up in Kauai. He's like a small framed little white guy smaller than does I am. Does he have freckles? Yeah. Does he have a mm. brother named Damien? Yes, he does. Ah, That's your boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aaron <laughs> yeah. Bishop. Yeah, yeah, he's, older. Aaron, he's yeah. older than Damien. Yeah, anyway. Damien's my class. And so, yeah, so, so, so he's a good dude, man. <laughs> and uh, and he started this up, and, you know, at the time, I'm super proud of him because he didn't have a lot going on. He was working. He hadn't done his taxes in a couple of years, and he just, his life was kind of not going super good. And 
um, we start a sushi assassin and he, he runs it, you know, he runs it, he does it. I, I set the business up and he's got a really nice like vibe to him. Phenomenal sushi. If you're in the San Diego area and you want to do some sushi, get some su- in your house. And what really helped us out was COVID because oh, all of a sudden yeah. they shut down all these mom and pop restaurants, you know, and no one knows how to make sushi. I, I mean, I kind of can now, but I can't make what he makes, you know. And so now you can have the, we'll take a PCR test, show up in your house, boom, minimum of eight. It's about $140 a head, but it's super good. All you can eat, you know, mm-hmm. and you're in your house. If you want to just, you, you want to drink, you drink your own stuff. And then we clean up and leave. And it's been pretty good. So he's making a good living now. I don't take money from it, but I want to hand the business off to him. But that was my first foray. What is it? SushiAssassin.com? No, he, he has an Insta. And I think it's sushiassassin.co I think that's I don't have I'm new to social media uh-huh. man I, I have a LinkedIn that's all I have yep, yep. And you know it's like we don't, don't and it's it mainly the San Diego area <clears throat> yeah it's mainly San Diego area check yeah alright so you're doing that um, and now we roll into your kind of like your last your last tour was, was group one right yeah I rolled over to there and I was the opso for a while and then uh, they shut down the Ford units and they combined everything in group one and I was I was redlining. I'm like, I was running all of what used to be down there. And I'm like, hey, man. And the staff hadn't come here yet. So the guys that were there had to come back. And I was like, hey, I can't can't maintain this. Because I was working from like, you know, I get, you know what it's like the team. Yeah. I woke up at 4.30 until 6, get a workout in, then go to work. Because we have like zipper piped into our house. Mm-hmm. I actually had a hardwired into my house. Damn. And uh, yeah, you just like, my, my friend knew how to do it. We set it up. So anyway, they... I was working like crazy, and I told the boss, "I'm like, bro, I got to tap out, man. Like, we got to, we got to." So they split my position into three. We had like the, the opso, the training officer, which is what the group one ops used to be, and then we had like the 35, which is like uh, combining intel and kind of forward-looking ops. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I'm like, I want to take training, and because I'm getting out, so let's that's a kingmaker job. Put someone in that kingmaker job. So I went to training, and uh, it was awesome. I had a great job. I loved it. Uh, you know, I'll just say CB, work with me. Mm-hmm. And one of the best, most capable, humble people I've ever met. Yep. You know, I, I, I just, he was your, one of your OICs. He's my OIC. He's, he's the uh, <clears throat> Delta Charlie in the book, Leadership Strategy and Tactics. He's the guy that I stole everything from. Yeah. And you know what? And you ask him what he does. He's like, I do the bitch work. That's what he says. Mm-hmm. Of and course. Just a phenomenal dude. He set up my whole retirement for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, just, he lives a couple blocks from us. You know that? He's yeah. on the front. Oh, yeah. 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 But phenomenal dude and uh, work with him. And we, we ran that, that training and that, that went well. And then I kind of like started working my way out. And, uh, you know, I started a couple other businesses. So. And so, so tell us about the, what do you got going on now? So now uh, I've got. So you, re, well, you retired in 2022, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, technically January 1st, but my retirement that you when, spoke yeah, at. Yeah, that I spoke at was, was what? December 16th, I think. Check. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I started Mayday Executive Services, and we do high-end events for uh, for executives, high, safe, unconventional. I just did one this last three days I've been doing it, and I took some folks riding like water boards, those little water jet boards, and we did some uh, – we did some – Wait, what's so a water jet board? You like stand on it and the jet ski follows you around and you like ride on it. It, it almost feels like oh, a hoverboard. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Right yeah. We did that and then we did, uh, we went and swam with the sharks out in La Jolla, which if you're not from here, it's a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then they don't know it, but I actually did see a small great white when I was out there. Like how big? Uh, seven foot maybe. Yeah. So not La Jolla is breeding ground for great whites. Yeah. Um, so it's not a surprise to see one. Yeah. But most of the sharks that you see in La Jolla are those little leopard are sharks. Are these little leopard sharks that are they're nice. 
Yeah. They're nice sharks. They got little bitty mouths. They just like yeah. eat clams or something. Yeah. Mm. But anyway, they were pretty, it was a big deal for them. And then we also did some underwater knot tying. And then I, I did a talk with them on, uh, on uh, adjusting your team to change. Mm-hmm. So it was really good. I work with, uh, this was through Prey.com. I work with those guys all the time. Uh, their CEO, Steve Katina, has been a mentor for me on the way out. You met him at my, mm-hmm. uh, at, at my retirement. And he's, I did some work with him early on, like in 2015, I did something for him. I'd set up a scavenger hunt or something. And he's like, hey, can we pay you? I'm like, no, you can't pay me. I just, he's like, what can I do? I'm like, well, will you be my mentor? Dude, that was the best investment of my life. Those guys, I mean, he's probably texted me 10 times already today. I called him on my way here to make sure I was squared away. And he's just been a phenomenal, you know, mentor and leader and just good people, you know? So Mm -hmm. you need mentors inside and out. In the the military, it was you, Dave Cooper, um, Bo Nankable, you know, those Mm -hmm. were my mentors. And then now on the outside, I've got Steve Gatina. And uh, he's been amazing, you know? So... That that is called uh, Mayday Executive. It's at MaydayExecutive.com. It's MaydayExecutiveServices.com. And I've actually never seen the website. My sister made it. I, I looked don't, at it. I don't pay attention to it. Yeah, I looked at it. Yeah, you got I, I heard stuff it's, on there. I heard it's messed up on the cell phone right now, so she's got to fix that. But on the desktop, it's tight. I don't know. I don't do a lot of that. I'm mostly word of mouth. I'm booked through March right now. And... Uh, but that I try to just do two two events a month, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's speaking. I do a lot of with the entrepreneurs organization and the young, the YPO Young yep. Presidents Organization, um, and then. But my preponderance of my time is spent on Beyond the Brotherhood. Right. Which, so so talk us through that Beyond the Brotherhood. This is a five hundred one c three. Yeah. Correct. Right? Correct. And you know, people don't realize how often uh, seals kill themselves. It's it's pretty bad like within four months of my retirement four of our brothers died by their own hand and uh it's it's a problem and we're just i think we're just getting on the tip of the iceberg because now the guys that did a lot of the a lot of the combat are just starting to get out and i think that you know we talked about resilience community purpose goals these guys they're used to fighting for a higher cause you know they're fighting Maybe it's for patriotism. Maybe it's for the guy next to you. It doesn't matter. You're part of a community. And now you get out and you're working for money. And a lot of these guys do fine. But years down the road, they lose that community purpose, sense of goals. And so I thought about what I could do to get after that problem. And, you know, beyond the brotherhood in cooperation with Punta Brava Surf and Golf Club, I've been doing work with them for a while. And they're like, hey, would you start a 501c3? We'll, we'll, we'll cover it. What do you want to do? I'm like, let's get after this problem. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, we're just getting started. I did 14 dudes in 2022, and this year I think we've got 18 so far. Um, but I don't advertise. Uh, we take the guys in, and basically I like to use the Navy programs, be an expert at that. We help them get through their VA process. Then when they get through that, we uh, we plug them into a network. Because, you know, you're in the teams, you're like in a black hole. You you don't really have social media or any yeah. of that. I got my first social media account in January. Mm-hmm. And so you – we kind of we we take them. We give them the last bits of what they need. So like, if your company trying to hire, oh, I need them to have this real estate thing. I'll get them that real estate certificate. I'll send them to you. And we we line it up based on five things that I actually learned from a, a different nonprofit. But it's like, what matters to you most? Put it in order. Where you want to live, who you work with, the mission that you're doing, how much you get paid, or ability to control your own, control your own time. Once I get that, I get a picture of what kind of thing you need to do. And then you know, there's no one size fits none solution. We work with the guys get them placed and uh i'm starting i got good partners i need more so you know we of course we need donors because it's a 501c3 but we also need mentors 
people to want to take these guys and hire them. And I'm finding that they've, they've done really well. So if there's a value proposition on both sides, and uh, we've got a website, beyondthebrotherhood.org. And, uh, you know, it's a way to give back to the SEAL community. It's important to me. Mayday executive pays the bills. Beyond the Brotherhood is, like, good for me. And I'm still plugged into the community. And, uh, you know, I think down the road, I think the magic's not what we do right now, but I think it's going to be in five, six years where these guys are higher up and they're, you know, they're at the, the echelon of society that they deserve to be, um, a society that they fought for and earned. And then now they're looking at what their life is and maybe they can find some purpose through giving back to Beyond the Brotherhood. Maybe they come to our events or, you know, they see that snot-nosed little punk that just like he was getting out, you know what I mean? And let's, let's get this little fella turned in the right, right direction. Yeah, for people hiring, uh, so, so if I'm a, at a company and I'm looking for somebody to do a certain job, I can go to beyondthebrotherhood.org. Yep. And I can say, hey, I'm looking to hire somebody to run one of my plants or one of my sites. And you, this is what I really liked about what you're doing. Talk, talk me through how you are screening guys Oh yeah. To you're preparing on what you talked about. Hey, we're mm-hmm. you need a real estate thing. Cool, we'll get you that real yeah. estate thing. But you're also doing a cool uh, methodology for screening them. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So, like, there's a lot of organizations just taking anybody. You know what I mean? But you don't know who that person is. Is he a guy that got you know shit canned after a platoon and a half and stole something and lost his bird? He's got a buzz class next to his mm-hmm. name. So, you know, we screen our guys for character. Um, it, not everybody makes it. And when I say character, I I take. I have them turn in when they apply one supervisor, one peer, three subordinates. And we talk about those lenses, they need to align. So like, if they all think that you're a jerk, but you're squared away, but you're, even your supervisor say that, you're like, all right, this, this might be the right guy because everyone sees in the same. Mm-hmm. But if the kids, guys below you think you're a jerk and above you, are like, oh, he's the nicest person. Yeah, okay, that's, that's not, you're not true across the board, and you probably are not the guy we're looking for. So we screen these guys, and you know, in the teams, there's about 2,500 of us. Like, you know, if I, if, if someone didn't didn't know me, and they ask two or three team guys, they can get a kind of converging validity of what my reputation is. Right. So that's what we do. We get figure out who these guys are. They're not perfect, but they're pretty good, high caliber dudes, and uh, you know, we'll give them the last bits what they need and send them on their way. And then, what's the deal with the uh, with the Punta? What is that? Punta Brava. Yeah. What's Punta, that all about? Punta Brava. So it's a private surf and golf club. I've been doing work with them for a while. You know, I would take investors out and take them big wave surfing or take them to the wineries in Mexico or whatever it is they want me to do. And uh, it's been fun. We've got a really, it's a really cool place. It's puntabrava.com. Um, but it's going to be one of the best highest end golf clubs in the world. There's five holes that are designed by Tiger Woods. You have to hit over the, over the water to get on the green. And uh, they're only going to take 360 members. It's super high end, but it is cool. It's a, so if you know where La Bufadora is, just south of Ensenada. I was checking it out on a map. It's a peninsula that sticks up south of Ensenada. Yes, and sir. And it's like seven miles Yeah, seven, seven miles out into the Pacific Ocean. So it feels like an island because there's this huge mountain on it. And, man, they're breaking ground. I think before the end of this year, they're going to have the they're gonna have a nine-hole set up. And they're talking – they'll have an airstrip there. and uh, just how, how are the waves? The waves – not that good, but uh, Toto Santos, the world-class yeah. big wave spot, is a four-minute jet ski ride from there. So once we get the marina set up, it's going to be really easy to bounce out there. I took some dudes out there surfing in 25-foot, and uh, they they didn't do super great, <laughs> but they didn't die. <laughs> I, my leash ended up snapping. I had to swim all the way in and go get it. But uh, this cool. I took some guys spearfishing there a few weeks ago. It's a really cool place, man. Like, I mean, 
it's expensive, mm-hmm. but if you can afford it, it's definitely worth it. So are it. people going to build houses down there on that place? Yeah, they got 25 lots that they're selling. And, uh, you know, if they go through the website, they can figure out all the deets on that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you can have a house on it. And I think the real estate around there is going to really bump up. And in addition to Beyond the Brotherhood, they sponsor Punta Brava Medical. So they're trying to bring medical care to all the people in that area, try and give back to the community there. And, uh, you know, I got a soft spot for Mexico. I grew up right in El Paso and I, I surf down there all the time. I've been dying to take you down mm-hmm. there. Um, but yeah, it's good people, good community. I, I really like what's going on down there. Check. Now, if I'm a guy that's getting out, uh, same thing. I go to beyondthebrotherhood.org. Yeah, you'll click a little application thing. And then it'll go to our admin, which is me and Sean Murphy. <laughs> We're admin. It'll, and then one of us will look at it. We'll divide and conquer. He takes most of the East Coast guys. I take most of the West Coast guys. And, uh, and then we, we do our little research. If it checks out, because sometimes I got to put you on a wait because, you know, I got like a couple guys in the queue. Mm-hmm. There's only a couple of us doing it. And so I, you know, I've got a lot of jobs. But I really think that once Beyond the Road gets up and running, um, in a couple of years, especially when Puna Brava gets the constituency that they're going to get and uh, we'll be a centerpiece there. And I think it'll be easier for us. But right now I'm super bad at fundraising. I'm not good at asking people for money. I'm just not good at it. Like it feels weird, you know, um, but that's kind of what you got to do for a 501c3. Mm-hmm. And what else you got? You've married. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. So you got that going on. Yep. And she's awesome. She's active duty right now. Oh, okay. So going right to, on. Going to dime her out, but she's a lawyer. Check. All business. You see her on the mat here sometimes. Yeah. She's out here training you. Check. Yeah. And and then, you know, when we were talking uh, before, you were kind of talking about just like broad, like life lessons. And one of the things you were talking about is just like decision making. And at some point shifting from like making selfish decisions, which might not have turned out the best in the long run. Yeah. Over to like, okay, I got to put others first. Like talk me through some of that stuff. Well, I made a lot of selfish decisions, you know, and I know, think one of the biggest things I can say that has been a huge effect on me was I missed the first 14 years of my kids' lives. Like those 14 years, you know, I was gone, what, 270, 300 days a year. And then when you're home, you just kind of drop off your dirty laundry and prep for the next trip. And I was gone a lot. And so I really, you know, I'm grateful to my older kids, 18 and 24, because especially my daughter's worked really hard to like maintain a relationship with me. She came out here to go to SDSU, mm-hmm. um, and I, I missed a lot of that. And but now I got the second chance. And I guess my message to other people out there that maybe made some bad decisions, you know, not that teams were a bad decision. It's who I am. You know, I was I was made for this. Um, but you know, I've got another shot with my youngest son, and you know. I spend a lot of time with that guy. You know, when I, I pick him up from school, I work from like 4.30 a.m. and I'm, I'm off by two and then it's just he and I do our thing. And, uh, you know, he's got a bunch of different interests. He does rugby. He's here on the mat a couple times a week. Um, but just that time that I, I give him, it's for him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't do that for my first two. I was worried that they would be like, oh, now you're gonna, this is, is he your only real kid? But they weren't anything like that. It's mm-hmm. been cool. I took a trip to South Africa this summer with uh, my oldest, that's where he wanted to go. He wants to be a vet. And then, and I took the little fella and we self-directed safari in a Toyota Camry. There's <laughs> 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 lions like looking down. Animals aren't hard to find there, by the way. What, like. <laughs> what's self-directed safari? You rent a Camry, step one. Mm-hmm. Step two, you drive to the wild animal park. Got it. And you just drive through. That's it. Yeah, you, you, you drive right up on them. Like, yeah. I mean, hyenas, elephants. Wait, were you in South Africa? Yeah, I was in uh, Kruger National Park. Yeah, because that's one thing that I, re- when I went to South Africa, is like, there's no, like, 
there's only parks, right? Yeah. There's no lions walking around in normal places. No, no. no. But in the parks, if you get out you, of your car, you could be lion food. Right, yeah. right, yeah. yeah. I also made that mistake. I got out of the car sometimes. Did you hear this story? So I'm with Leif and his wife, Jenna, yeah. and with our, our friend Paul down in, in South Africa. Okay. And we're driving, and we had to go from Joburg to like this place, this, yeah. this uh, game reserve, right? Yeah. So we're driving and we're talking and we're, you know, whatever. And I didn't really realize it, but we had gone from like the world into yeah. the thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It happens so, fast, right? Yeah, yeah. But I didn't really see, <laughs> but we went through like a gate and everything. But I didn't really, yeah. I don't know if I was doing something else or whatever. wasn't paying yeah, attention. Yeah, it's not like America. Yeah. So we're dry. And now it's getting dark, but the sun's going down. And all of a sudden it's like a nice sunset across, you know, like uh-huh. cool, like, like little woods and like little mountain thing. And I'm like, oh, like, hold on, let's get a picture. And so they like, this guy, Paul, stops the car, and I'm like, all good. And then I'm like, you know, I'll get a better picture if I'm not in a car. So I just like open the door, get out, and I start walking around, like trying to find that yeah. good angle with the tree and the mountain or whatever. And then I just like take a few pictures on my whatever phone and then get back in. And dude, like, Leif was like, bro, I don't know if that was like a good thing for like, And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, we're in like the wild animal park. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, you know, kind of like whatever. Yeah, because in America, they yeah. can't eat you. They, they don't have turns, teeth or something. But it yeah. turns out this dude, Paul, was like thinking, like, hey, dude, Jocko's just freaking legit. Yeah. Dude, he just doesn't care. Like, whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Lion? Jocko doesn't Jocko's, know. Jocko's, Jocko's, no, it was just Jocko's stupid. <laughs> the real answer was Jocko's dumb. And Jocko's almost dead because he was dumb. But I just got out and was like, just tooling around. Like, oh, we get a cool picture. I, I did the same thing, yeah, man. Freaking I, idiots, dude. I, I pulled up on this, like, you could go along the river and, like, these little pullouts and a dirt road. So I get out of the camera and we walk down and to walk. I'm like, oh, there's, Al- there's a crocodile. I'm going to go see a crocodile. So we walk down there and where the crocodile was, it's gone. That thing was setting up on Bro. us, man. And then on top of that, there's elephants in the in this riverbed. I'm like, hey, boys, we should walk yeah. back to the car. Yep. Like, So I'm walking, and you know, my boys are like, well, I, I kind of mm. want to look at the elephant. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I think we need to go back to the car. Yeah. Like, So we walk up the thing, cause, and I can see, like, you know, elephants make big poops, and they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's like, man, this is like their thoroughfare. Yeah. Like, we don't yeah. need to run into an elephant here, you know? Yeah, that, and I saw uh, a rhino. Right. Oh, that's the hardest one to see. I didn't see one of those. So we saw one and bro, I was like, we were in a Range Rover and I was like, this thing's looking at me. Yeah. And most of the things that I look at in the world, (laughs) I kind of think I can take them. Not this way. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm kind of like, look, dude, unless you're like John Jones, like I look at John Jones and be like, yo, this could be a problem. But even John Jones, you know, I'll stick that, you know, I'll I'll stab him or something. Right. I don't know. Yeah, run. You know, whoever it is, I feel I think I can take them, kind of. Yeah. Right. I'm at least g- gonna be able to handle the situation, but they're unarmed. Yeah. I had I'm, a big knife. That yeah, was my I didn't. Answer. I didn't have a knife because yeah. we flew in from you know flew yeah. in on an aircraft, so I didn't. I was too stupid. I didn't go out and get a big knife, so I didn't have anything. It's not like you know I had to stick John Jones. Like if that happens, if I roll in through Albuquerque, no offense, John Jones yeah. bones, but uh, no. But seriously, you know, you look around at people, you're like, oh, I could, I, I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna be okay. Yeah. Right, yeah. but. This thing's looking at me, yeah, and it's like we're in a car, and I'm like, this thing will kill us all uh-huh. in this car if it decides to right now. Yeah, this was a weird feeling, dude. Do you see any hyenas? Scary AF, dude. Think about a jaw muscle that goes straight into neck muscle. I it was uh, hyenas are my favorite land animal, dude. We we pulled into a little chain link fence and we camped there. We pull mm. up and there's like. You to me, chain link fence, hyena, my son. Mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, this doesn't seem super safe. Yeah. Like, it's Jurassic Park-ish. It is Jurassic Where Park-ish. Where I was, it was like yeah. Jurassic Park. They had like a little electric wire 
like two little electric wires. Yeah. And on the other side of it is elephants and lions. And they're probably not on. And yeah. There's I don't know if they were on, power yeah. outage or whatever, but that's yeah. where we were at. <laughs> yeah. We had the same thing. I pulled in, camped in the Camry. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you made it home, and I'm glad you're getting to spend uh, all this good time with, with your boys and, and with your daughter as well, who's just, they're, they're freaking great kids. No, you, you know all my kids. Yeah. yeah you've seen them. So, um, what else, man? Does that get us up to speed? I think it does. Um, we got MaydayExecutiveServices.com. We got BeyondTheBrotherhood.org. You're only on LinkedIn. Yes, sir. That's all I have. So just you, Jimmy May. If you want to connect with Jimmy May, he's on LinkedIn. Um, man, Echo Charles, yeah. you got any questions? Yeah, I do. All, all right. right. So Here, we go. Here we so go. So what's up with the Humvees? What, they don't have keys? Is that what's going on? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay, so. Yeah, there's no, there's just a little switch. There's no key. No you, key you just, for Humvee. You just switch it, yeah. And okay. so I was an idiot trying to find keys to the Humvee, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't want to tell anybody, you know. Uh, <laughs> Whatever, I would have been looking for the keys too. No. So, wait, but if I buy like, remember like Arnold Schwarzenegger had that big I'm Humvee? Sure they're, I'm sure they rigged They, they probably rigged them, so but the, the ones civilian. overseas don't. There's actually, a, not only is it you switch, but there's another little switch that, that like locks the lights because I had to turn the lights on. I didn't know how to do that. And I was trying to like, Please let me turn these lights on, right? Because before Jocko looks, because there's like one switch, you have to like unlock the little light thing and you oh, turn it over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of them are IR and Jocko's sitting there with his helmet on. Like, I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> if I don't screw this up. So technically, anyone can just take a Humvee then. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, the way the Marines and the Army do it, they have a little like lock and they just put a lock on the door, like a padlock. Like on a the padlock. Door. Oh, damn. Yeah, so you can't hold. And it's like bulletproof stuff. Like it'd be hard to tear that door off. Yeah, yeah. Huh. yeah. But you can crawl into the top sometimes mm-hmm. if there's like... Yeah. Like a crawling through the turret, yeah. yeah. But sometimes they throw some kind of chain around the freaking steering wheel too. Like there's, let's face it, there's some thievery going on, some borrowing going on, uh, yeah. Some acquisitions happening. Yeah. Dude, uh, just about talking about like not wanting to tell people when you're messed up, man. You know about my first skydive, dude. No. This is ridiculous. So like, I I go through free fall school, and you know you get twenty two jumps. You know how good you are at 22 jumps? You're, you're not. So. You're sky trash, yeah. So <laughs> I just I have a buddy that's on the jump team, and he wants to, and I'm dating this girl. And he's like, hey, we're doing tandems. Can we, you want to take her for a tandem? I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. So we take her down there. And he's like, hey, you want to jump with us? I'm like, yeah, I'll jump with you. Cool. I can jump. So all I know is military, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I walk in. I'm like, what do I do? He's like, hey, dude, just act like you're with us. I'm like, okay, cool. So these guys are walking, you know, and they got sunglasses and they're putting their hand out and they put their left hand out and they slide a, a parachute on their hand and then they walk out the door. Right. So I'm just in the back of the line, you know, looking cool, swagger, got my sunglasses on, put my hand out. She puts this thing on me to my horror. It's like a camelback. Like mm-hmm. it does not look like the kind of like thing I know how to put on. So usually in the military, I, I've got this giant backpack. Right. And then it has another giant parachute underneath as well. And it's got like, it's got buckles and like this thing that'll pull the parachute for me if I don't pull and then all these things. So I'm like, well, that's okay. I'll take care of it at the JMPI, the jumpers pre-inspection. That's when usually I walk out and I have all my buckles and one person who knows what he's doing looks at everything I do. They look at all my buckles. Then they spin me around they open up my pins. They look at every single thing and then they like, smack me on the back, and then I go to another guy who does the same thing, and then I don't touch anything until I get on the plane. That's how it goes, right? So I'm thinking I'll just square this way at the JMPI. I walk out, we turn left, plane is spinning, we get on the plane, I'm not even wearing my parachute. So (laughs) now I'm like, I wonder quietly to myself, how do I put this parachute on? So 
I step into the bottom because I look at, I watch other people do it because usually there's two straps around my, around my legs. Then there's a belly band. Then there's these two straps behind me that I pull. Then there's another one that goes across my chest. And all those things you put together, there's, you step through two straps and put one thing across your chest. And I'm like, is that it? It seems like there should be more. So I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, then I noticed that there's no thing for me to pull to like open my parachute. So the plane's in the air and I'm, I'm flying. My girlfriend is sitting on my buddy's lap cause he's like trying to strap her in. And I'm super concerned that I don't know how to open my parachute. And I'm like, Hey man, I'm trying to get his attention without letting her know that I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, Hey man, so where's my pull? You know, he goes, Oh, it's back here. And there's this little bean bag mm-hmm. and I reach back there and I feel it. And I'm like, Hey, what do I do? Do I squeeze it? Like what he goes, Oh, you just throw it. So now I'm in this plane. Dude, this is ridiculous. I'm in this plane. Dude, hundred percent. This is how it went down. <laughs> Bro. So I'm in this plane. This is like this is this is you why might have to cut this. No, no, we're definitely playing this. But this is this is why the life expectancy of men is freaking so, so much freaking lower than women. So now because this is a, an idiot in action. Yeah, so yeah. now we're going up. And I'm like Okay, so I think I'm supposed to throw this thing. There's another little can handle down here around my waist, which I can only assume is for my, uh, my backup parachute, which I hope there is one, because at this point I don't know. And uh, the light turns green, and I gotta jump before the tandem people jump. So light turns green, I jump out this plane. My clever plan for safety, because usually I pull it like 3,500, 4,000. I decide to pull it 7,000 because you fall a thousand feet in six seconds. That gives me an extra like 18 seconds to figure out how to fix my parachute if I don't, it doesn't work. It's my clever plan. So I, I reach, I throw this thing as hard as I can and it opens, right? It opens. And usually my parachute goes like, this giant parachute opens, right? It's like 360 square feet of just giant parachute goodness. This thing goes, It's like a kite. And I'm not even going much slower than I was when I was falling. I'm like, what is happening? So I'm like, okay, it looks like it's as big as it's going to get. So maybe I should try my canopy controllability check. That's what you do, right? I I usually, I look left, I shake my leg left so the people behind me know I'm about to turn left. And then I pull my parachute down and it's like, whoa, whoa. And you kind of go slowly to the side. This time... I look left, I shake my leg, I pull the thing down, I go above my parachute like a serious, like a pendulum. Yeah, so Echo, just, just the, the military parachutes, they're really big, they're 360 square feet, yeah. and they're meant to be able to support you and your weapon and your rucksack and all this weight, yeah. and so they're not very maneuverable. Yeah. And he's jumping a little sport shoot. It was probably, if I'm guessing, it's probably like the jump team does like a 150, so. And this was super long time ago, so I don't know what the. the they're, they're like, yeah. they're like, like surfboard. This is like a the a, a, a five nine surfboard, like just yeah. a little shred surfboard. Where he's used to riding a longboard, like he's used oh, to like I'm a used to riding a paddleboard. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. So I come. So now I decide not to finish the rest of my camera controllability check because I am horrified. I'm so I'm horrified. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I've seen these guys land these things before because I can't yank it because I'm going to pop up in the air. Like you'll pop up to 25 feet and then just like stall and fall. So I'm like 
trying to figure out how to land this thing. And uh, I end up pulling it off pretty well. And uh, my buddy, his name was Johnny. Uh, <laughs> was like, Dude, you did great. And I was <laughs> like, oh, my God, I can't believe. So anyway, I didn't jump civilian for a long time. Uh, I do now, and uh, I really understand how stupid that was. Uh, but at the time, uh, you know, I didn't want to admit that yeah. I didn't. You know, uh, I, I, at the time, it made so much sense. Don't want to look. Don't want to look like a wimp, bro. No, I, I mean, mean, come on, bro. Well, yeah, that's yeah. like Tony. Tony Afratti told a story on here. He was like, he's absolutely horrified of heights. And Tony is. Yeah, I didn't know he's that. horrified of heights, and he was rappelling in like Hong Kong. Yeah. Off of you know some skyscraper in Hong Kong, like yeah. it's literally like a five hundred foot rappel or something crazy like that. And he was like, "I was so freaking horrified, but I wasn't gonna look like a wimp, so I yeah. just jumped <laughs> off. And went freaking went for it, you know? Like, what are you gonna do? <laughs> I don't know that. And I tell that story, and as the older I get, the stupider it sounds. I'm like, I cannot believe, dude. I was, I'm like cringing as you're yeah. telling that story. So the normal protocol, Echo, is you go to a class. They teach you about it, and then they send you up with a free fall instructor. So like when I transitioned from jumping the military rig to jumping the civilian rig, went to like a class, and it's not a big class, but it's like one hour class or something. You sit there and you go, they put you down there, and they're like, here it is, you know, here's how you throw it out, here's what you do with your other hand, here's the malfunction procedures, like you learn all that stuff. And then they take a military free fall, or sorry, a civilian free fall fall person that's gonna qualify you, and they jump with you, you holding on to you, because think about this, so even though he only had 22 jumps, he had definitely developed the muscle memory right here, for yep. doing one thing yeah. that if he does that, it ain't gonna work. Yeah, like yeah. you'll die. Yeah. <laughs> so they send an instructor out there. And the reason they send an instructor because people have died as they're scrambling yeah. looking for their rip cord yeah. and it's not there. So they, they go, oh, people died doing this. So we send someone. So they see Jimmy doing the wrong thing. They'd be like, no. And they can signal to him yeah. and get or him to the right thing. Or they can pull it if they need to. They can pull it for yeah. you or something like that. No. Jimmy's just going solo. <laughs> He's in the aircraft, doesn't even know how this freaking thing works. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't, wasn't even wearing it yet. I didn't even know how to put it on. I was like, God yeah. dang. Oh, but I didn't, I, didn't want, I didn't want that chick to think I was a, a wuss. You know, Hell so, no, dude. You know Hell. what I mean? You I made mean, the right call. I made the right call. Hell yeah. What else, Echo? You got any more questions? Oh, yeah. You guys talked about the, what's it called? The freaking talk or the man talk the after man talk. the trait. Scenario. Yeah. What, what are they saying? The, or what, what's the man talk technically? So like, basically, it's kind of based on the man in the arena. If you've heard of that talk, mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to think who who, who said the man. Roosevelt. Talk. Roosevelt. Yeah. yeah, the man in the arena. It's like you know, all you guys cheering. The guy that got in there and did it. Right. That's like that's that's an accomplishment yep. in itself. Even and though he lost, even though he might have failed, whatever. Yep. 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 And that's yep. kind of like that's kind of the crux of what we're trying to tell this guy. Like, hey, you're a great American. You're yeah. smart. You're strong, you're capable, you're gonna do great things, just not in this community, yeah. that's it. And so that's what the man talk, and that was kind of our whole A-Troc in a, in a you know probably two minute thing that they did. Yep. And now we have, it's a much more robust process. I really believe in it, I think it's good, and I learned a lot about you know those, those three things, you know, the community, purpose, and goals, and I think it was important. So the man talk is, oh, so it's not, so it's kind of like an encouraging talk. It's like a positive oh, yeah. no, thing. No, you quit. Yeah. No, we're not. We're, we're done telling you you suck and tr- oh, crushing you. Yeah, no. dang. Okay. Hey, you quit. And it's yeah. like, hey, listen, I got to get you back into the regular Navy. You're going to yeah. go into the Navy and you could be the MCPON. You could be super high up. Mm-hmm. And you're going to do great because these guys are super high caliber guys. Even our quitters are awesome dudes. Yeah. And If they have the right attitude, they go out and dominate. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I don't know if I can say it, but you know, Mikey didn't make it his first time. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. Mikey didn't make it his nope. first time and neither did Mark. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I had I had George on, and we talked about it. Oh, okay, okay. And good. he was like, he yeah, it's in the book. Uh, okay. You know, he like called him up, like didn't make it. Dad. He was crushed, bro. Yeah. And 
Yeah, that's scary. And I'll tell you what, like that thing about the man in the arena, there's so many people that go, obviously there's people that go to SEAL training, props, respect. Yeah. You went, dude, you gave it a shot. Good for you. You moved your family, you trained for years, you get here, didn't work. And there's all kinds of people that don't even do that, man. Yeah. They don't even, they don't even, I mean, dude, it takes courage and commitment to, to go for it. It really does. It's a huge step. And listen, I think it's you. Lately, I've been telling when guys are asking me about it, I'm like, hey, most people don't make it. And most people don't think they're that person. But you probably are. Mm. The chances are you probably are the person that's not going to make it. There's an 80% chance that you're the person that's not going to make it. And you know what? Those stats are low. Yeah, I, I think that's what we say, but we know they're low because now you got to compete to get into buds. Yeah. You come into the combine, and if you're not one of the top run swim, you don't even go, and that doesn't count against our numbers because mm. we got you know we got to like appease the higher ups. Like it's not that bad, twenty percent make it, you know, but it's pretty bad. And yeah. those guys go off to the fleet, and you know what? For the Navy, they get super high quality guys. Seventy percent of our E dogs, they got degrees, man. Yeah. At least a four year, they, they just couldn't get a slot as an officer because it's super competitive. <laughs> so we get super high quality guys, and the attrites. I mean, they're solid dudes, and yeah. it's kind of cool seeing them build this community after the H Rock. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what do they? What happens to them when they get dropped? Where do they go? So first, they go to the H Rock. They spend at least minimum twenty four hours there, and then they they got to make that call before they leave the barracks. You know, before they they leave supervision, they make call. Then they go back and they got to finish sleeping. You know, they're probably and then they got to start thinking about their next steps in life, and then. You know, there's a big administrative machine that starts the needs of the Navy. You know, when we went through, it was like, you take your ASVAB and here's the, the, the rates open to you. They start talking about what their next steps are. And they have to spend at least two years in the fleet before they can come back. Historically, people that quit once don't have a good shot of making it back mm-hmm. through. I mean, you know, Mike and Mark were definitely outliers. Because mm-hmm. um, we ran the numbers every single way. Like the, the highest, the guys that make it through the most are like the uh, academy officers because they live that for four years. Yep. They know what's going on. And they have a really compete to get those slots. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they have, they're living in that cold. They have a seal up there mm-hmm. teaching them. So they're, they're the highest, they're the, the most probable guys to make it. Enlisted guys are probably about, I think, 18% or something like that when, mm-hmm. I was, when I was there. So it's a super low. And, you know, to make it through under the age of 20 is super crazy. I heard that's like 5%. Super crazy, yeah. And those guys, I mean, we, we know a couple guys that have done that. Me and Jason Gardner. <laughs> Jason Gardner? Jason Gardner. Dang, he's a long time. Yeah, then, bro. Yeah. I didn't know he was that young. Yeah, he was. But yeah, those guys, I, when I was 18, I don't think I, I had, I didn't have it. Mm. I could, don't think I had it. I learned it in college. I learned something in my head. Mm. But I wouldn't have had it at 18. No way. Yeah, that's a weird, it's a weird dynamic. Yeah. Um, what else? Echo Charles, any more questions? That's all I got. Good to hang with you. Cool. Right. Good to see you too, man. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I, I miss being on the mat with you guys. I got my hips replaced recently, and it's not. It's been a little slower recovery than I was I'd hoped for. But uh, you know, it's good to see you guys still out here training. And you know, this is still home for me. I come to Victory, and I know everybody here. And now my little boy's training here, and it's just a happy place. You know, I was like, yeah. oh yeah, we we do the podcast here. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just like being home. Super yeah. easy, man. We I've been do, here since '06. We ought to do something for JT in here, man. That'd be badass. Okay. You I know can, we got that one uh, mat that has like a flag and stuff on it. That'd be pretty cool to put something up there. Dude, I got a cool picture of him next to Hawkeye. That was his his yeah. dog. Uh, that. We took on the beach when we were living in IB together. Same time when yeah. he was working for you. That'd be a really cool one. I have it at my house. I wasn't sure what to put up with it. I don't have, you know, California's small house. I don't have mm-hmm. a lot of walls. But it'd be cool to put that up here. Maybe yeah. maybe, maybe we'll work on doing that. Yeah, I'll take that 4 Yeah, right man. On. Right on.
Jimmy, any closing thoughts, bro? No, man. I, I, uh, you were a mentor to me before. You always been the same to me. I really appreciate you, Jocko. You know, uh, you were hard on me when I needed to be hard on, and then you had a profound effect on my career as I went up. And uh, I think sometimes people be like, "Oh, it's one of those one of Jocko's guys." I'd be like, "You're damn right." Mm. You know what I mean? So, I, I appreciate what you've done, and you do a lot of good things for the teams. I know that there is an an, an undercurrent of the team is like, "Hey, these guys, they they go out and they use the Trident for to leverage for their own purposes." But I know you do a lot for the community, and I appreciate that. And uh, you know, I'm trying to give back as well. So, you know, good to have you guys as allies. Echo, man, I, I love your part. Your your, your little <laughs> inserts is, are always so key. So I love having yeah, you here to keep us sane because, you know, Jocko and I'll just talking acronyms and going our own little, like, violent agreement circle, you know. But uh, it's good having you here. And, yeah, bro. Right on, man. Well, uh, you know, like I said, the day I met you, I was like, cool. This guy wants to do a good job, and he's tough. And for me, that's all That's all I ever look for in, in my friends, you know. This guy wants to work hard, do a good job, and it's tough. So... Thanks for coming down, man. Thanks for uh, sharing your lessons learned. Thanks for your service to the country, to the Navy, to the teams. And thanks for what you've done for me over the years. And thanks for what you're continuing to do today to help out guys and to keep them on track and get them moving in the right direction, finding their next mission, man. I know you care about the teams as much as I do. And I know you're still getting after it, man. Thanks for what you're doing. Sir. And with that, Jimmy May has left the building. Jimmy May, always learning. Jimmy May. Always improving. Always trying to stay on the path. There you go. You know what's funny about Jimmy May? What's that? How I, knew, how I like, know him and mm-hmm. stuff. So you told me that story about like, about oh. About some yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some <laughs> this guy. is the uh, challenge story. Yep. You'll find out. Yep, you'll find out. When we roll. In fact. I'm thinking back. That might have been the time when I realized who he was, mm-hmm. like when I brought him together. Because I met Jimmy May and like trained with him a bunch. Because he'd come during the day, and that's when like you don't get a. Especially back then, there was no huge groups of people training during the day. Prior to that story, I'm. I oh, I might have told you that story a pretty late day. Yeah, yeah, yeah late. Okay, you didn't okay. tell me right when it happened. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. In that. fact, if I'm remembering correctly, you I told you about. Maybe he came up or something mm-hmm. like that. And then you were like, oh, let me tell you this thing about. And then yeah. I think that's why I think that's. And then I put them all together. Yeah. So so I was just training with him. He was just going. He was like, oh, yeah, I'm like a Navy SEAL. But, you know, back in the day, I freaking I know. But you remember Igor, like yeah. all these guys, mm-hmm. my friends and stuff like, yeah. OK, yeah, everyone that I meet like. Navy he didn't Seals say I'm a Navy SEAL. He said like, probably, oh, yeah, I'm in the team. Right. Exactly. I just want to make sure you're not making Jimmy. A, Jimmy yes. Man, it's not a direct quote. That's yeah. for sure. So. So I'm like, cool, and he's freaking good at jujitsu, and so I was, all, you know, I was always really happy to see him. So nice. Mm-hmm. He has a, to, to be honest, he kind of has a scary look in his face. When you look at his face, he looks like, oh, but he was super nice. He tried good training, really, you know, really good guy. So I was always looking forward to seeing him when I'd see him mm-hmm. training. Right. Slowly but surely, freaking convert. You tell me that story. I find out all this stuff. Greg tells me some stuff. I'm like, freaking, that's the guy that I used to train with because I didn't train with him for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, but that doesn't make sense because he doesn't seem like he's that guy because he's just a normal dude. Mm. Sure enough, that's the guy. Oh, so before you realized he was in the teams. I knew he was in the teams before I knew about all the stuff he did. Okay. And I didn't even know about all the stuff, but Mm. the guy, because I knew him just as Jimmy, not Jimmy May. Oh, okay. Yeah, because he just said, my name's Jimmy. It's funny, too, because 
I always call him Jimmy May. Yeah, me too. And then people in the teams call him Jimmy May. No one calls him just Jimmy. I called him Jimmy before I knew he was Jimmy May. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, there you go, man. Train some jujitsu. I'm kind of bummed he can't train right now, like yeah. hard. You know, he can roll a little bit and stuff, but yeah. I think he just got. You know, he'll 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 be there. He didn't he's go gonna, into the whole like hip, his hip. Yeah, yeah, hip replacement. Yeah, yeah, straight up, like kind of gnarly. Yeah, no, that's not, dude. When they're replacing your hip, it's gnarly. Period. End of story. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're taking a major part of your freaking skeletal structure out and replacing it with metal. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So yeah, that's that's what it is. So anyways, but you know, the thing is, Jimmy, just like all of us should be, he's always constantly working and trying to get better. So staying on the path. There you go. When you do that, you need the proper fuel. Get yourself some Jocko fuel. It's true. Also that pre workouts out, that's the new hotness right now. Mm -hmm. And I am back on the pre workout. You're back in the game. Brad, freaking, <laughs> I uh, the tingling actually I, I shouldn't because I didn't do it like a full length workout, but my workout was thirty five minutes. Mm-hmm. I still felt the tingling on the way down here. Oh, okay. Oh yeah, that's when you know. How right many there. minutes prior to the workout commencing are we? Ten ingesting. Ten, and here's the formula. And I went over this with Carrie, by the way. Mm-hmm. So if I'm working out right when I get up, here's the formula. It's the deluxe formula for pre workout: creatine. So it's water, right? Water, mm-hmm. creatine, scoop and a half creatine, one hi- hydrate, Jocko hydrate. You'd think, it actually doesn't matter the flavor of hydrate. And then one scoop. I'm at one scoop now. I started with half scoop. Oh, you're already. I'm already <laughs> at one scoop pre-workout. Those three all mix. Some people like the greens, which mm-hmm. I dig. I advocate for the greens for sure, but that's not the deluxe formula I'm currently on. Boom. Perfect, bro. Perfect. Lands perfectly 10, 15 minutes. Before the workout, boom, go. The tingling begins. Full speed. The workout oh, commences. Bro. So good. So good. Perfect. Try that one. Report back. Okay. Check. There you go. Jockofuel.com. Get yourself some of that pre-workout. Get yourself some go. I'm two goes deep right now. And I'm getting ready to go train that. Which you're not training today? Is that no, what I heard? Not today. No. Because you already lifted apparently. Yes. That's what you said yeah. to me. <laughs> Curls too. I have a whole day You did a dedicated. 35 minute workout today and you can't train jujitsu because of that? Yeah. No, I actually have some videos I have to do. <laughs> right now. I, I got to do it. You know, I'm prioritizing executing. Okay. Yeah. Right on. All right. Yeah. But also get milk. Because how many milks deep are you right now? Two. Okay. I am too. Yeah. So we're both 60 grams. By the way, that's the only thing I've eaten today. Yeah. Is I, two bottles of milk. Yeah. RTD. What flavors did you get? Banana and chocolate. I went vanilla, then chocolate. That's a good, nice to have the options, right? Mm. Little variety activity. <laughs> Normally, I'm super um, boring, right? What, like, like you like, stick with the same one? Yeah, like yeah, go, yeah. Like go I, I only drink tactical tea. Yeah. Eh, not only, but like 80% of the time tactical tea. The mainstay. 20% of the time, I'm doing maybe some pink mist, mm. maybe some sour apple. Mm. Maybe the lemon lime, but 80% is the one. But I find myself with the milk mixing it up a little bit more. Yeah. Yep, I see it. I go from banana chocolate. I don't so much do the vanilla. Do you do the um the blue ras mo- or go? Blue ras go is do? out. Yeah, yeah. Do you like Just it? Just came out. Yeah. Yes, I do like it. I, I do like it. I surprisingly like it too. I'm going to say this light and refreshing. <laughs> 
sir. Fuck. Hell yeah, lady. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I know what you're saying. Well, you know the mega mix, too. I don't know if you heard me explain this to Carrie. The mega pre-workout mix. Okay, go. It's the same mix. But with a go? But with the go instead of water. Oh, yeah. So you get the blue res. You stack the blue res all day. So you blue res go. Uh-huh. Blue res hydrate. Blue res pre-workout. Triple Boom. threat. Boom. Oh, yeah. Then, I mean, I don't know if that's, you know, you put the greens that on the creatine. That might not be legal, bro. Yeah, yeah. You got to cut it. Well, you got to put creatine as well. So that's the mega mix right there. But I can't take responsibility for the results on that one because you can be wigging out. Jacked. Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> All right. Get this stuff at JockoFuel.com. Get it at Wawa. Get it at Vitamin Shop. GNC. The military commissaries. AFES, Hannaford's, Dash Stores, Wakefront, ShopRite, HEB down in Tejas, Meyer up in the Midwest, Harris Teeter, Lifetime Fitness, Shields. And by the way, small gyms everywhere. And if you own a small gym, you own a little jujitsu academy, you own a CrossFit gym, you own a, a powerlifting gym, whatever you own, email jfsales at jockofuel.com and get yourself some of the stuff for, so you can give your clients the product. Normally that sounds bad, like who wouldn't give us some product? That's like drug dealers, right? They give you a free whatever, product. and then you're addicted yeah. to heroin. Yeah, You know what I mean? You're mm-hmm. addicted to crystal methamphetamine. Sure. Then you die. You commit <laughs> crimes, and then you yeah. lose your teeth, and then you die. Yes. This is the opposite. Yeah. You actually commit good workouts, mm-hmm. you grow stronger, mm-hmm. and you live better. The real good stuff. So get some people some product. Jockofuel.com. Let's go. It's true. What else? Also, Origin USA. Boom up. So we're doing jujitsu. We're working. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? Not working? Oh, we're no, working. No. So look, doing, doing jiu-jitsu, you're going to need a gi. Once you go with these origin gis, you're not going to go back no. to the regular conventional uh, sweatshop gis. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're, you're not. not. Do that for many and you reasons. are working too, so you need a pair of jeans, maybe two. Can you wear black jeans in a elevated uh, scenario? I guess it depends like on nice how restaurant, Like it's Valentine's Day or something. Brad, nowadays, hell yeah. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. big time. I mean, we're in California, so we're kind of messed up. Because in California, you can roll out Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. five-star restaurant, flip-flops, t-shirt, surf shorts. Yeah. You might get a little bit of like a look, Some but looks. they're still letting you in. No factor. You're probably yeah. getting no factor. No factor, yeah. But if, you know, if you're trying to like maybe step it up a little bit, you might want to put on the black jeans. Yeah. Dress you might as well up. get ones that are made in America. True. Don't get ones that are made in a sweatshop. No. It's freaking wrong. It's just wrong. Don't let that happen. OriginUSA.com. Get yourself some gear. Hunt gear. This went hunting, by the way. Didn't kill. It's okay. But I had a freaking awesome time. Yeah. Uh Cam Haynes had a elk two yards from him that he shot and killed. He's wearing the origin camo. The thing was just like standing there, didn't see it. <laughs> Damn, it really worked. Bro, huh? what better proof do you want? <laughs> I know, bro. You got the proof, man. You don't get any more camo than that. Two yards yep. away, elk. Two yards in away. In his natural habitat. It, look, if I'm in my house, bro. if you're two yards away, I don't care. Don't care. You can be the predator from, you know, the movie Predator. Yep. You can be the predator. Bro, I'm going to see it. Mm-hmm. Two yards away, 100% in my house. Yep. Right? That's my house. I know when the house seems different. Yep. See what I'm saying? So the elk couldn't even see him. Couldn't huh? even see him in that origin raptor camo. Yeah. So get yourself mean. some hunt gear. Hide from what you're trying to kill. <laughs> Boom. Uh, JockoStore.com. We yep. make some stuff. We make some t-shirts. We make some rash guards. They're actually origin stuff, but yeah, you know, a little bit different designs, but yeah, rash guards from origin, boom. You know, that's how we're rolling, hundred percent. But yeah, if you want to, you want to represent good discipline equals freedom. Mm -hmm. We got your shirts and hoodies and hats. I posted a video of you the other day. You were in a where you were wearing a shirt that was like discipline, but it was in a GI Joe font. 
Format, sure. Format and font. font. Yeah, the whole deal. Yeah. And there was a bunch of comments. Said, where do I get that shirt? Yep. And you replied, shirt locker. Shirt locker. Well, that could have been slightly cryptic because, yes, it's from the shirt locker. But the shirt locker is part of Jocko's store. Mm-hmm. It's our program. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, man, you want to get on that the shirt locker program. It's one new shirt every month. That's just one of many that you can get. Good news, too. That is a past one. That one's from last year. Like 2022, last year. Can you still get it? You can still get it. So if you're a member of Shirt Locker, boom, we give you a little account. You just log in. You freaking buy whatever one you want from the past. So you have access to all that stuff. But yeah, new shirt every month. People seem to like the design. It's funny because a lot of people don't know about it. Or put it this way. Mm -hmm. Less people know about it than I thought. Mm -hmm. Because even like... You know, the video that we put out or you put out of you deadlifting and the shirt changing all the time. They're like, oh, my gosh, where do do I get that shirt or whatever? You know, and these are like, bro, they've been up, man. Mm -hmm. Shirt locker all day. So, yeah, good. Cool. But, yeah, now we know. JockoStore.com. Shirt locker. JockoStore.com. Just click on join the shirt locker. Check them out. Subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to Jocko Underground. We're recording one of those. Actually, maybe two of those this this weekend. Get those up. Some Q&A. Answer your questions. Give you the info. It's $8.18 a month. Why? Because people get kicked off of platforms and there's nothing they can do about it. They're not prepared. We're prepared. Hopefully it doesn't happen. Well, we're good. We're over here. We're just putting out word, but sometimes people might think the word we're putting out shouldn't be put out. Then what are we going to do? We'll be there on the underground. If you can't afford $8.18 a month, we get it. Tough times out there. Email. Email assistance at jockounderground.com. We'll take care of it. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe to or buy Psychological Warfare, FlipsideCanvas.com, Dakota Meyer making kick-ass stuff for you to hang on your walls. Got a bunch of books. You know what they are. Hey, Defend Us in Battle. I covered that already with George Monsoor. Also, Rose Ray. She co-authored that. She's a military spouse. She did a great job. George Monsoor, just incredible book. Defend Us in Battle, the story of Mikey Monsoor. Get that book. And then I've written a bunch of books. You know what they are. Got a new version of Leadership Strategy and Tactics coming out expanded a dish. I put some very pertinent and pragmatic, useful information into this new version. So check that out. It's also got a dope black cover, which is kind of where everything ends up, you know, for me. Like we try, oh, just let's go. Let's make it black. <laughs> looks dope, right? That's true. You got to admit, it, does look it looks dope. badass. Yes, so yeah, there you go. New version of Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. And then all the other books. The kids' books I've written. Get those. Echelon Front, we have a leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com. Come to one of our live events. Bring us into your organization. Have us come and talk to your leaders about leadership. Let us get you aligned. That's what we're doing. Everything that we do sold, sells out. So if you want to come to one of our events, get there early. Go to echelonfront.com. Check it out. We also have online training, extremeownership.com. It's our online training academy. We have a lot of information. We, we have the skills that we learned and there's skills that you can learn. And if you don't have the skills of leadership, your whole life is worse, period, end of story. And what is leadership? It means you're interacting with other human beings. Husband, wife, kids, employees, boss, peers, Everybody, friends, everybody, family, everybody. You're interacting with other people. In order to do that effectively, you need to understand leadership. Extremeownership.com, learn how to lead. Also, if you wanna help service members active and retired, you wanna help their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom. Mama Lee, she's got an incredible charity organization. She helps with medical procedures and treatments that are not covered by the military. If you wanna 
donate or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. Also, don't forget about Micah Fink taking taking our veterans up into the wilderness to find themselves, heroesandhorses.org, and Jimmy's organization that we talked about today, beyondthebrotherhood.org. If you want to connect with us, Jimmy can be found on the interwebs, MaydayExecutiveServices.com and BeyondTheBrotherhood.org. And if you want to reach out to Jimmy May, he's on LinkedIn. And then for Echo and I, we are also on all these different social media platforms that exist. Echo's at Echo Charles. I'm at Jocko Link. Just be careful because the algorithm is a big beast and it'll try and grab you and waste a bunch of your time and your life. So don't let that happen. Thanks once again to Jimmy. Jimmy May, thanks for your service. Thanks for your sacrifice. And thank you for everything you are doing to continue to help our community and our brotherhood. And thanks to all the men and women in uniform around the globe at this very minute protecting us and our way of life. And also thanks to our police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, and all first responders. All of you continually step into harm's way for us and our families, and we thank you for keeping us safe and everyone else out there. You know, I started off this podcast by reading about Mikey Monsoor and what he did and the sacrifice that he made. Well, on his gravestone, at Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery, chiseled at the bottom of his gravestone. It simply reads, no regrets. And that's the way that he lived. And that's the way that he died, no regrets. And it's a good reminder to all of us. And I believe that for most of us, the biggest regrets come not from what we have done, but what we didn't do. So let there be no regret about what we could have done, about what we could have accomplished, about what we should have done. Let's leave nothing in the tank. Leave it all on the field. No ammunition to spare. Nothing left inside. Let's go with no regrets. And we do that by going out there every day and getting after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko out.